hour again with that mysterious chain of events coming out of Florida and a body of medical evidence as well, all leading to an unsettling conclusion virtually impossible to dismiss. A third documented case of anthrax exposure out of Florida office building has forced federal investigators to open a criminal probe into its origins. CNN's Ed Lavendera live from Boca Raton with more on this now, Ed. Bill, there are so many unanswered questions here. My history um, with AMI and David Pecker goes back to the fact that I was the on-scene commander back in October of 2001 at the scene of the first anthrax murder in U.S. history at AMI headquarters, Boca Raton, Florida. And we had a conversation with Mr. Pecker because we had one shot to go into that building and get out what he, what his most valuable possessions were and try to decontaminate them before we went in and did the whole the whole crime scene. And so we said, Mr. Pecker, what is it you need us to bring out of that building that is the most valuable possession you could you could possibly think of? And he said two things. I need you to take out the picture of Elvis in his coffin, and I need you to remove the photo of Batboy. Those were the two most important things to David Pecker's life that were in that building. But I'll bring up something else that raises a question of another Trump attorney who might be just wondering tonight and that is Rudy Giuliani, because you know who David Pecker called to decontaminate his anthrax-filled building? Rudy Giuliani and a company called Bio One. So when you need toxic waste removed, you call Mr. Giuliani. That's way back, years ago, that that relationship existed. And I wonder what Mr. Pecker has to say and knows about Rudy Giuliani. Just when you don't think this could get any more interesting, uh, Frank Figluzzi says the darndest things. With anthrax found in the office right next to mine, there was an attack on City Hall, as well as on uh, the major networks. And, and I was directly involved in that. Uh, I was directly involved in that. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. How's everybody doing today? I hope you've been enjoying these. 2001 Anthrax Attacks Investigative Podcasts. I'm hopeful that I've generated a little bit new interest in the case on this 20th anniversary of the Amerithrax Attacks. And before I go off on a rant like I tend to do at the beginning of some of these podcasts, I wanted to give you the opportunity to skip forward 20 minutes just to get right into the main story portion of this podcast. The story I'm going to be telling you it's probably the most complicated one yet of the three Anthrax podcasts that I've done. It's filled with a lot of characters, a lot of different names. It jumps back and forth through time. But I think that this might be one of the more important ones of the three. Because I'm actually identifying individuals who I believe were definitely part of this somehow. I have to admit I'm a little bit dismayed that there doesn't seem to be hardly any interest even in the sphere of sort of alternative media about this right now. I will give a shout out to the following podcasts Around the Empire, Unlimited Hangout, Status Coup, 
and Citizen Truth. These four podcasts actually gave me the opportunity to talk about the 2001 anthrax attacks and to present some of the new research that I found. But other than that, there really hasn't been much interest in this case. And I'm not just sort of complaining because people aren't asking me to go on their podcasts. What I'm complaining about is there just doesn't seem to be interest in general. Hardly anyone is covering this in general. In fact, the only people that have covered this have asked me on their shows. I found a couple local news reports that were talking about the 20th anniversary of the anthrax attacks. One of them was WPTV in Florida. The WPTV segment out of Florida on the 20th anniversary of the anthrax attacks was rather good. It was better than you know, any national news segment you would see about it. But like I was saying, there was no national coverage of like the 20th anniversary of the anthrax attacks that I saw anywhere. If anybody saw anything that I missed, I'd like to see it because I, I didn't see a goddamn thing. I mean, other than this National Geographic Hot Zone Season 2 thing that's coming out, that's a dramatization of the anthrax attacks, uh, there was no like 20th anniversary special or interviewing any of the people on a national level that I saw. This channel, WPTV, actually reached out to uh, some of the victim's family members. Specifically, they reached out to Maureen Stevens and talked to her lawyers who won that settlement. And the reporter who did this local story was named Dave Bowman. And I think I would maybe getting a little bit desperate trying to look for any way to get this into the news cycle while the 20th anniversary window of this event is still open. Because my thinking is, you know, if this is not even being covered on a national level by anybody, and it's only being covered by local Florida reporters, there's a handful of local TV Florida reporters and news anchors who actually covered this on the 20th anniversary. If those are the only people covering it, well, then maybe my best chance of getting this into the news cycle, getting any of these new discoveries or the St. Petersburg letters information all laid out properly to show how it implies there was at least two people involved in this crime, even though they were hoax letters, was still part of the same crime, implies coordination, then maybe there's a Florida TV reporter that would be like, yeah, this is a story. And it's relevant because it's the 20th anniversary. Well, that window is closing. The last victim to die of anthrax happened on November 22nd. So my hopes are dwindling to get this into the news cycle. You know, maybe you're listening and thinking, well, why would that even do anything at all to get a local Florida reporter to throw this in a local Florida newspaper or, you know, do a five minute segment on it on a local Florida TV news channel? What would that do? That wouldn't do anything. And that would be a fair response to what I'm saying. But I think that it's just, it's a way to look at this as an investment because I don't, I think it's basically going to be impossible to get anybody to cover this on a national or even local level in Florida after this window closes. Maybe on the 21st anniversary might be possible, but again, the further we get away from this, the more memory hold it gets. If it's this difficult to even get interest on a local level in Florida, even though this was like a big local event for them, not the, just the hoaxes, but the AMI building being like the first bioterror attack or whatever in the United States, then after this window closes, it's going to be completely impossible. So what I'm saying is I would encourage you out there, if you're listening, to perhaps if you're interested in getting this story coverage and you believe me that this is a good investment to try to get this story covered locally somehow, so at least there'll be a video to pass around or an article in a local paper we could send people 
that there's new traction in this case. If you can help me out there, think of an idea of who to send this to, which reporter in Florida has written about these attacks in a, in a way that where they actually seem genuinely concerned or they actually seem skeptical about the FBI's conclusions, which Florida reporters are out there who might be looking for stories right now. When I reached out to David Bowman, I, I ended up speaking to him because I basically thought that he might be the best hope to try to get this out there. Um, cause he said, seemed to have a genuine interest in the case from what I saw on his little 20th anniversary segment on WPTV. But understandably, he's simply not able to take it on right now. He's already, you know, he's already booked out as far as what he has to do. He's still genuinely interested in it. I, so I think it's going to be the, a matter of finding the right person who's got the right amount of stuff on their plate, not too many things on their plate and who's actually interested in this case. And it actually doesn't even have to be someone who was, you know, old enough to remember it happening back then. It could be someone who's like 21 years old right now who works for a local paper. It might just take more work to explain to them the whole story if they don't have any context for it. Maybe they'd never heard about it before. I do think that this could still work. And really, there's only 22 days or so left to try to get interest from a local Florida reporter. My attempts didn't work so far. I'm still trying. Currently, I'm trying to get some interest from somebody over at the Miami Herald because they seem to be one of the only local Florida papers that's actually like reporting on deep state CIA shenanigans, you know, going back 40, 50 years into the past. Sometimes they just did something about JFK again. Recently, they've done great work on Epstein. They've done really good work on the hijackers on 9-11. And I think they've even done some stuff that Daniel Hopsicker has covered as well, having to do with the weird connections in Florida. So I guess what I'm saying is maybe there's a place in St. Petersburg out there, an outlet, where someone there will be like, yeah, this is, this is a, a really good idea to write a story about this. And if you're asking, well, what do you mean, Robbie? What are you even going to show them? What's going to convince them? Well, I believe, I am confident enough that if you really lay this out to someone in terms of what the St. Petersburg letters are versus the Trenton, New Jersey letters, and you show them the whole timeline that was put together by Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, plus the picture of it side by side, I do think that you can get someone to be genuinely interested in this and get them to understand that it means that there were at least two people involved in this crime. But other than the podcasts I already mentioned, which are great, and a handful of local Florida news reports, there's no coverage in the alternative media, anti-war media, libertarian media, socialist media, left media, virtually almost none. And there's no coverage in national media either. I guess I just find that unsettling, obviously, because I believe that the anthrax attacks were crucial, a crucial stepping stone that's almost downplaying it to get us into the Iraq war. But it was a crucial aspect of sort of the propaganda matrix they created to get us into the Iraq war. And Colin Powell's recent death, I think, just really emphasizes that. And, you know, he claims that that was a shameful thing, that it was one of the most shameful moments of his life, that speech that he did in front of the UN. But no one's really ever cornered or asked any of these people directly, why did they hype up anthrax so much and create all these false connections to Saddam Hussein when they already knew that the anthrax had come from some kind of U.S. bioweapons lab? Why did they do that? We already talked about on the last podcast, why did Wilkerson do that? And he refused to answer for it. 
sort of wiggled out of the question. So I guess I'm just really thankful for those out there who have already listened to the previous podcast about this and who have taken new interest in this just based on, you know, maybe the first thing you ever heard about this was the last podcast that we put out about Kathy Nguyen and Robert Stevens. I'm heartened by the fact that there's people who are getting excited about this case based on these new podcasts I've been putting out. So thank you out there if you're taking an interest in this case. And even if you're offering to help, um, I had a listener reach out. I don't know if he wants me to give out his name or not on the podcast, but if he's listening, he knows who he is. He was a Patreon subscriber of ours and he sent me a direct message and said, Hey, I'm in uh, Florida right now near St. Petersburg and some other places. Do you want me to go check anywhere out? He actually spent, took some hours out of his day actually going to some places and looking for some files and things like that, you know, that I had previously been trying to find by making phone calls to places and coming up empty handed. Um, and he actually came up with some new information. He ended up running into a fire chief, a captain coming out of the St. Petersburg fire department who was at the fire department at the time that this Howard Troxler hoax anthrax letter was delivered to him. And he remembered the incident. Yeah. I mean, that type of stuff is, is great. So I really appreciate that kind of interest that people have had in this case and anything that you would like to do to try to help follow up on any leads that I just do not have the resources to do. I would really, really appreciate it. One development that I managed to achieve is that uh, the St. Petersburg Times actually has in their own records much, much higher resolution pictures of the Howard Troxler envelope. Now, I talked to their photo archive person. There aren't any other photos in any of their databases or files of anything else. There's not a photo of what was written on the letter or anything like that, unfortunately. I did try to reach out to the photographer. I think her name is Jennifer Davis, who has the photo credit on it. I wasn't able to get in contact with her. But the only things the St. Petersburg Times has on record are the same things that I've already posted on Twitter, which is the envelope front, the envelope backside, and another picture of Howard Troxler's work area covered with plastic wrap, and it looks like the fire department's there. But the development that I'm talking about is that eventually I did speak to someone at the St. Petersburg Times who said that they would put these much higher resolution photographs into their licensing database. So as of right now, they actually are available for license. These photographs are. So if anybody's listening out there who has experience buying or paying for photo licenses, let me know what you would do. Because I would like to have the option to, to you know, take these higher resolution images and, and display them like on the Media Roots website or on another website that wants to publish these. I just have no clue. So I haven't actually approached them yet trying to get a quote. But as of right now, I managed to get them to put them in their system. So they are publicly available right now. So if anyone is listening and has experience with that, I could use help in that area, just trying to figure out you know, if it's worth it to actually pay money and how much it would cost uh, to get a license for those, just to have nice photos of those. The same Patreon subscriber of ours who was willing to do all this legwork for the Marathrax independent investigation and thank you again for doing that they actually also discovered a higher resolution version of the troxler letter photograph than the one that i already had an old 
scanned version of a St. Petersburg Times newspaper in black and white. Of course, it's newspaper print, so the resolution of the print quality, you know, is is pretty low. It's like kind of like dot matrix. But I guess the point is that with listeners' help of this podcast, there's been actual progress in getting some of this evidence out there, uh, which is really exciting to me. And as I'm sitting here, I have stacks and stacks of American Media Inc. tabloids from the time period of the anthrax attacks right before, right after 9-11. And part of this was I wanted to try to piece together AMI's own publishing house, you know, that happened in the AMI buildings, their own narrative of the anthrax attacks beyond that one sort of issue that everybody's probably already seen, the Inquirer bioterrorism issue that came out on October 30th. Because one curious thing to me in looking back in all this is how did David Pecker, the owner of AMI, let the mainstream media basically scoop his own newspapers on one of the biggest stories of the century, a bioterrorism attack? It almost seems as if he did not let his own employees write about this until the very end of October which is just kind of strange. And I mean, that was sort of what I noticed last episode when I was looking through stuff. But I'm noticing it more now because now I am piecing together all of the AMI tabloids uh, that would have talked about this. And so far, I have not found anything earlier than October 30th, which is interesting. But I do have some new details that come from the Star Magazine, another American media incorporated publication. The Star Magazine employees also worked in the AMI building. You know, they give their own accounts in the Star Magazine, and Maureen Stevens herself actually has an exclusive interview in it. So that's one other publication I found of AMI that talks about this. I'm kind of rambling at the beginning of this podcast, and you're probably just like, what is this podcast about? Well, I'll tell you what it's going to be about, roughly. This is going to be probably the most dense and filled with the most characters out of any of the previous Anthrax podcasts I've done since the 20th anniversary. So the last two were very focused on the specific events and aspects of the case itself, of the attacks themselves. This podcast will actually be focused on something different. It's not going to be focused as much on the FBI's investigation or who the killer was specifically. What it will be focused on is the cleanup efforts of anthrax. And when I say cleanup efforts, what I really mean is cover-up efforts, because it does appear that the cleanup attempt or the cleanup efforts made at David Pecker's AMI building location after the anthrax infected the whole building there was some kind of cover-up operation and has many bizarre twists and turns that are so fraudulent appearing on their surface that you almost wonder how did David Pecker And all the people involved in this, including Rudy Giuliani, including a land real estate guy out of Florida named David Rustine, including the Manafort Brothers Construction Company. How did all these people get away with this stuff? Nobody really batted an eyelash, and they were not investigated by the SEC or really anybody else. That is a strange mystery here when I lay out to you all these facts. Now, this goes all the way back to Uh, the Inquirer magazine, America's first major tabloid, really, uh, was the Inquirer. And part of this episode, too, is going to be 
telling you the story about the first crime scene of the Amerithrax attacks, the Florida AMI media building from a different angle than I had previously. Trying to tell you a different story about it based on all the personalities, the way that the Inquirer and AMI and these tabloids were seen by other journalists, mostly looked at with disdain by other journalists, and sort of maybe try to get into the details of why the FBI never actually used any of the witness testimony, at the very least, in their final report about Robert Stevens' death. Why do they just say a parent letter? Is it merely because they couldn't find the letter? Why don't they trust the eyewitness statements enough to actually create a little bit of a narrative for that in their report? So we're going to go into all of that. But first, I'm going to give you some backstory about the Inquirer itself. And the Inquirer originally started as like a, a horse racing sports magazine out of New York. It, it had a very low circulation. It was very much just a very specific, narrow, you know, type of coverage. It was mostly for people who were gamblers who would read this. It probably was read by people who were in organized crime at the time. You know, a lot of gamblers and people into horse racing were sort of crossover with organized crime. So, you know, the paper itself was a little sketchy to begin with maybe, but the Inquirer was was not a tabloid really when it first started. It was, you know, it was a genuine just sports newspaper, essentially. This guy named Generoso Pope Sr., out of New York, uh, was this made man sort of, um, even though he was sort of on the outside of the mob and would help them. And this guy, Generoso Pope Sr., he ran an Italian language newspaper in New York. And photographs of him being on stage with the New York mayor at the time, this is like in the 1950s, uh, with mobsters, um, with everybody in high New York society at the time, you know, a powerful guy. And the fact that he ran this Italian language newspaper in New York also gave him some deep connections to the mob. Now, Generoso Pope Sr. passed away, but he had a son who was now sort of wanting to walk in his father's footsteps, uh, Generoso Pope Jr. And Generoso Pope Jr. didn't get as close to the mob as his father did, but what he did was he started his own sort of endeavor by buying the local New York Inquirer, this gambling, you know, horse racing, sports newspaper, by buying it with an unconditional loan, an interest-free loan from Italian mobster Frank Costello, who was good friends with his father. And this mobster pretty much just outright gave Generoso Pope Jr. the money to buy this newspaper. So the very start of the Inquirer was based on mob money. 48-year-old, mild-mannered Gene Pope, an MIT graduate, a CIA alumnus, seems an unlikely figure to head the flamboyant inquirer. But he rules it like the godfather. One hour each day, his minions sit across the desk from him in the city room while he checks them out. Nothing gets in the paper without his personal approval. We asked him about another tale we heard. You knew Frank Costello? Yes. Joseph Provacci, the godfather? Albert Anastasia, right? Yes. And you know as well as I do that there are allegations that Mafia Money has been behind the Inquirer since the beginning. Right. I've heard, I've read that, heard it. Answer? Well, I think it's pretty obvious uh, to anyone that understands or reads or knows anything about this organization, whatever it is, uh, that if there were, there still would be. Because? Because they never let go once they get their hooks into you. 
And that obviously has not happened. The plain fact is no one has ever been able to prove a mafia and choir a connection. Well, that's bullshit, what Mike Wallace is saying, clearly. But sorry, I forgot to tell you that Generoso Pope Jr. used to be in the CIA. And he actually comes from psychological warfare unit of the CIA during the 1950s in the Cold War. Although information about exactly what he did in the CIA beyond that is hard to come by. But it was said, and this is from adweek.com, an article called Fight Over National Enquirer Founders, 418 Million. It says, National Enquirer founder Generoso Pope Jr. led a hell of a life and was responsible for the paper's pre-celeb glory years. Pope's only instructions to his reporters, never say anything about the CIA, never say anything about the mafia, and never knock Sophia Loren. Now, Generoso Pope Jr. actually turned the Inquirer from being this horse racing sports tabloid immediately into what was essentially a gore tabloid. By gore, I mean like real death photography. One of the first of its kind, actually. And it peaked at one million readers with this shtick. It, it got really popular really fast. The, the sort of the gimmick worked. No one had even thought to do something this crazy before to put pictures of like real dead bodies just on the front of newspapers as a thing to attract people to purchase it. And Generoso Pope Jr. would constantly tell this story that, I mean, sounds completely made up. It's a story that he's actually told multiple times about how he couldn't stand gore himself, he would say, but he was fascinated by how other people seemed to love gore. And he would tell this story about how when he was a younger man, he would often walk by crowds of people surrounding gory car wrecks and look at the mutilated corpse in the vehicle. It took over the Inquirer, which is 23 years ago now. I was looking for something that would give us some instant circulation. And really, I used to marvel at automobile accidents, and I'd see the public crowd around and uh, for some reason have a morbid fascination in what's going on. I personally would turn my head. I couldn't stand it. But I knew they were attracted to that. The public was fascinated by gore. Right. And so you so decided... So we gave it to them. Huh? We gave it to them. In spades. And give it to them he did. Headlines like these pushed the Inquirer's circulation to a million by 1968. First of all, how many car wrecks have you seen in your real life um, living in the United States? I mean, I've, I haven't seen any car wrecks in my life or, you know, maybe on the freeway once where there might have been a dead body. But to say that, you know, how many car wrecks in your life did you actually pass by and see crowds of people staring at a, a dead body inside of a car wreck? He describes it like it happened to him multiple times. And he found this phenomenon so fascinating. This is how he got the idea for turning the Inquirer into a gore crime photography tabloid. Because that's what this was, essentially. These were photographs that were leaked out of police stations and police precincts. I mean, he used his dad's already existing connections via the mob to get connections to law enforcement. First starting in New York, you know, having sources in all sorts of aspects of the New York Police Department, and then around the country. And these police departments and police who were paid money outright, you know, would leak him photos of these horrible crime scenes or sensational murders or terrible accidents. 
Just an example of some of the headlines from during their gore era. Seven-hour enema turns black girl white. She'll marry the man who cut her throat. Necrophiliac plays basketball with dead girl's head. Mom cleans kids by putting them into clothes washer. These are all murders. And probably one of their most infamous issues was a September 8th 1963 edition of the National Enquirer. It was a famous murder because the victim was a 24-year-old young ski instructor from Reno, Nevada, and the murder was a 17-year-old high school student. And the reason why this issue of the Enquirer was particularly famous is because they didn't just run a picture of her autopsy photo on the front cover, which they did. They actually ran an extremely gory photo spread inside the magazine. The headline for this issue said, I cut out her heart and stomped on it. And it was promising to give you sort of the inside scoop on what the murderer, the 17-year-old murderer, said when he confessed to the police about her murder. But the most shocking part of the issue was it actually shows a photo spread, two pages, and one whole page is basically horrible autopsy photos or photos, I don't know if they're the autopsy or the actual crime scene, where it shows her decapitation. It shows her severed feet, uh, severed from her body. It's horrific. By 1971, the Enquirer had started to cover more celebrity news and had actually toned down the gore. He wanted to reach a broader audience. And even though the gore trick worked at first to try to you know, get quick and many subscriptions uh, based on sort of these sensationalist and salacious pictures, he wanted to reach 10 or 20 million subscribers. And at this point in the 1960s, they really only peaked at a million. So he decided to move the entire operation from New York to Florida. This was also something that a lot of mobsters, especially in the La Cosa Nostra and in the Jewish mafia were doing as well. They were moving their operations from New York to Florida and to the Florida Keys and places like that. I mean, very classic mobster shit to do, basically. But he moved this newsroom, this giant company, this news company now by this time was had grown substantially, he moved it to Florida. And he sort of created this new news industry, tabloid industry of sorts in Florida, where there started to pop up other competing tabloids as well. And the way Generoso Pope Jr. ran his operation is he didn't interact really with hardly any of the employees. And, and really, the rumor around the company was, if you did see him around the office, you were not to make eye contact with him. And if he knew your name or knew who you were, it was a really, really bad thing. It wasn't an exciting thing to get to know the guy who founded the Enquirer, the place he worked. It was actually a scary thing. And he would avoid making eye contact with people as well. He wouldn't look at anybody any of the employees on the floor, unless he knew them very, very well. And his wrath, when roused, is said to turn him mean and petty. His employees call him an unpredictable tyrant who can fire as quickly as he hires. Pope affably waves off the charges. Uh, this idea of catch and kill, how the Enquirer magazine, you know, wasn't just carving its own path and really pushing the envelope in terms of how sensationalist you could get in a newspaper and how popular that would be. But it also sort of invented this new thing called catch and kill, where they would get these really salacious news stories, and sometimes they'd be embellished, but a lot of the times they were based on real 
leaks tips that they would be given they had a wide network of tipsters and people and and you know moles and all these places that was one of the things that generoso was very proud of and they had discovered that bob hope you know who was very very big at the time still in the early 70s they had discovered because they had been collecting a lot of dirt on a lot of celebrities especially their extramarital affairs they discovered that bob hope himself was a pretty prolific philanderer and he had several mistresses and he was still married of course so they were about to run a story, the inquirer was, about Bob Hope's many mistresses and affairs. This guy who, up until this point, people mostly knew him as this completely squeaky clean guy who you would never think in a million years who would do something like this. So this story, in essence, could have like ruined him back then. But what happened was something interesting. Generoso Pope Jr. actually decided to put the story on hold for a second instead of running it and having Bob Hope's people get furious and freak out to call their people before they ran it. And they actually decided to negotiate with Bob Hope's management to bury the story as long as they could get access to Bob Hope, exclusive access in the paper to run exclusive interviews with him pretty much indefinitely. His people agreed to this. And as soon as this happened, this catch and kill happened, you could see Bob Hope writing all these dumb puff pieces like Bob Hope's 10 favorite foods or something like that, or like an interview with Bob Hope that's like two pages long. I mean, he would just give them all this material and they use that, you know, to sort of inflate themselves. Like that made themselves seem like they were more important or more legitimate that a celebrity like Bob Hope would give them access. So one of their first big gets was actually via a catch and kill operation to have someone as big as Bob Hope and as legitimate as Bob Hope you know, giving this legitimacy over to the Inquirer. But this wasn't the Inquirer's like first really, really big break in terms of celebrity gossip or dirt or news. When National Inquirer editor Ian Calder was there, who's this cutthroat motherfucker Scottish dude, it was the late 70s. Elvis Presley died from what people at the time thought was a drug overdose at the age of 42 years old on August 16th, 1977. But autopsy records looked at later by other medical professionals suggested he actually died from a massive heart attack from a genetic form of heart disease. Ian Calder of the Inquirer, in his own book called The Untold Story, My 20 Years of Running the National Inquirer, admits to purchasing a photo of Elvis in his coffin for the front cover of their magazine for $18,000 from a man named Bobby Mann. And this guy, Bobby Mann, was actually a cousin of Elvis's. So he was allowed to get into the funeral. It was a very small funeral. They only let the public sort of watch from the outside behind a barricade. And only the close friends and family and relatives were allowed to go see the body. And of course, this you know was such a big deal to get a photo of Elvis's corpse. Because at this time, people did not believe that he had died. It was The conspiracies about him not really being dead had started right away. So what they did is they paid this cousin of Elvis's, who had access to the funeral, the inside, to Elvis's open casket funeral. They had him dress as a priest, which is strange. And I don't really understand exactly how they did this. You know, why, if he was their cousin, why he had to dress as a priest. But they had him dress as a priest and they had him use a hidden wristwatch triggered hidden camera, like a spy camera, basically. This fake priest they had paid $18,000 to, he went up to the coffin, he tried to take a picture. He didn't get the picture correctly. 
So he had to walk back to the coffin. So at this point, it sort of seemed really awkward. He already had gone to the coffin, paid his respects. Now he had to go back, try to take another picture. It also didn't work. So the third time, especially awkward, having to go back to the coffin again to pay his respects. So this time, this guy was starting to like act really, really broken up by Elvis's death, like as if you know he had no choice but to keep returning to the coffin. And the third picture turned out absolutely perfectly. I mean, the fact that he fucked up the first two pictures completely, but the third one was this perfect is pretty miraculous. I mean, very, very lucky of them to capture such a good photo with a spy camera like this if the first two were completely fucked up. And this infamous photo of Elvis in his coffin became the cover of what was, at the time, the best-selling issue of the Inquirer. I think it still actually might be the best-selling issue they've ever done. It sold over 6.5 million copies. And people have argued that this is the most famous magazine cover of all time. You know, to actually show the dead body of a celebrity on the cover of a magazine when, when so many of his own fans would simply just not believe that he had died. It was, a, it was a really big deal. And to do it in such a clever, sort of stealthy way, almost like they were, you know, spies, it really goes to show their level of skill compared to other journalists from the time. Now, since doing research for this and brushing up on Robert Stevens' background. Robert Stevens was the first anthrax victim. I read that him and his wife, Maureen Stevens, actually moved from England to Florida sometime around 1971. And that's when Stevens took a job with the Inquirer. So Robert Stevens was initially working for the Inquirer as one of their art editors, presumably. Because in Robert Graysmith's anthrax book, he says that Robert Stevens was credited as touching up the original Elvis coffin photo. Now, when I read this passage originally, I was like, oh, that's just sort of a weird coincidence, you know, that Robert Stevens, while he was working for The Sun, may have touched up the photo because The Sun and the Weekly World News and some of these other publications would later run the coffin photo and it looked like they had enhanced the contrast or they had touched up the Enquirer's original version. But here's the strange thing I noticed when purchasing an original version of the National Enquirer exclusive Elvis the Untold Story from September 6, 1977. Since this issue sold over 6 million copies, it's actually really easy to find this for around $10, the original printing of this. Now, one of the first things I notice about the picture is that it is clearly a touched-up photo, pre-photo shop pre-software, touched-up-looking photo. In fact, it almost looks like someone touched it up to make it look more Elvis-like, like a younger version of Elvis or something, like from the 1960s. It has a very strange look to it. So if you can find or pull up a very high-resolution version of this cover, I would recommend doing so just to see it. And I don't know if, you know, Elvis conspiracy theorists or Elvis aficionados have explained or have an explanation for why this is clearly a touched up photo in its original form as it ran on the cover. But it's clearly been touched up. So now it seems as if Robert Stevens was the one who possibly touched this up. Well, can we confirm that by looking in the credits of this best-selling Inquirer issue to see if Robert Stevens or a Bob Stevens or a Robert Stevens is in it? Well, I'm flipping through the pages now of it. Let's see, I'm on page five. Let's go to page 
Shit, I ripped it. Well, good thing this is not a super valuable paper, right? Well, I'm looking at the article, the Elvis Coffin photo article, and Robert Stevens or a Bob Stevens is not credited anywhere on this. Oh, here they are. They're on the first page. <laughs> I missed them. This is National Enquirer, volume 52, number four. There is no senior art editor or photo editor position in here, which is what Robert Stevens would later be in the sun. But I am looking here under senior editorial assistants, and I see listed a Robert L. Stevens. And if you go all the way down to the credits listing, it says Chairman Generoso Pope Jr., President Ian Calder. And just looking through the paper from the 1977 issue, it does look as if this was more of a higher caliber paper at one time. It's still trashy. You can, you can tell it still has the same spirit to it, but the paper got more and more watered down as it went on. But then, of course, they would get in hot water for doing much sleazier things, believe it or not, than taking a photograph of Elvis in his coffin. Sleazier things than that. Ian Calder, the editor of the Inquirer at the time, after John Belushi's tragic death from injecting a speedball and having a heart attack, Ian Calder sent two of his own writers, his journalists, to hang out with Canadian citizen Kathleen Evelyn Smith. She was the woman who was with Belushi the night he died from a speedball overdose, and it was rumored that she was the one who gave him the drugs. So what happened was Ian Calder told these two reporters of the Inquirer to go befriend Kathleen Evelyn Smith. So they did. They basically tricked her, befriended her. They partied with her for 10 days straight, drank, did drugs, did a bunch of coke with her. And during this 10-day period, they just kept badgering her over and over again to get her to talk about saying things to her like, you know, you, you, you killed him, didn't you? Like, it's your fault that he died. Like, you gave him the speedball. You sh you gave him the needle, you put it in his arm, and you pulled the plunger down. Like, that's basically like you putting a gun to his head and pulling the trigger, right? Wouldn't you say you killed John Belushi? So after, like, ten days of them, like, getting really fucked up with her and then, like, badgering her over this and basically secretly taping her, they finally got her to say, okay, fine, I killed John Belushi. And after they got her to say this on tape, they used it for a cover story of the Inquirer saying, I killed John Belushi. And based on this taped admission of the story that ran in the Inquirer, she was immediately arrested right after the article came out by the Canadian police. So the Inquirer had sent their people out, actually, to Canada after the Grand Jury of Canada requested their presence there. And during this trial, the Inquirer reporters had to like answer for what they had done. And she ended up going to jail for this. And they claim they felt that they had sold her out. I mean, that's bullshit. I mean, like, totally unethical behavior. You know, craven kind of behavior, but at the same time, like, if you're a journalist and your goal is to get, like, a scoop or dirt on a celebrity or something like that, I mean, these guys were really at the cutting edge in terms of, like, doing whatever it takes to get the story, even if it's, like, not even really true. I mean, this woman... She said that, that she killed John Belushi, but like, you know, just because she gave him the drugs doesn't mean she killed them. A, a, a kind of a, an interesting way to manipulate the truth that they would go through this much effort to do this, you know, just so they could like coerce her into saying something that's not really true. You know, and of course, at this time, it had become common practice for the Inquirer to actually pay their sources for stories, like anonymous sources 
money. They would pay for photos. You know, this is sort of the start of paparazzis. This is how it started, is they would pay people money for photos. I mean, you know, regular news agencies would pay people money for photos too, but these places would actually pay like amateur photographers who like take like clandestine secret spy camera photos of celebrities. Like that was an unprecedented thing. So this is when all this stuff really started is sort of in the late 70s. It started to get sleazier and sleazier and more and more unethical. At this point, you're probably wondering, what in the fuck does this have to do with the anthrax attacks? Well, trust me, this will all connect. I guarantee you. I'm telling you the backstory to the Inquirer here just to let you know just how really sleazy it was and how it was started with mob money, how basically all the writers for it were seemingly untrustworthy people who needed to get this story so bad to get this woman to say she killed John Belushi that they were willing to, you know, completely throw her under the bus and essentially get her thrown in prison for it. Now, the next strange or noteworthy thing that the Inquirer did, you might say, is they actually created what became known as the world's tallest decorated Christmas tree, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. When Inquirer owner, Generoso Pope Jr., moved his newsroom from New Jersey to the very small town of Lantana, Florida in 1971, he claimed he was missing the East Coast Christmas traditions of snow and Christmas trees. He didn't feel that Latana, Florida, it felt the same at Christmas. It was still a relatively warm climate. There were some Christmas decorations, but people didn't go all out like they had in New Jersey. So apparently what happened is the National Paper Company, as a gift to the Inquirer for its basically paying the National Paper Company so much money for its huge amount of sales and printings. The National Paper Company gave the Inquirer as a gift for Christmas, and it's not exactly clear exa how this happened. Some people say that Generoso Pope Jr. simply bought this 45-foot tree from Oregon. Other stories I've read say that the National Paper Company gave it to him as a gift. It was their idea for a Christmas gift. But maybe he asked them for it and he was going to pay the money for it, but they just decided to give it to him as a gift. That's not really clear. But what happened was they brought this 45-foot Douglas fir tree from the forest, a living tree, all the way out to Lantana, Florida, hundreds of miles. And they decorated this tree with like thousands of feet of tinsel and Christmas lights. And this display soon turned into something that was like basically like a completely over-the-top version of the sort of like small suburbs you've seen that like where every house has like extremely expensive over-the-top Christmas decorations. And even some of them have like some low-budget animatronics and trains, miniature trains riding around. Well, imagine that times 100. Like that's what basically Generoso Pope Jr. got going on the front lawn of the Inquirer every Christmas year. And this tree would grow in size, actually, until it actually reached. And they would replace the tree sometimes, too. They got multiple trees. I don't know if they all got them from Oregon. This tree sometimes had up to 300,000 lights. And sometimes there were up to 10 different railroad sets set up with animatronics of 20 different scenes with all different animatronics going on at the same time. And by 1979, the tree would actually reach 117 feet tall. This is when it got into the Guinness Book World Records for being the tallest decorated Christmas tree in the world. And Pope said that the reason he did it, he would never disclose how much it cost him. And it must have cost him millions of dollars at certain points later into its life. 
He said, because it gives me so much pleasure. This story really began six weeks ago on a quiet morning in a forest near Vernonia. These trees belong to the International Paper Company, and again this year, the company has donated one of them to the National Enquirer. Since it boasts the largest circulation of any newspaper in America, it seems appropriate it would decorate and display the world's largest Christmas tree. And after a transcontinental train ride, that's just what this Oregon-grown fir will be. Falling a large tree like this in a dense forest takes a lot of time and special technique. The tree doesn't actually fall, it swings on protective cable. So he had a large Christmas tree put up on the grounds. It was a 45-foot tree, and we put it up and lit it for our employees. And before we knew it, mobs of people started coming. And uh, we had a huge number of people during the Christmas season just stop by and look at it. The next year, we decided to get a bigger tree and add a few displays. And each year, it just grew from that. I get my real kicks watching the people and just walking around among, amongst the crowd, uh, just listening to the comments. And General So Pope Jr. even kind of sounded like a little bit pedo-y at times, talking about how much he loved looking at children in pajamas and their faces lighting up as they would come visit his tree. I particularly like the little kids that come, the little children with their pajamas on, little toddlers, and they really, the, the expressions in their faces are incredible. And this tree wasn't just visited by children all over Florida. People from outside of the country would come and see this tree on Christmas because it became a kind of a national landmark in a way. Going to the Enquirer's front lawn on Christmas Eve with your children and your family became a tradition in the South, in Florida. Not only that, but there were local plane companies where you could rent airplanes where a pilot would take you up into the sky and give you an aerial view of the Christmas tree. Helicopter rides too. I mean, this is one of the sleaziest fucking things ever. A small advertisement from the Palm Beach Post, December 12, 1982, shows a picture of Santa Claus riding on top of a little miniature, looks like a private jet, flying over the National Enquirer Christmas tree. And it says, airplane rides over the National Enquirer Christmas tree, starting at 6 p.m. every night. $15 per person. For more information and reservations, call Lantana Airport. They would take up gigantic advertisements in the newspaper. So those clips you heard earlier of Generoso Pope Jr. acting like it was a surprise that all these people came and gathered, again, is just a total lie. The guy is just a, basically a pathological liar. Kind of Alex Jonesy in a way. Here's a giant, full-page, Palm Beach Post-Times advertisement from 1973 that says, A very special Christmas invitation, especially to children. Life-size displays, including a nativity scene, Santa and his reindeer, an old-fashioned sleigh, St. Nicholas in a storybook setting, and snow barbies in a winter wonderland. And it shows the National Enquirer sign, sort of right next to the Christmas tree in a really sort of blown out black and white photo. A totally sleazy tabloid that was sleazy by any measure, creating what became a family Christmas Eve attraction that drew people from all over the country, that drew thousands of people every year. I mean, what a hilarious little coup on Generoso Pope Jr.'s part. By the time this Christmas is over, hundreds of thousands of people will have visited the Enquirer grounds for a close-up look, and they'll see more than the tree. 
It's surrounded by decorated walkways and lighted displays and an HO scale model railroad system. You know, nobody would even want their children to look at a issue of the Inquirer at the grocery store back in the 1970s. And here you were bringing your kids to this giant lit up Inquirer sign near a gigantic Christmas tree. It's fascinating. And in Florida too, in Lantana, Florida. Now, Burt Reynolds actually came out before he died in an autobiography, went on a little book tour, and bragged about a story where he claims he launched what technically would be the first biological terrorist attack on the Enquirer's headquarters. He actually beat the anthrax murders by about 20 years by doing what could technically be described as the first biological terrorist attack on the Enquirer headquarters. He attacked the Christmas tree. Burt Reynolds dumped horse manure on the Christmas tree. It's not clear what Burt Reynolds was responding to exactly, but if you go back to the late 70s and the early 80s, him and Lonnie Anderson had become quite the focus of not just the tabloids in general, but people's topics of discussion. People were wondering what was going on with him and Lonnie Anderson all the time. They were on the cover almost every other month of the Inquirer when their marriage was doing well, when they hadn't been married yet, when Burt Reynolds maybe was cheating on her, all sorts of stuff continuously. But Burt Reynolds apparently got fed up with one of the stories they ran. It's not clear if he was just you know, fed up with all the stories they ran and he finally hit his limit. But if you look back and look at the Inquirer's stories with him, it sort of kept him in the spotlight continuously. It's kind of a double-edged sword. If some of these celebrities are mad about the Inquirer constantly talking about him, on the other hand, they must have also been secretly happy that the Inquirer was constantly talking about them and making them someone that was constantly in the news. Bad press is good press to a savvy, shrewd talent agent. And on some level, I'm sure some people's agents and some people's press agents were already telling them that it's probably good to be in the Inquirer, even if it's a bad story. And maybe there are already people even at this time who are figuring out ways to, you know, sort of plant quote unquote bad stories about people in the Inquirer on behalf of their clients, you know, these, these talent agents. So apparently Reynolds got so fed up with one of these stories that the Inquirer ran eventually that by, I think, 1979 was the same year that he did this, he hired a helicopter and brought onto the helicopter several bags of horse manure. So they flew over the Inquirer Xmas tree display and dropped the horse shit on top of it. So Burt Reynolds dropped horse shit on a children's Christmas display put up by someone that may or may not be a pedophile, but is definitely the son of someone who was in with the mob and then got all of his money for the Inquirer from the mob, from a guy who was assassinated in a mob hit, Frank Costello. Hilariously, the Inquirer actually writes about this later in 2015. They say, Grinch Burt Reynolds, the night he dumped manure on the Inquirer Christmas tree. Burt Reynolds used his movie star money to drop horse manure on the Inquirer's Christmas tree and tried to ruin Christmas for the local kiddies. While shilling his new autobiography, he revealed how he tried to trash the National Enquirer's beloved Christmas display in the neighboring coastal town of Lantana. At the time, the National Enquirer had its headquarters in Lantana. It was drawing in plenty of Florida residents with an annual holiday display featuring animated figures, 280,000 twinkling lights, and the world's tallest Christmas tree. The legendary Christmas tree also featured a nativity scene, of course, and children adored the 320 railroad cars that ran over 1,700 feet of tracks laid through the winter wonderland. 
but none of that mattered to Bert. I didn't think it was right that they had the largest Christmas tree in the United States, said Bert, telling Dan at the National Enquirer's reporting of his troubled career and love life, had been killing me. Bert then gleefully recalled how he grinched up and tried to ruin Christmas from his Florida ranch. I had about 100 horses at the time, so I took two huge nets and filled them both. And about three in the morning, my ranch foreman and I took the helicopter down to the wonderful National Enquirer, which was just down the street from here in Lantana. I dumped the manure right on top of the tree and it just cascaded down. It was a beautiful sight. Of course, the Enquirer staff didn't let the spoiled movie star have the last laugh and cleaned up the display so that thousands of children could still be moved by the Christmas spirit. A laughing bird, however, remains unrepentant. It just felt so good. So, of course, the Enquirer was doing catch and kill the entire time. They had done it at least since Bob Hope and probably even earlier. But now they were actually doing catch and kill on Bill Cosby in the late 70s and early 80s. And this sort of became one of their more blatant catch and kill operations because Ian Calder was the editor at the time of the Inquirer still. And what happened was they didn't get stories and tips about how Bill Cosby had drugged or raped anybody at the time. These were still relatively hush-hush, even for the Inquirer's reach and their own sources. As far as I know, all they were learning from their sources in Hollywood was that Bill Cosby was basically fucking a lot and fucking a lot of white women, especially too, which in the early 80s could still be seen as, you know, a little bit salacious. You know, race relations were not as evolved as they are now. They were about to run a story about this and Ian Calder actually called Bill Cosby's people, told him about this. Bill Cosby's people apparently even offered money, but instead Ian Calder told them that he wanted to have a exclusive relationship with Cosby, just like the Bob Hope arrangement that Generoso Pope Jr. had set up where Bill Cosby would basically give exclusive interviews in the National Enquirer. And they would all be complete puff pieces to the extent of just absurdity. I mean, zero criticism of Cosby would be in the Enquirer for years and years and years. I don't think until maybe his actual rape charges came in did the Enquirer start running stuff about him again. This catch and kill sort of blackmail, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours relationship lasted for Something like 20 years, it seems like. Maybe Cosby never even paid them a dime. Maybe the Inquirer never paid them a dime. But it was essentially, we know that you're basically a philanderer and you're having all these affairs and we could run a story at any time. But instead of that, why don't you just do stuff for us to help us sell our magazine? People would love Cosby's tips of the day or what to do when you get old and all these kinds of things. And just and as an example of this is this is a Inquire TV commercial that ran on television. It's not an advertisement for anything but their newspaper, but they actually would advertise and have sort of these fancy, very 80s, bombastic commercials to advertise their paper on TV. And they ran a lot of different ones throughout the 1980s. But here's one where they actually mention how they're basically just shilling and promoting Bill Cosby's book. Why isn't grieving Joan Rivers trying to adopt a baby? Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. Why is Sinatra suing Dolly Parton's manager for $10 million? This week's Inquirer tells you. How can you gain power over other people? What are Bill Cosby's views about growing older? It's in his new book, In the Inquirer. What are 26 new ways to beat arthritis pain? Find out in the Inquirer. Over 100 features for people with inquiring minds. Like me. Now, just the concept of catch and kill, I mean, it's... It's definitely interesting. 
and I'm sure other news outlets had done this before, made deals behind the scenes. I mean, a lot of these people are very sleazy operators, for sure. I mean, Hollywood fixers had always existed to work with the press, to clean up their client's image. There was always blackmail, deals being cut. I mean, the press and people in power have always had relationships like this. This is nothing new to the Media Roots radio audience. You know, one famous example is Howard Hughes used to pay a lot of money to take things out of the press about him or even to put things in the press about him. But it's hard to tell exactly where Generoso Pope Jr. learned these techniques of what was essentially a long-term blackmail operation. Was it from the mafia? Was it from his dad's connection to politics? Was it from what Generoso Pope Jr. did in the CIA, psychological warfare in the Cold War? I forgot to tell you that Generoso Pope Jr. actually took over the daily operations of his father's Italian-American newspaper when he was 21 years old, Progresso Italio Americano. And Pope's father didn't just have ties to the mafia. He also had ties to Mussolini, FDR, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, Herbert Hoover, and all of the New York City government at the time. Famous Trump mentor and lawyer for Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohen, credits Generoso Pope Sr. for being the inspiration for his own career. And he said, quote, Gene's father had more to do with my incipient political career than any other single person. But the Inquirer actually changed history, and not just by changing the way the news landscape looked and like sort of moving the needle as far as like what was acceptable, you know, tapping into sort of that niche. You know, because by now I should mention that they had basically become dominant in all grocery store checkout lines. One of the best forms of free advertising that they ever managed to procure for themselves, the National Enquirer actually figured out a way to get themselves in the grocery store checkout counter. And that was sort of the key to their success, other than their vast network of insiders who were leaking things to them that they would actually pay a lot of money to. But Ian Colder of the Enquirer actually, to this day, will still take credit for the Enquirer changing history in the presidential election, taking credit for getting George H.W. Bush Sr. elected president. Because what happened was Gary Hart, who was the front runner at that time in the Democratic primary, and who had the best chances probably of beating George H.W. Bush Sr., there are rumors that he was having an affair. And he stupidly challenged the press he dared them to try to find any proof that this was happening. He went into outright denial mode, and he actually did this on camera. So the Inquirer was actually the first publication to dig up photos of him in what appeared to be an intimate embrace with a very young woman sitting on his lap. And when they ran these pictures on the cover of Inquirer magazine, this instantly killed his chances of becoming president of the United States. Michael Dukakis became the front runner at that point, and he just tanked essentially cleared the way for George H.W. Bush Sr., former CIA director, to get elected president of the United States. They ran virtually no negative stories on him either in the Inquirer, even though by this time there were already rumors going around Florida, and this is all written up in actually a really interesting, very in-depth Daily Coast article called Jeb Bush, Oliver North, and the Murder of CIA Drug Smuggler Barry Seal in 1986. 
The Inquirer might have run some things about Barry Seal, but I highly doubt they actually connected them directly to the Bush family at the time. So it does seem like the Inquirer was already sort of clearing the way for the Bush family's bizarre criminal activity in Florida. Because a Daily Cost article claims that Jeb Bush and George W. Bush were already sort of involved in drug trafficking in the 1980s in Florida, using some of the connections they got through their father through Iran-Contra. Generoso Pope Jr. passed away in 1988, around the same time that George H.W. Bush won the election. And in the early to the mid-90s, the Inquirer's new editor was an American dude, a much younger guy than Ian Calder, a hardline Scottish cutthroat editor from before, named Steve Coz, C-O-Z. And it was around the 90s, actually, when Donald Trump and people in Donald Trump's inner circle started to generate their own useful symbiotic relationship with the National Enquirer. And as I was saying before, someone like Burt Reynolds, for a time, even for him, he must have thought on some level that bad press was good press, even if it was talking about problems in his and Lonnie Anderson's marriage. As long as they weren't too personal or too close to home, then in a way it actually helped his career. And it seems that Trump and people close to Trump learned from this model very early on. There was a famous National Enquirer cover from 1993 called Donald and Marla's Wedding Album, Four Pages of Photos. But basically this is just a total puff piece on Donald Trump. For some reason, Trump gave exclusive access to the Enquirer to take as many photos as they wanted to of their wedding. And they ran a four-page spread like puff piece on his wedding to Marla Maples. But this doesn't really mean much. I mean, sir, he gave a exclusive over to them. And this is long before David Pecker was involved in buying the exclusive rights to Karen McDougal's story for the Inquirer to shut that down, to catch and kill the story of him having an affair with Karen McDougal. But Donald Trump sort of enjoyed a relationship with the Inquirer where they would run sometimes, you know, stories about him having a rocky marriage or impossibly cheating or whatever. And he seemed to enjoy this and sort of thrive on it. And in a way, he seemed to understand, similar to people like Burt Reynolds and other celebrities, that as long as he's continued to be mentioned in the Enquirer, even sometimes negatively, bad press is good press. But Donald Trump also took it a step further than some of these other celebrities who maybe had already realized that. He actually would call into the Enquirer with tips, pretending to be other people who knew Donald Trump or who knew other celebrities. In time, some of these reporters who would get these tips from people that were actually Donald Trump just calling and saying he was someone else, not even trying to disguise his voice, they actually started to record his voice. They would record these calls because they thought it was so ridiculous. They knew it was Trump calling them, but they still played along with it. It was almost like a game. And Trump would continue to do this for pretty much his rest of his career. He even did it with petty things like rumors that he had asked Selma Hayek to date him and that she turned him down, he would then call in tabloids and say, you know what, no, no, that's actually not true. I'm close to Trump, and I know for a fact that she's the one who wanted to date him, and he turned her down. And all this really shows is just how much of a savvy PR man Trump was to sort of bolster his own career and basically create an artificial celebrity out of himself by working the tabloids and by cravingly just embracing the tabloids to the hilt probably really more than any other celebrity had done before because Trump wasn't really necessarily a celebrity. He was always trying to make himself one. And early on in his career, he was invited on shows like 
the David Letterman show and things like that in the early 80s. But as the 80s went on and as the 90s arrived, he was kind of a has-been. But this is sort of when he decided to fully lean into the grocery store tabloid market. Because he was losing the attention of like the mainstream media and sort of the pop culture at the time. They kind of lost interest in him. And this is the course that he decided to take. And it was a smart move. And I think that this sort of defined the way he would do things for the rest of his career, including how he even became president. But it's just hilarious that he has no shame whatsoever to just call these tabloids as a tipster pretending to be someone other than himself, not even making any attempt whatsoever to disguise his own voice. And when you listen to recordings of it, you're just like, wow, this guy is fucking insane. Holy shit. Tape recording of a 1991 interview conducted by a People magazine reporter with somebody identifying himself as John Miller, supposedly a spokesman for Donald Trump. Somebody that knows, and I think somebody that he trusts and likes. But the reporter soon became suspicious John Miller was actually Trump himself, bragging about his own exploits with women. He's somebody that has a lot of options, and frankly, uh, you know, he gets called by everybody. He gets called by everybody in the book in terms of women. The supposed spokesman described how Trump was living with Marla Maples, but not ready to settle down. He didn't want to make a commitment. He really thought it was too soon. He's living with Marla, and he's got three other girlfriends. He even bragged that superstars like Madonna wanted to date Trump. Well, she called and wanted to go out with him, that I can tell you. And I don't want to stay on Trump too long because this is not what this episode is about. Even though Trump's inner circle in some way does play into the 2001 anthrax attacks and the subsequent cover-up, including figures like Newt Gingrich, Rudy Giuliani, Michael Flynn's co-writer Michael Ledeen, Steve Bannon's favorite guest to have on from the science community, Stephen Hatfield, and Mike Pence, anthrax victim. But anyways... I'll just finish this part of the Trump Inquirer story by saying that Roger Stone did something actually quite hilarious. I didn't realize that Roger Stone might have actually done the same thing that it appears Trump is doing in some of these recordings. Do you hear how Trump is actually saying that he's living with Marla Maples, but that he has three other girlfriends directly to a tabloid, People magazine? Well, if that's what Trump was doing with the tabloids back then, are we to actually take at face value that someone leaked to the tabloids that Roger Stone was a swinger to ruin Bob Dole's campaign because he was working as a Bob Dole advisor at the time? Are we to believe that someone did that to help ruin Roger? Or is it possible that Roger actually did it to himself because he wanted the attention? Maybe he even wanted to get some more ass. And instead of just posting his swinger ad in a swingers magazine, hey, I can get my swinger ad in the Inquirer and then damn, I can get a lot of ass that way, potentially, or do whatever cuckoldry that he was into. One of the ads that he placed in a Miami Swingers magazine was about wanting someone that was hung like a horse to fuck his Cuban girlfriend in front of him. So it's just so crazy how many of these people that seem to have pioneered the meme magic era by calling their political opponents cucks were literal cuckolds like Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. Anyways, the fact that this was seen at the time as sort of like someone trying to take down Bob Dole is sort of fascinating because you can find plenty of quotes now from Roger Stone saying that he thought Bob Dole was going to lose and at a certain point he thought he was totally toast and then he was just a bad candidate. So if he thought that, then it's kind of a great way to go out and get himself on the map. He's Roger Stone. He's already putting himself in Swinger magazines with his photo. 
So you think that he got hurt by the Inquirer running a double page issue with photos of him and his partner swinger ads talking all about how they're swingers and they fuck a lot. I mean, of course, this is Roger Stone probably loved this shit. And this might have been one of his early shrewd ways to get himself more of a boost just to put his name out there more. Because, yeah, it looked bad for Bob Dole, but in a way it kind of looked cool for Roger Stone. I mean, fun fact, you know that guy who was caught jerking off on Zoom, Jeffrey Tubin, the CNN pundit? Well, he actually wrote a really sleazy article back in, I think, the early 2000s or late 90s about how he went to a sex club with Roger Stone. I know they walked around this sex club wearing only a towel together. I mean, Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying Jesus Christ because there's anything wrong with sex clubs. I'm saying that because Jeffrey Tubin and Roger Stone at Sex Club, imagine how fucking horrific that would be. Fuck. But I'm getting distracted by the tabloidy part of this. The Roger Stone cuckold swinger part of this. The really important part of this is it seems like the Inquirer actually knocked Bob Dole out of the race, partly. This really did blow up in his face and became a pretty big scandal losing stone like this. It really didn't help him maintain any sort of semblance of a conservative moral majority image. So what does this mean? Does this mean Roger Stone was actually actively trying to get Clinton to win that election? Did the Inquirer actually effectively get George H.W. Bush Sr. elected and then Clinton elected against Dole? It seems like they did. And it does seem to imply that a lot of the later era of Roger Stone going hard against the Clintons is part of some kind of theatrical thing. I mean, that's not a surprise to anyone listening. The Clintons attended Trump's wedding. But this pretty much ends the backstory of the Enquirer and how it was a useful instrument for certain political operators. If the military-industrial complex and the CIA and these entities had already gotten their tentacles into mainstream media, because mainstream media would then influence the public, then I think we should also consider the possibility that the military-industrial complex or the tentacles from various intel agencies perhaps had also gotten into the tabloid circuit because that also had a big influence. It might sound silly to suggest, but why not? But I do think at this point, at the very least, we need to consider the Inquirer and other tabloids like it that had sort of come up in its shadow sort of represented its own power block in the United States, a media power block that was going above and beyond mainstream media in a lot of ways and was running stuff they would not run and represented an influential power block. And because of that, I do think the U.S. government and various intel forces and political forces would plant stories in it or whatever. So let's get into the era of American Media Incorporated. David Pecker, this guy that I discussed on the last podcast who later becomes the CEO of American Media Incorporated, he was first known in the industry of publishing and news as being the big wig over at Hashit, which is the original, I think is the publishing arm version of CBS. It's like the larger umbrella company. In the New York Times back in 1992, there's an article called Hashet Acquires Metropolitan Home. And it's about a deal that David J. Pecker, president and chief executive of Hachette Magazines, said he had acted on Friday after Straight Arrow Publishers, which publishes Rolling Stone, U.S. Men's Journal, confirmed that it was negotiating to acquire Metropolitan Home. So he was already being written up in business journals in the early 90s. He was already known about as this bigwig in media, but he was mostly just known as like a, a money man in media who would do these really good deals. 
these smart business deals. Now, American Media Inc. was a company that had existed in the early 80s, but it really wasn't known about until they bought Star Magazine in the early 1990s. And this was pretty much the first big get of theirs that actually put them on the map as a company. And it's unclear exactly when they purchased the Inquirer, but it does seem like the Inquirer was purchased right before David Pecker got there. In the very late 90s is when David Pecker, the CEO of Hachette Media, the giant CBS umbrella publishing corporation that runs all these magazines, gets hired as CEO at American Media Inc. And he conducts this deal to basically consolidate all the tabloids, all under the AMI umbrella, like I discussed on the last episode. That includes The Sun, Weekly World News, all the trashiest ones, The Globe, pretty much any tabloid that was American at the time, AMI purchased it and made it all this streamlined entity all under their umbrella. This multi-hundred million dollar deal seems to have been facilitated by a man named Roger Altman. Roger Altman is actually an early version of one of these guys who comes from the financial industry high up in Wall Street, who went in and out of different administrations. He was the assistant secretary of the treasury in the Carter administration and the deputy secretary of the treasury in the Clinton administration. And he ended up resigning from the Clinton administration in summer of 1994 because of the Whitewater scandal. But basically this guy comes from the Lehman Brothers. He was there in the late 60s. As he got richer and richer, He eventually joined the Blackstone Group in 1987. The Blackstone Group used to be one of the largest investment firms in the United States. It's helped prop up companies like Northrop Grumman, CBS Corporation. Roger Altman joined the Blackstone Group as vice chairman and head of its mergers and acquisitions. The Blackstone Group actually has a funny history too with investing in bizarre real estate that's been involved in infamous incidents. From Wikipedia, it says that Blackstone Real Estate Advisors, its real estate affiliate, bought the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. in July 1998 for $39 million. In October 2000, Blackstone acquired the mortgage for World Trade Center Building 7 from the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association. But it wasn't until Roger Altman leaves the Clinton administration and forms his own investment bank advisory firm, he calls it, and makes himself chairman, called Evercore Partners, did he really become known as this very big power player. At one time, its investment banking advisory arm boasted having $1.5 trillion in announced transactions. And Roger Altman was the guy who facilitated this AMI buyout. AMI had only previously owned the Inquirer and the Star magazine. But now they were about to own pretty much every single tabloid. And it was because of Evercore Partners and Roger Altman that this deal was able to take place. Now, Roger Altman personally wanted to do this to have a controlling stake in the company, him personally. And he did. Roger Altman is also on the steering committee of the Bilderberg Group, which if you're a listener of Media Roots Radio and you're familiar with deep politics, you probably already know what that is. He also served as an advisor for John Kerry, Hillary Clinton in 2008. And when Obama was still president, Obama considered Roger Altman for the role of replacing Larry Summers, but he ended up going with someone else instead. Now, because Roger Altman has a controlling stake in AMI, he now picks 
his own personal choice for CEO, a Mr. David Pecker, a man who at the time was only personally worth something around two to three million dollars, who now, relatively speaking, is only worth twelve million dollars or so. He's not what you would call an oligarch, a media oligarch like Rupert Murdoch or like Jeff Bezos. But he really wanted to make his mark, and he does. Two of the nation's liveliest tabloids, the National Enquirer and the Star, are being taken over by new owners who want to extend the well-known titles beyond the supermarket. Evercore Capital Partners, which was co-founded by former Deputy Treasury Secretary Roger Altman, put together the $767 million deal for the Enquirer's parent company, American Media. To run American Media, Evercore recruited David Pecker, who has resigned as chief executive officer of the mainstream magazine group Hachette Filipacci. We're planning on launching a, a teen uh, Enquirer magazine. We're planning to launch uh, Enquirer Espanol, very similar to what People has done with teen people and, and Espanol people. Together, the National Enquirer and the Star sell more than 4 million copies and claim more than 20 million readers a week. The new owners say they will enhance, not change, the editorial focus. The new owners of the National Enquirer and the Star will launch a $50 million promotional campaign to attract new readers and more mainstream advertisers. And by taking the publications private, they can expand at their own pace without having to worry about impatient shareholders. Now, just some other strange things about Evercore Partners. This is from the Argyle Forum which apparently hosted some kind of financial event in 2008, although the website's down now. This is a quote from it about Michael J. Price from Evercore Partners. Mr. Price is responsible for all technology and telecom transactions at Evercore and previously co-founded First Mark Communications Europe. Michael J. Price previously sat on the boards of three public companies, Spectrosite, Amdocs, and PeoplePC. Well, if you've been following the stuff that I've done on the Israeli art students, and you've been following previous episodes of podcasts, specifically our 9-11 ones, you already be familiar with Amdocs, that the DEA, in their leaked memo about the Israeli art students, also talk about how a company named Amdocs, an Israeli-owned company that has connections to the Israeli government, they believe that Amdocs was actually collaborating with a network of MDMA traffickers in the United States that were basically networks also run by Israeli nationals. So the DEA actually accuses Amdocs of being some kind of Israeli front company to run some kind of drug trafficking operations in the U.S. And Michael J. Price from Evercore Partners sat on their board. If Michael J. Price wrote this bio for himself for the event he was speaking at, then maybe he didn't get the memo that Amdocs had been blown and that it was a, probably a bad thing to put on your credits list. David Pecker also was the guy who started George Magazine with John F. Kennedy Jr., a magazine that was really hyped up and was considered this really edgy and sort of adult-themed magazine. It's had some you know, sexiness to it. it. had that Cindy Crawford dressed as George Washington on the cover. There's plenty of videos, actually, you can find of David Pecker and John F. Kennedy Jr. promoting this magazine together. It was hatched by the both of them. Although David Pecker was more there as the PR guy for it. He was trying to take credit for its founding, but he really was just there to oversee it when he was with Hachette. This is before David Pecker became the CEO of AMI. There's a man named Michael J. Berman who actually 
co-founded George Magazine with JFK Jr. Michael J. Berman and JFK Jr. ended up having a famous falling out that was written about in the press. And Berman sort of quit out of anger towards his co-founder of George. He dissolved his partnership with Kennedy, sold all his George stock, and immediately got a promotion from David Pecker to head up a new division at Hachette. But why did I even bring up this other guy, Michael J. Berman? Well, Michael J. Berman is actually employed by Galaxy Ventures. But what is Galaxy Ventures? Well, Galaxy Ventures LLC has as its vice president someone named Hank Cohn. Hank Cohn was employed by Michael D. Farkas. Michael D. Farkas owns corporations Titan Corp and Skyway, which you may already be familiar with if you've read a lot of Daniel Hopsicker. In Daniel Hopsicker's work, he alleges that Michael D. Farkas is tied to far-right Likud Israeli political parties and the Mossad, and may have even used some of his own airplanes to help the CIA do rendition. He's also an investor in right-wing Israeli settler activist groups. And his Skyway aircraft company is also tied to Huffman Aviation and Wallace J. Hillard. Skyway aircraft planes were confiscated in Mexico for carrying a shitload of cocaine. And Michael Farkas actually employs someone else who has an odd tie to 9-11, a Lebanese-American named Makram Chams, who owned a check-cashing business in Venice, Florida, where Mohammed Atta went to cash a $70,000 check that was sent from Dubai shortly before 9-11. So I know he just threw a lot of stuff at you, But basically, a guy who knows David Pecker personally and who co-founded George Magazine with J.F. Kennedy Jr. actually worked for a company called Galaxy Ventures that was run by someone very close to Michael D. Farkas. And Michael D. Farkas has bizarre connections to the Israeli government and 9-11 and Huffman Aviation. And you could find Michael D. Farkas actually now as an input on the Florida 2001 attacks event map under the tab CIA Black Ops Spook Activity and Locations. This is a tab that's always been there on the map, and that's where you'll find a bunch of addresses for Michael D. Farkas. He's got a lot of properties in Florida. You can see them on the map right there. David Pecker said, If everything is going the way it goes now, we are looking to break even in year three, he told the New York Times in 1996, only four months after George's. 280-page debut. But three years later, things don't look so rosy. According to the Media Industry Newsletter, as of November 1998, Georgia's total ad pages were down 5.21% from 1997. And ad pages in the December 1998 issue had dipped by 20% compared to the year before. John F. Kennedy Jr. and David Pecker are actually really close during this time. And this is probably the most, like, cutting-edge or, you know, trendy thing that David Pecker seems to have been a part of. And he was really, really, you know, this was sort of his baby. He really would personally uh, promote this everywhere. He really wanted to take credit for being behind its inception. He didn't want it to be seen as like this corporate thing. Now, just another weird 9-11 hijacker tie-in here. There's a JFK Jr. who ended up dying in a plane crash in 1999. And this is uh, something that DJ Thermal Detonator who's helped with some research on the podcast before, is what he said on Twitter. 
He said, and funny enough, JFK Jr. went to Flight Safety International School in Vero Beach, Florida, where Flight 93 hijacker Saeed Al-Ghamdi took simulator courses. It was reported after 9-11 that others detained and thought to have attempted further hijackings also had certificates from that school. As I already discussed on the previous episode, David Pecker struck a business deal with the founder of Muscle and Fitness magazine, who ran his own media empire, the guy who brought Arnold Schwarzenegger to the United States and discovered him. He struck a business deal with him to purchase all of his magazines. And this basically put David Pecker in business with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you could actually give David Pecker credit and AMI credit for winning Arnold the governor's seat by clearing all the tabloids of any negative stories about Arnold as he ran for governor, even though they had ran negative stories about him before. Pecker reflects on his relationship with JFK Jr. later in an Esquire magazine profile, which I'll read you more of later. But it says, Without Kennedy, David Pecker would have remained a faceless CEO. The tabloid king himself readily admits this. I don't think Hachette or myself would have had notoriety if it wasn't for John. And if I go back in my 25 years of publishing experience, I'd have to say that my years with Kennedy were most enjoyable. Pecker's expression brightens when he talks about George's founder and editor-in-chief. He wants everyone to know that he considered Kennedy a close friend. In the August 3, 1999 issue of The Inquirer, shortly after the plane crash, Pecker actually wrote a mawkish editor's letter titled, My Friend, John F. Kennedy Jr. Many deem this the height of hypocrisy. I felt we had a pretty good relationship, says Pecker, and I was very saddened over the accident. It was a very difficult situation for me personally. He stops abruptly and adds this. I felt bad that I wasn't invited to his funeral. This sentimentality is laughable among many of Kennedy's business associates. In the beginning, Kennedy was grateful Hachette greenlighted George. To show his appreciation, he became part of Pecker's traveling dog and pony show, making appearances at sales meetings to promote not just George, but Hachette in general. He never turned down one of Pecker's requests to put in a public appearance. David had a technique that he used on John, which was to make him feel that he ought to be grateful, says one Kennedy clan friend, and John was always so fearful that he wasn't grateful enough. He never wanted special treatment and was always a mensch. Kennedy's goodwill toward Pecker eventually wore thin. Pecker fired George employees and refused to replace them. Then the magazine's budgets were cut without informing Kennedy. The financial disputes caused friction between Kennedy and Pecker. John left two long messages on my machine saying that David and he had this fight about staff firings that had occurred while he was away without his consent, and it turned into war reveals one friend. He later said to me, sobbing through the whole conversation, that he thought David was his friend, but then realized that wasn't true, and that he was an evil man. Considering the insensitive things Pecker has to say about JFK Jr., it's difficult to believe the two men were ever friends. I told JFK Jr., you could buy this magazine if you wanted. You know he had the money, but it's very difficult for the Kennedy family to go into their pockets for anything. I told John that dogs and presidents don't do well on covers, but we did the Wegman thing anyways, and it was our lowest seller. Trying to change John's mind was like turning the Intrepid on the Hudson. Very difficult, very slow and painful. He had a hot temper too. He'd just blow up. 
The Inquirer milked the plane crash for over a year with cover lines like, Carolyn saw JFK die. JFK, heartbreaking autopsy secret. And his last words were not going to make it. And one thing I found by looking back at older American Media Inc. tabloids leading up to 9-11 is right after George W. Bush got elected, it seemed as if David Pecker used the entire AMI media empire to push like pro-George W. Bush propaganda. And not just pro-Bush propaganda, but also like neocon propaganda. I mean, it's sycophantically pro-Bush to the point where it's really actually strange compared to how they would talk about President Clinton. Even though I said earlier that it did seem like they were relatively hands-off George H.W. Bush, I found a couple old inquires where they talked about potential affairs that he had. But this time, it seemed like as soon as George W. Bush got into office, and even before, actually, it was pretty pro-Bush. And those tabloids that were targeted specifically to elderly people like The Sun, where Robert Stevens actually worked, those ones that by the late 90s were pushing all Dead Sea Scrolls, Nostradamus, biblical prophecies type stuff. There's actually a Sun issue from late 2000 that says that George W. Bush is going to double Social Security within one year. You know, that maybe sounds really silly, but reading from one of my own physical copies of The Sun, March 6, 2001, The President's Secret Plan to Enrich Your Future. President George W. Bush has launched a secret plan to put the skyrocketing federal budget surplus back into the hands of Americans by doubling Social Security payments within the next year. My sources inside the Bush White House tell me that once his Social Security increase passes muster in Congress, he will move quickly to enact as much of his tax plan as he can. In 1999, a few years after AMI acquired the Inquirer, it said it was launching a $10 million makeover. And this is sort of when David Pecker's influence was not well-liked around the Inquirer itself because he tried to force sort of this corporate aesthetic hand on it to make the cover look a little more glossy, to make the size of the font bigger, to make it just look a little more like a corporate newspaper. And just aesthetically speaking, it just seemed like the wrong move for the paper, people thought. And it wasn't just the cosmetic makeover of the paper that Pecker wanted that was causing huge problems. From a Daily Beast article called How David Pecker Built His Tabloid Empire on Fear, the author of this Daily Beast article claims that this was originally made for Esquire magazine all the way back in 2001, before 9-11. And this author, Renee Chun, says she spent the next few months writing and reporting only to have the story spiked. And part of the reason this story got nixed, obviously, is because American Media Inc. owned the National Enquirer. So she was basically writing an article about her own CEO that was extremely critical and they wouldn't run it. She even sat down and interviewed him and wrote a very unflattering portrayal of him. But the Daily Beast, I guess, decided to run it in March 11th, 2019, because of the Trump-Karen McDougal scandal. But from her article, she quotes a lot of different AMI employees anonymously, and that's because of the non-disclosure agreements. The first quote says, the Inquirer is looking more like in style every day. They're even using the same typeface. I don't know why everybody has such a mania for making everything upscale. It's ridiculous. As if making everything into Hermes is the answer. The ads for dolls and mail-order tents, 
that come in 50 different colors for $3.99. That's the brand identity of the fucking thing. It's part of the entertainment value of the magazine. Some tabloid journalists aren't too crazy about Pecker's new tab makeover, especially the new emphasis on breaking Washington news. People don't buy the tabloids for political stories, one reporter scoffs. Three things sell in the tabloids. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Who's going with who? Who's sleeping with who? Who's marrying who? Who's playing around with who? Who's divorcing who? The new AMI dress code has not been well received either. Intended to spruce up the appearance of the company's workforce, Pecker has outlawed the default work uniform of many Floridians. Shorts and sneakers. Not wearing tennis shoes isn't going to make me write any better, gripes one tabloid reporter. This is a hot climate. You have to feel comfortable. Another editor agreed the dress code was a good idea, but that the boss should dress less casually himself before he demands his employees do the same. Unless he has a meeting, David wears slacks, a v-neck sweater, gold chain, and loafers, no socks, says one former editor. Coming from the British tabloids where everyone wears a suit and tie, I was appalled when I saw this. It's a very Tony Soprano look. Some insist the relaxed wardrobe is a better fit for Pecker's personality. A former employee says Pecker likes to project a tough guy image. We threw a magazine party in New York at Lava, and David was rocking around with three security people like he's Mr. Mafia Guy. He loved it. But the cosmetic and visual image of the workplace was just the tip of the iceberg of employees' complaints when he came on board. David Pecker actually made a point to have a very lavish party. He went to Florida and threw a gigantic party for everybody and wanted to personally meet all the executives, the editors, and the top employees. And at this meeting, other than the Enquirer, one of their biggest flagship magazines, The Star, he told the Star staff that they could stay in New York like they had been this whole time. But he completely reneged on his promise. And from this Daily Beast article, it says, According to former Star employees interviewed for this story, it was Pecker's volatile temper and the shaky job security at AMI that made booking a one-way ticket to Florida a dubious proposition. We all felt that if we moved down there, we'd soon be on the unemployment line. David Pecker, with no notice whatsoever, served a piece of paper to all the Star employees telling them that he was relocating all company operations to AMI's headquarters in Lantana, Florida. Of the 61 workers in the Star headquarters in New York, only three made the move to Lantana. None of them of any consequence in the Star hierarchy. A receptionist, a deputy photo editor, and an art department assistant. Due to employee non-disclosure agreements, most AMI sources in this story are anonymous. People are afraid Pecker's either going to have a heart attack or hurt somebody, says another editor who chose resignation over relocation. The ravings, decision-making, and firings are totally irrational. Another AMI refugee only manages a nervous chuckle when asked to describe one of Pecker's famous temper tantrums. The guy just curses the crap out of people. The screams have been heard across the building. There's also banging of fists and the classic clearing the desk with the arm thing. That Pecker's social skills are less than ideal doesn't surprise one former business partner. I was always nice to the people below me because I thought those were the people who made the company run. David never got that. He was a big ass-kisser going up. He would come to me once a day with some good things he'd done, but then I'd hear that he had these guys locked in a room seven days a week working on numbers. Some suggest that Pecker derives pleasure from these tirades. 
He likes to have people walking around in fear, says one former AMI secretary. He gets off on it. When he hollered at one National Enquirer executive, she cried. So much, she resigned. Later, he was bragging about the fact that she went through a box of tissues at their meeting. One former Star editor puts it simply, I was just thankful to be out of there. The first issue of the Star under Peckert's stewardship hit the supermarkets in May 1999. That debut issue included a controversial story suggesting that the murder of Joan Benet Ramsey was her own brother Burke, who was only nine at the time of the killing. And this resulted in them having to print a retraction settling to the Ramsey family for $25 million after they sued AMI. Now, David Pecker seemed to carry himself sort of like a wannabe mafia don. He would wear gold chains. He would have on a giant Rolex. He would dress like a mafia guy. David Pecker also was packing heat when he was at the AMI building in Lantana, Florida. It became sort of an office-wide rumor that don't make David too upset because if he has a tantrum, he does have a gun and he might shoot you. And he later laughs about it when this Esquire magazine interviewer asks him about carrying a gun. He hasn't carried a gun in years. He wants to get a permit again, but it's not because he has some kind of wannabe mafia fantasy. So he seems self-aware enough to know this is the image that he projects. It's sort of Trumpian in a way. And as Gumby for Christ pointed out to me, that when Pecker was at Hachette, he was paying a monthly consulting fee to a guy who owned an Italian restaurant just so he could go eat there whenever he wanted. I mean, that's absolutely fucking ridiculous. Sounds like a Frank Underwood house of cards kind of thing to do. But here's more about David Pecker's volatile personality and temper from this Daily Beast article. The abrupt departure of so many employees raised questions. Was Evercore having second thoughts about their CEO? Were their tabloids imploding? Was David Pecker in over his head? The answers vary greatly depending on the source. Because keep in mind, this article was actually written at a time when, after this giant media purchase headed by David Pecker, these tabloids all started doing poorly. The numbers just were not coming in. And there seemed to be a lot of hatred and animosity towards David Pecker. I mean, the amount of employees that left was insane. According to one AMI employee, Pecker's hardline management style has resulted in absolute chaos. He adds, morale is very low because Pecker has no knowledge of the tabloids and he's a loose cannon. If this guy gets hit by a truck, people will bring out the party hats. My father would be rolling over in his grave if he could see what is happening today in the tabloid business, says Paul Pope the son of Generoso Pope Jr. Unlike Pecker, my father paid big salaries to get the best editors. He wasn't a bean counter or a corporate bigwig with an MBA. Throughout the interview, Pecker tugs at his French cuffs like a Vegas pit boss with a nervous tick. I understand that people are upset, he says. I've always seen myself as a student of change, and with change, there's not a lot of popularity, he smiles. I feel the results will speak for themselves. And then the interview sort of ends with a bizarre passage where it seems like David Pecker has a lot of paranoia that he carries around with him. It's not just that he keeps himself armed. It says that he takes the same safety precautions that mobsters do too. After an office coffee machine dispensed a bitter pot of joe, he was convinced somebody was trying to murder his employees. I think a night security guard had poured the coffee through the machine again to reheat it, says one of the alleged targets. David had the water tested to make sure it wasn't poisoned. 
We had round-the-clock security guards after that incident. There was also a car bomb rumor that was credible enough to require an investigation. Now the AMI boss doesn't get behind the wheel until the underside of his car has been checked with mirrors. Since a threatening letter arrived on his desk last month, Pecker has been under 24-7 security. Basically what he did was he just made it almost like a more watered-down version of what it had previously been and marketed almost like more towards old people, not just like the demographic that it had previously been of people from the ages of like 25 to 50. Now it seemed to be actually being purposely marketed towards people of a little bit older of an age demographic, whereas the star was maybe more targeted towards a slightly younger demographic. The Sun also went from being basically the competitor of Weekly World News, doing aliens, UFO, Loch Ness monster stories all throughout its history. Bob Stevens was working at The Sun before AMI bought it. But once AMI bought both Weekly World News and The Sun, Weekly World News was always sort of a competitor of The Sun doing like alien, Loch Ness monster, Bigfoot type stories. And now The Sun stopped doing those kinds of stories because... Why have two papers doing those exact kind of stories? And went more towards doing Dead Sea Scrolls, Nostradamus, biblical prophecies, holy war, like health cure type stuff that seemed to be more marketed almost specifically towards senior citizens. So the Wall Street Journal article is pretty funny. It says, in makeover, National Enquirer promises its stories will be true. No more Bigfoot, UFOs, or aliens. Well, I mean, that was never really the problem, and the Enquirer never ran stories about Bigfoot or aliens, so it's almost like a weird fake narrative. I mean, the real problem with this rebrand is that it seemed like they were watering the original like tabloids that they had bought down even more to like more of just like a craven, you know, marketing, specific targeted marketing demo. That's what the actual makeover at the Enquirer seemed like it did. Because that's around the same time when they started running these more like patriotic pro-Bush stories, even in the sun, like the one I just read you. You could really see a ramp up actually starting in the mid-90s, going to the late 90s, kind of really starting with AM right-wing talk radio and Clear Channel, but really coming sort of full spectrum. It was Murdoch Media, The Daily News, The New York Post, Fox News, Wall Street Journal. Then he had all this sort of neocon media, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, like Weekly Standard. But I think you really have to look at this and remember what the Bush era was like. AMI, just like Murdoch, consolidated a bunch of influential papers. And like Fox News, they put out a unanimously pro-Bush message. And just like the consolidated clear channel networks who had consolidated local AM radio for a unanimous pro-Bush message. Even on the music channels, they basically stopped playing the Dixie Chicks because of the clear channel consolidation. And now you have David Pecker of AMI doing essentially the same thing with his tabloids. I mean, was this all part of some larger Bush administration coup? I mean, they did steal the election after all, and they some of the people in the administration probably were involved in the 9-11 attack. So, I mean, I guess this is funny to think about it when you can really get this conspiratorial about it, but what if this was all supposed to happen long before they got into office? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but this consolidation is just very, very powerful. Now, just going back a little bit, before the AMI consolidation, but after the Enquirer moved to Florida 
Some of their competitors, like The Globe, for example, which was being published in Canada, decided to move their headquarters down to Florida in the mid-1980s, which they did. And they moved their headquarters down to Broken Sound Boulevard in Boca Raton, Florida, in what was originally called the Globe Media Incorporated Building. They bought the building outright, and they did this to sort of compete with the Inquirer on its own turf. This is before the Inquirer was even purchased by AMI. And by the mid-1990s, the Globe was now publishing several other tabloids of its own out of Florida, including The Sun. Robert Stevens, at this time, was working for Globe Media as the art editor for The Sun. If you're old enough to remember The Sun on grocery store racks in the 1990s, you've probably actually seen some of Robert Stevens' work in the form of mid-1990s pre-Photoshop software editing. But Robert Stevens originally worked for The Inquirer, under its original publisher, Generoso Pope Jr. So at some point, Stevens stopped working for the Inquirer and started working for Globe Media. When it got bought out by AMI, American Media Inc., with CEO David Pecker, bought the building as well from Globe Media Incorporated. Along with buying all of their tabloids and consolidating all of that, they also bought the building. So their own competitor that had basically moved into a building to compete with them, the Inquirer originally, had been all consolidated under the American Media Inc. umbrella. And now American Media itself, their entire umbrella company, was going to move into this building that had been previously owned by the Globe. And this is from the South Florida Sun Sentinel from December 6, 1985. It says, After two and a half years of renting space in West Palm Beach, the editorial and marketing divisions of Globe Communications Corp. have a building to call their own in the Arvida Park of Commerce. Globe Communications, based in Montreal, publishes three weekly tabloid papers. The lead publication, The Globe, The National Examiner, and Sun. In its Palm Beach County location, Globe Communications gathers news, sets, type, and prepares photography for delivery to its printing plants in Montreal. About 150 people work at the Boca Raton building. The Globe competes with the Latana-based National Enquirer and the New York-based Star for the supermarket shoppers' dollars. Globe moved into the company's new three-story, 77,000-square-foot building in Boca Raton. The Palm Beach County School Board took over some of the Globe's old space. Now, it looks like Bob Stevens, the first anthrax victim of the anthrax murders, was working at the Sun all the way as far back as 1991, looking through the old issues that I purchased. Mike Irish, the managing editor of The Sun, doesn't look like he started working there until around 1999, or at least he's not mentioned in the credits. Now, it also seems like Bob Stevens' name gets removed from the credits list at the beginning of each Sun issue, starting with AMI's purchase. Him as art editor, as he's sometimes credited on The Sun, or photo editor is no longer listed. Instead, his colleagues Bobby Bender and Roz Suss are listed on the credits only, starting with the AMI version of The Sun. Maureen Stevens would provide the backstory for this later in an Inquirer issue and a Star issue on October 30th. They both came out on the same day. Robert Stevens had retired, actually, and no longer wanted to work for AMI. And whether it had anything to do with the AMI buyout or not, it's unknown. But around the year 2000, he retired. 
this is a part of the story that's a mystery to me is what compelled him to come back to work. He had already been working under Mike Irish, who apparently was actually his friend. So it wasn't like he seemed to have retired from the sun because he didn't like his boss, Mike Irish, the managing editor of the sun. And by the way, Mike Irish's wife showed two of the 9-11 hijackers apartments. And I talk about this extensively in several episodes of Media Roots Radio over the last couple of months. But something compels Robert Stevens to actually come out of retirement and start working for AMI and The Sun again in August of 2001. So he only seems to retire for about a year. And something compelled Stevens to come back and go back into that building for work every day. And he died of anthrax two months later. So really, if he had stayed in retirement, he would probably still be alive. But what's the deal with Mike Irish? Well, I learned a little bit more about Mike Irish through his obituary, because Mike Irish actually passed away in 2019. I'll just read you his obituary, unedited, because the whole thing is very interesting. And sadly, it looks like at some point he divorced Gloria Irish, because it says he is survived by his wife, Birdier Barbary Irish. And it says, friends will be gathering at the Blue Anchor Pub at 4 p.m. November 7th to toast his memory. Now, this is an interesting choice of location because apparently this was Bob Stevens' hangout spot too. And this is where Bob Stevens' co-workers came after his funeral to commemorate his death. So I wonder if Mike Irish, his boss, was at that post-funeral little event at the Blue Anchor Pub almost 20 years prior. But his obituary says, Mike was born in Berry Street, Mary, Lancashire, England, on October 9th, 1938. He joined the Royal Air Force in 1958 and left in 1960 with the rank of senior aircraftman. He worked as a young reporter for local papers before moving to the journalistic hub of Fleet Street and making a reputation among London's hard-living newshounds. By 1971, he was set to run the Ulster edition of the Daily Mirror. But when the IRA blew up the paper's Belfast printing facility, he left the UK for a job at the National Enquirer. Upon landing in the States, before coming into work, before even checking into his hotel, he immediately went to a car dealership and bought the biggest convertible on the lot. Soon, he traded that for a bright yellow E-type Jaguar. In addition to fast cars, he loved large dogs, powerboats, and small aircraft, volunteering with the Lantana Cadet Squadron of the Civil Air Patrol and alarming air traffic controllers up and down the East Coast with his maneuvers. What the fuck? Alarming them? And just so people out there know, the Civil Air Patrol often has people from retired intelligence or military in it. It's kind of a spook's nest, people who do Civil Air Patrol. He augmented his income from National Enquirer and Globe Publications with successful real estate dealings. But despite several attempts to retire, he was always drawn back to the weeklies. He was editor-in-chief of Sun in 2001 when an anthrax attack claimed the life of his friend and photo editor Bob Stevens and kept the paper going for more than a decade after. Delivering cutting-edge stories on such topics as flying cars, Nostradamus prophecies, Mothman sightings, and stem cell therapy. His final birth 
was overseeing a section of the National Examiner dedicated to news of the future. Well, there's a lot of interesting things in there. It's interesting that a bombing by the IRA is actually what set him on the course to get a job at the National Enquirer around the same time as Robert Stevens. So it seems to me like his relationship with Robert Stevens probably went back quite a long time. So he wasn't just his boss at a certain point. I mean, him and Bob Stevens probably went back a long time at the Enquirer. Now, Pecker, via American Media Inc., purchased the Globe Media's empire for $105 million in 1999. And this is when they relaunched The Sun, The Examiner, and Globe magazine. Now, keep in mind that Inquirer was already the world's number one tabloid at the time, followed by The Star, which was the second biggest tabloid, which AMI had just acquired, followed by the third, The Globe, which was the third biggest tabloid. Now, the timing is a little interesting on this. Apparently, American Media Incorporated and David Pecker decided to move into the AMI building, which it was now called, previously The Globe building. They decided to move into this building in January 2001, less than a year before their building gets attacked with anthrax. Now, of course, as I already mentioned on the previous two episodes, Robert Stevens was diagnosed with anthrax on October 3rd, and he died on October 5th from inhalation anthrax. This is where things start to get a little suspect as far as how the Inquirer management and David Pecker and American Media Inc. handled the publicity surrounding the anthrax infection of one of their own employees and the death of one of their own employees. I think starting here is when things get quite strange and unexplainable, and there are still a lot of unanswered questions. Unanswered questions about the behavior of David Pecker, unanswered questions about the behavior of American Media Inc., unanswered questions about all of the employees and the way that they basically withheld their own stories about being the victims of an anthrax attack in their own building for almost an entire month. Let's start with this idea. Think of yourself as David Pecker, American Media Incorporated. You have at your disposal some of the world's biggest tabloids. Essentially, you are a Murdoch-level tabloid king, and you have an interest in actually pushing a certain direction in each magazine. You, you take a specific interest in each individual one, and you impose policy-making decisions on each individual one, and you put your name prominently at the top of each individual one, including even something as trashy as the sun. When American media took over all these tabloids, David Pecker's name would be at the top of all of these magazines, The Star, The Inquirer, The Sun, The Examiner, The Globe, as chairman, president, and chief executive officer, David Pecker. And then underneath would be the editor-in-chief and the rest of the people in the papers. So this man wanted himself to be sort of this guy who was in charge, in charge of the direction of the way these magazines would go. Now, even though the head of Inquirer Security since the 1970s, Henry Ostazewski, said that we've had our fill of wackos, especially in this business, it seems as if a series of specific type of attacks ramped up in general in the 1990s, the late 1990s, and those were fake hoax anthrax threat letters. This actually was ramping up quite a bit long before Bush even got into office. But from Biz Journals, an exclusive story called American Media has a history of threats by Darcy Lunsford and Ed Duggan. It says, The National Enquirer and its sister tabloids have a history of threats against them. 
including one involving biological agents, police reports show. In that case, an out-of-work actress in Tucson, Arizona, became frustrated when the Inquirer refused to pay her for a story about how she was being stalked by a celebrity. When an Inquirer editor wouldn't listen, a police report said Menial turned to threats. In May 1999, Menial left a series of messages for assistant editor Chris Wessling making, quote, threats of sending biological weapons in the mail, unquote, according to a May 18th 1999 police report. From what I understood, she was mentally ill, said Lontana police detective Todd Dwyer. I didn't take it real seriously at the time. The AMI building itself had already gotten three police responses for a bomb threat in the 1990s. And they also describe how just three days after the 9-11 attacks, star employee Daisy Almeida picked up her desk phone at the company's Boca Raton headquarters just before lunchtime on September 14, 2001, to discover an unidentified caller claiming to have information about a bomb. American media vice president Daniel Rothstein pulled the fire alarm and evacuated the building, reports said. If you listen to the very end of this podcast, I know it's a long one, you're going to hear me bring you some new information that... I don't think most of you have already heard before, involving many more hoax anthrax letters that preceded not just the St. Petersburg hoax letters or the real anthrax hoax letters, which they did, but this series of hoax letters actually came before 9-11. And as I said recently on Adam Fitzgerald's show, that I think that the evidence that we have about the overall picture of the anthrax attacks, it does seem as if whoever did this had foreknowledge of 9-11, which really puts it to me into a special category of the type of criminal that was required to have pulled this off. And to me, one of the most fascinating things about all of this is here you have the biggest story ever to have happened to the Inquirer, or any of these tabloids really, since they all worked in the same building now. You have the biggest story ever that happened to them an attack that followed 9-11, a bioterrorist attack. And shockingly, a magazine that would constantly run sensationalist trash, a lot of the times not even true, but they would always be the first to try to run something that other media organizations wouldn't. For some reason, policy-wide, this must have been a company policy, they decided to withhold any information or any stories or any coverage whatsoever of the first bioterrorist attack in the United States on their own employees in their own building for almost a month. They let the entire rest of the mainstream media scoop them on this story. And I mean, they literally ran no coverage of it whatsoever in any of their magazines until October 30th. How could this possibly be explained? Did AMI agree to make some kind of deal with the FBI or the Bush administration to keep mum on this until the investigation progressed? Does this sound like the typical behavior of the Inquirer? Why would they have not talked all about this story? They were on the tip of the spear of it. They knew what was happening in real time in the investigation. Did David Pecker or did AMI catch and kill the anthrax story, in a sense? Is it possible that David Pecker said that all the employees would get extra bonuses in their paycheck so that they could buy the exclusives to all their stories and they'll let them talk about them at a time that they see fit? How did they manage to get all the employees of the Inquirer to not go on record about this? 
In fact, you actually have a lot of anonymous statements from Acquire and American Media Inc. employees out of the AMI building talking to other mainstream media outlets right after Robert Stevens died about how the anthrax investigation was progressing. Keep in mind, the Inquirer specifically did actually do real investigative legwork when it came to famous murders. They did stuff in the Joan Benet Ramsey case where they actually did real private investigations that were for real. They did things in the OJ case, the Inquirer did specifically, which actually made movement in the case or in future cases having to do with OJ Simpson, specifically actually finding pictures of him wearing the shoes that left prints in the blood at the Nicole Brown, Simpson, and Ron Goldman crime scene. The Inquirer actually was the one who matched up those shoes with a photograph of OJ wearing those same shoes at some kind of sports event. So here you have a, a newspaper that's actually done real things in, in investigations that have made real movements, sitting on an exclusive story that they know the most about out of any media entity because they experienced it firsthand, sitting on a story for a month. How can you explain this? What happened here? Why would the Inquirer and all their tabloids not just run bioterrorism hits America, you know, every single issue cover for the next several months? That's their typical style, to be as sensationalist as possible. It's not like they weren't running stuff about bin Laden and the war on terror and stuff that was political. In fact, right after 9-11, the entire tone of most of their tabloids switched to very political, including even the star, which was always just celebrity stuff. Here's an issue from the Star from October 2nd, 2001. The cover says the fight for Flight 93, our heroes. President Bush moved to tears by brave cop's mom. The only time they talk about celebrities is how celebrities reacted to 9-11. So it's not like the Inquirer and American Media Inc.'s tabloid empire was not covering these kinds of subjects. So that's not a reason why they would have just ignored the anthrax story that happened to them. There's another reason why they did, and that reason is hidden, I think, to us. And I do believe there's enough evidence to suggest that there was some kind of embargo or non-disclosure agreement, which we already know American Media Inc. employees had signed non-disclosure agreements, specifically Inquirer employees had done so long in the past. But the fact that they sat on this story for so long and that David Pecker himself actually went on CNN weeks before any of his tabloids spoke about this, weeks before to suggest that he thought this was bioterrorism. He went on TV and said it by himself, but he would not allow, or the company would not allow any of their papers to talk about it until October 30th. Now, what's interesting is I watched a documentary on the National Enquirer, and there's two false statements in it about why they did not run the anthrax coverage at all until October 30th. One of them, is by one of their editors, who I already mentioned earlier. He remained at the Inquirer after AMI's purchase. His name was Steve Koz. He continued to be the editor there all throughout the anthrax attacks. And he makes a curious statement in a National Enquirer documentary called Scandalous. He says that they actually missed the deadline and the media got kind of the jump on them. That's why the media scooped them on their own anthrax attack. Well, that's blatantly false because here I have in front of me all of the National Enquirer issues from September 11th all the way until October 30th when they eventually talked about it. And I could say unequivocally that Steve Koz, the editor, is lying for some reason. That is a lie. So I guess what's a little curious to me is why 
National Enquirer employees, or the editor of National Enquirer in this case, is lying in a documentary about why they sat on their own Anthrax exclusive and let the rest of the media scoop them on it. This is apparently the cover story that Steve Koz drops, is that they missed the deadline. They missed the printing deadline. Well, here's the reality. The National Enquirer was a weekly publication. Now, you could say, yeah, they missed their deadline on October 2nd, because by that time, maybe only a handful of the employees around the office had heard that Robert Stevens was in the hospital, in a coma, and he was dying. They didn't even maybe know that anthrax had hit yet. So yeah, they missed the October 2nd issue because it just happened, and Robert Stevens dies three days after this. But when's their next issue? Well, their next issue of the National Enquirer is October 9th, 2001. The cover story, Bin Laden Terrorist Tells All, with Giuliani puff piece in the magazine. David Pecker doesn't mention anything about Bob Stevens or anything about an anthrax attack four days after Stevens dies. All he talks about is how the words of President Bush are really important to take to heart moving forward. And apparently the death toll of 9-11 as late as October 9, 2001 was still 7,000. That's how overly ridiculously high the estimates were. Finally, I salute our heroes, says David Pecker, the firemen, police officers, EMS personnel, rescue workers, and volunteers. Mayor Giuliani's leadership has been exemplary. I also salute all of the celebrities who have given of their time and money. We can never allow our freedom to be held hostage. And this issue of the Inquirer comes with a full-page printout of a color American flag. So again, zero mention of Robert Stevens getting anthrax a week after the attacks. Why didn't they talk about it in this issue? I'm just a little baffled by this. Here they are running these really inflammatory, very neocon, pro-war-on-terror pieces all throughout October. October 9th, October 16th, the cover story is Inside the Taliban, face-to-face -face with the enemy. I dated a terrorist, an article about Zayed Jara. David Pecker talks about the war on terror and how we need to fight vigilantly. I'll read you some of his little essay here. He says, In witnessing the incredible spirit of the American people in the past few weeks, we've seen what an awesome force that spirit is when united in a cause. Blah, 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 blah. Our intelligence community will need far more support from Congress and the American people if we are to maintain the level of vigilance and secure future demands. And then on October 23rd, the plot to kill Bush exposed, Bin Laden's evil scheme foiled by the CIA. Okay, well, by the 22nd, did they mention Bob Stevens? Let's see. Because that's plenty of time, right? For them to even just mention it in a little paragraph written by David Pecker, as he seemed to like to do in all these issues after 9-11, to talk about how patriotic he was. Huh. Well, I'm looking through this issue of the Inquirer from the 23rd of October, and there's literally nothing mentioned at all about Bob Stevens. It's almost as if this didn't even happen. I mean, what a strange thing to do to let the death of one of their employees from a bioterrorist attack go completely unmentioned in all of their publications, an exclusive story that would put them front and center as being victims in the war on terror, essentially. What in the fuck happened here? Now, would it be in the Inquirer's behavior profile? Would it fit their profile behavior to be completely quiet if the FBI told them they couldn't talk about this? No, it wouldn't because 
that's not their style. And we already know they actually talked to a bunch of other media outlets about what happened. So what happened here? Why did they sit on the story and let the rest of the media scoop them? Is it possible that for some reason, David Pecker and American Media Incorporated paid off their own employees or leaned on their NDAs, basically telling them they weren't allowed to talk about it and sort of mysteriously let this story be scooped for some reason? I think that's very possible. I just don't know the reason. It's strange. Now, keep in mind also that two of the 9-11 hijackers were subscribers to the National Enquirer as well. And they didn't even bother to talk about that in their own papers, which is interesting. Why would they not talk about that and try to connect that to possibly why their building was targeted with anthrax? That's strange. They do very briefly mention that Mike Irish, the managing editor of The Sun, an employee of their company, they mentioned that his wife showed some of the hijackers' apartments, but they barely talk about it. In fact, Mike Irish has never commented on this ever in public. Only Gloria Irish commented on it later, willingly. Earlier, she was sort of caught off guard when the press approached her on her driveway right after 9-11. But much later, she actually willingly was interviewed in a magazine about what happened. On the 10th anniversary of 9-11, she was interviewed in the Palm Beach Post. It says that Gloria Irish spent three weeks of her life that summer driving Marwan Al-Shehi in her car. Irish, a real estate agent, was helping Al-Shehi find a place to live in Delray Beach. First of all, why would you ever need to spend three weeks showing someone an apartment? Isn't she a real estate agent? Why is she showing someone apartments? This is just odd. He was the only customer I ever had who called up to say he would be five minutes late, Irish said. Before coming to Delray Beach, Al-Shehi, 23, had lived in Germany with Atta, met Osama bin Laden at a training camp in Afghanistan, and spent time on Florida's west coast learning to fly while on a student visa. He told me he was learning to fly, Irish said. I remember one day I asked him why he wasn't flying that day, and he said, there's too many clouds. And I thought, he's got a long way to go to be a commercial pilot. Al-Shehi was accompanied on these apartment hunting trips by Nawaf Al-Hazmi, 25, who would be one of the muscle hijackers on the flight that crashed into the Pentagon. I had never met Arabs before, and there they were, Irish said. I wanted to tell them I was Jewish, but I didn't. The hijackers never gave her a reason to suspect anything, she said. If only they had. Al-Shehi told me he couldn't swim, she said. I wish I drove my car off a bridge with them, because I swim real good. Sorry for taking a detour into Gloria and Mike Irish land. But again, I just need to remind you that this is why the whole AMI situation is suspicious. It does seem to oddly link 9-11 and anthrax together. Even the FBI was looking at it as a potential link at first. But you might be asking yourself, what is your evidence that they withheld this story for over a month? How can you really prove this? Well, I don't know if I made it clear enough earlier, but I purchased two months worth of all of AMI's publications from the months of October and November. The Globe, The National Examiner, The Sun, The National Enquirer, Globe, Star, and none of them until October 30th, even mentioned bioterrorism, anthrax, the 
the attack on the AMI building, or the death of Robert Stevens at all, whatsoever. Not a single mention until the 30th of October. Not even a blurb. And I also have sitting here stacks of New York Post, Toledo Blade, a paper out of Ohio, and New York Daily News hard copies old newspapers, all from the months of October, showing very clearly that they started talking about this on October 5th. The day Robert Stevens died, newspapers were already reporting this, and most of them were speculating if this was terrorism or not already on the 5th of October. And they continued to cover anthrax all throughout October. Now, what about the other places that were attacked with anthrax? Did they start talking about anthrax right away? How soon did the New York Times mention their hoax threat letter? They mentioned their hoax threat letter within three to four days of it arriving to Judith Miller. How soon did NBC News mention the anthrax infection of Aaron O'Connor? It took them a little longer, but they eventually mentioned it about a week and a half after it was completely confirmed. Maybe two weeks after. How soon did New York Post mention their anthrax letter that they got to their own paper? They covered it on October 20th. The cover shows one of their own employees with a cutaneous anthrax infection bandage around her middle finger and the cover saying anthrax this. Stricken New York Post girl's message to the terrorists. And just an example of how ridiculously dumb the New York Post was at the time and how neoconservative it was. One of the taglines that she says, her name is Johanna Hudden. She got a cutaneous anthrax infection from a letter. The tagline says, I'm a victim of germ warfare. Anthrax antibodies are in my blood. Thanks, Osama. So again, I would bet my life on this concept that AMI had some kind of embargo or blockade against talking about this. And I would love to know why they sat on this story. And here's more information that they're lying. I said all before that Steve Cause lied. He said that the reason why they didn't talk about it until the 30th was because of the printing deadline. Well, someone else lies too, and I can't remember exactly who it is, but they claim they were an official that was high up at the Inquirer at the same time as well. And they just straight up say that they did run coverage of it within a week of it happening. And they have the exclusive and they sort of brag about having the exclusive to this horrible tragedy that they ran within a week. Well, both of those statements are lies. There's no way that the reason they didn't run it until the 30th was because they missed the printing deadline. They had plenty of time between the death of Robert Stevens and the 30th to run content of it. In fact, they would release three issues typically in between that time frame of any one of their main tabloids, including the Inquirer and the Star. So that's a lie. And we also know it's a lie that they covered it within a week. The death happened on the 5th, and the mainstream media was already heavily covering this pretty much right after the 5th. Like the week after the 5th, they had already covered it. In fact, the mainstream media was covering the fact that the Inquirer and American Media Incorporated's tabloid empire hadn't gotten to the story yet. Here's an article from the Los Angeles Times from October 16th by Roy Rivenberg. How Anthrax out-tabloided the tabloids. Despite having the world's leading psychics and astrologers on their payroll, you can sort of see the shade they're throwing at American Media Inc., America's supermarket tabloids apparently didn't foresee an anthrax outbreak at their headquarters in Boca Raton. It's the kind of lurid tale the tabloids themselves might trumpet, except they haven't had the chance. 
Printing deadlines prevented them from writing about the event in their current editions. Very interesting that this lie is again printed in the Los Angeles Times. This is by the 16th of October. Now, maybe this excuse would have held up to the 16th of October. That's only 11 days after Robert Stevens dies. But to not print anything until the 30th and run two more editions in between? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So 15 days after this article runs about why they didn't meet their printing deadlines, they still haven't run anything. So I think this is pretty strong evidence that there was something else going on here about why they had some kind of embargo to not talk about one of their biggest exclusive of all time and why they actually never covered this again. That's also unusual. They really never covered this again after they ran just a few issues about it. But what did David Pecker have to say? What did he actually say specifically if he, let's say he did have some embargo where he wouldn't let his employees talk about it. But what did he say? Well, here's what he said. And he said this on Larry King Live on October 10th. And it would be 20 days after this until anybody from AMI would actually put something in print about these attacks in their own papers while the media was scooping them left and right. Good evening and welcome to another edition of uh, Larry King Live. We begin with David Pecker. He joins us from West Palm Beach. He's chief executive of American Media Incorporated, headquarters in the building at the center of the Florida anthrax scare. So much show, another scare today. What do you make of this uh, third case, David? Larry, this is so devastating to me and my company. A matter of fact, just when I was riding over here to your studio, I got the telephone call in the car and I heard that a 35-year-old woman also was diagnosed uh, with a spore. And what's so aggravating is that I don't know the name, I feel very frustrated, and there's a lot of 35-year-old women in my company who absolutely have no idea and probably will not sleep tonight until they find out who that person is. This David, is let's go back. How did you first hear of the first case? How were you informed? Last uh, Thursday, I got a tele we received a telephone call saying that uh, Bob Stevens uh, uh, passed away from anthrax. That was the first call that we received. And we were, uh, and then the next thing is we were waiting for the, for the uh, Palm Beach Department of Health to come and, and, and give our people uh, uh, some words about because nobody really knows or understands what anthrax is. So I took it upon myself because we were waiting to hear and I, and I had a clinical professor come in from California and someone from the Miami, from the Miami Infectious Disease uh, uh, professor to come in and talk to our employees. And we understood it was a, a, a natural, a, a natural, uh, uh, a natural uh, form of anthrax. As a matter of fact, Larry, I was in my office on Sunday. And Sunday around 4 o'clock, I got a telephone call and we heard from the FBI, we heard that uh, from a senior person in the Justice Department that, uh, that there was a second person uh, uh, Ernie, who was uh, who was a mailroom, that they found the they found the spore, and that our building was going to be closed. So this was Sunday. You know, my 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 newspapers. Uh, we we uh, everyone. We have over three hundred people in the building. Uh, they went ahead, and they uh, they everybody's doing their normal work on Friday. Everyone left, and when they left, they expected to go back to work on Monday. On, uh, on Sunday, uh, I get this telephone call. They asked me to leave the building immediately. I left the building. And You're was, taking antibiotics? I'm taking the, yeah, I'm taking, I'm taking the antibiotic myself. And uh, well, do, do, 
your building is now closed. Is this, is this a criminal investigation, David? Yes, the FBI is considering it a, 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 a criminal investigation. And, and I wanted to add one other thing, Larry. In our building, and I think it's important for you to know, we had our, uh, our employees, we just moved in there in January. And uh, because we, we run 24-7 uh, with all of our newspapers, we encourage our employees to bring their children. So a lot of the, everybody's kids were brought in to, uh, to work and, and they stayed out, oh. they stayed there. So then when we went there on Monday, not only did each of the employees have to be tested, all of their children had to be tested. All of their friends had to be tested. And, and we were outside and, 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 and we also at the same time have to close the newspapers on Monday. And what was so amazing to me is our, is our employees, the employees of the, this, they, 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 they went in, had their test, uh, had their kids tested, uh, picked, up the, uh, picked up their antibiotic, and then went back to work. And, 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 the, and since we did not have, uh, Larry, which is, which is fascinating, since our building was gone and being here in Florida, we had a hurricane plan. So we implemented this plan, and all of the editorial people went to all different areas in Florida. So the papers will be out this week? And, the pa and they finished the papers. As a matter of fact, the papers are going out, uh, they're going out this week. As right. a matter of fact, they were, they were, they were, they were, they were distributed today. I want to touch some other bases. I mean, let's just examine some of the things that he said there. He's basically going on CNN and scooping his own media empire with this pretty riveting story about how they made them leave the building immediately and all this stuff. I mean, there's a lot more to the story um, that I've told you on previous episodes, but here he is on CNN scooping his own media empire on this story. He's not talking about bioterrorism yet, but just this story in and of itself is sort of a riveting firsthand account that, and you hear in his own words that they're publishing the paper. They just got distributed on this day, October 10th, well, it looks like they're dated October 12th on the actual physical publications, and they still don't talk about the anthrax story in that, and they didn't talk about it until the 30th for some reason. But I'll continue playing pieces of this interview, because here's where he actually drops the biggest bomb and goes ahead and says something that even the Bush administration was still in denial mode about. And the fact that they didn't publish this as a headline until the 30th is remarkable. Do you think this is some sort of thing against you and what you publish? Larry, uh, I think this is attack against America. The World Trade Center was attacked, the Pentagon was attacked, and American media was attacked. And I think that this is the first bioterrorism attack in the United States. As, as you're aware, this is the first time there was a, an anthrax, a, a pulmonary anthrax case since uh, for the last 25 years. Yeah. I mean, things like this doesn't, doesn't, is not a coincidence. So you think you, American media, publisher of these many tabloids, were targeted? I think so, yes. And does I, the Bureau think that, if the police thought that, or is this a David Pecker thought? This is a David Pecker thought. I feel that we had a bioterrorism attack here. And, and, and it started here, it started with the magazine, it started, it, it started at, at Boca, and it started at our editorial offices. And, 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 and the scary thing about this, Larry, is that it could happen to anybody. It could happen to, uh, it could happen to Time Warner, it could, happen to, uh, it could happen to the New York Times, it could happen to basically anybody. And the fear and hysteria is incredible. A little bit of a prescient statement there on behalf of David Pecker. 
saying this before the FBI or the White House actually came out and said that they believe this was bioterror, saying that he thinks that the New York Times could be a target of this. Well, Judith Miller of the New York Times, as I've been saying on the previous podcast, was a target of one of the St. Petersburg hoax letters that I believe was sent in coordination with the real anthrax letters. Here's an interesting story from the Washington Post from October 20th, 2001. A Washington Post article called, For Three Tabloids, the Big Story Couldn't Be More, quote, Inside Than This. And it sort of talks about how the Globe, the Inquirer, and the Star all ran their own anthrax exclusives. This is an interesting comment from the article. It says, All three issues offer versions differing in significant details about the, quote, the Jennifer Lopez terror letter. The Star proclaimed, the FBI believes the letter may have launched the first bioterrorism attack on the United States. Although the FBI has ruled nothing out, agents are skeptical that the Lopez letter contained anthrax, based on agents' interviews with AMI workers and the negative medical tests of others connected with the letter. A bureau official in Washington said of the Lopez letter, We don't think that has anything to do with anything. Tabloid workers do not agree among themselves about the details or meaning of the Lopez letter incident. Roz Suss, who sat across the aisle from Stevens on the Sun photo desk, said, The feeling here is that there may have been more than one letter. Well, that's an interesting comment because that leads me to the next thing that I found when purchasing a physical copy of Star Magazine, October 30th, 2001 with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise on the cover and Laura Bush on the cover, they have the story, Truth About the Jennifer Lopez Terror Letter, and Our Last Days Together Were Filled with Love, Anthrax Victim's Widow, Her Moving Story. This is an exclusive Maureen Stevens interview, actually. And this seems to be the first time that David Pecker actually mentions the passing of Bob Stevens in one of his little opening monologues in the magazine. He has a little spiel about it at the beginning. Now, Bobby Bender, who worked with Bob Stevens, says, this is a quote from him in the Star magazine, it says, Bobby Bender is still deeply troubled. I've thought a lot about the detergent smell that came from the envelope, he says. In hindsight, it reminds me of the movies when people send drugs through the mail and camouflage the drugs odor by putting them in coffee grounds. I just wish I had more suspicions at the time. Maybe I could have saved Bob Stevens' life. Well, that's an interesting clue. Because if this had a scent, like a sweet scent to it, then that actually resembles the St. Petersburg hoax letters that were filled with talcum powder, not the real anthrax letters that were unscented. So does this mean that this Jennifer Lopez letter might have been one of these St. Petersburg hoax letters? I think it's possible. Now, this is really strange, and I have no idea if this is true, but if it is true, it really does question what the FBI was trying to accomplish early on in this case. It says, those who saw the letter don't remember much about its origin, return address, or postmark. That led the FBI to ask Bender, Bobby Bender, and Suss, Roz Suss, of The Sun, to undergo interrogation under hypnosis, hoping to extract details buried in their memories. I mean, does that sound like it makes sense to you? doesn't make sense to me. Was someone in the FBI investigation very early on trying to blow this? I mean, if they really did interrogate some of these witnesses under hypnosis, would that evidence even be usable? It's really odd. And is the star just outright lying about this? And why is this the only story that they run? I mean, there's really only two stories in the Star Magazine, and this is, like I said, October 30th. They could have written so much more. 
And I guess just as a stupid side note, they actually interviewed J-Lo's former husband in this star piece and tell him about Jennifer Lopez's letter. And he says, when Jennifer finds out that someone used her name to these ends, she's going to be extremely upset. I hope she hasn't heard about this yet so that she can enjoy her honeymoon. Holy shit. And just some details about this letter. It says that the letter itself was sloppily written on a yellow legal pad. The two pages were folded in three and had all these pleas to J-Lo, obviously referring to her recent wedding to Chris Judd. I love you. I'm the one you should marry. I'm a much better man. The letter ended with love and a name I can't recall. Now the Maureen Stevens article is pretty sad because it looks like she gave them an exclusive interview, which I'm sure they paid her for, but she also gave them all of her family photos. And it seems like the Star magazine has like an exclusive family photo album to run in here because I've never seen any of these photos ever shown on the mainstream media. And the story that she tells about her husband dying is really sad. She basically says that she didn't have a chance to say goodbye to him because he went into a coma like right after he took some anti-nausea drug and he was totally coherent and talking to her before that. But as soon as he took this drug, he went to sleep and then went into a coma and she never had a chance to say goodbye. Very sad. And he died three days later. But what's the point to all this? Why am I mentioning all this? I think the point I'm trying to make is that I think there's really strong evidence that there was some kind of embargo or decision made internally in American Media Inc. to not speak about this for some reason or to be really mum about this or made some kind of agreement with the Bush administration or the FBI to just keep quiet about this. And maybe David Pecker himself couldn't help himself and went on television on CNN and gave them that scoop because this embargo had already been put in place for some reason. And maybe he just sort of slipped up and said that. It's not clear. It's unusual for a media organization to give a scoop like that to someone else. I mean, one possibility here is that when the FBI interviewed all these other people who got real anthrax letters or even some of the hoax letters at other media organizations that were more serious reporters, maybe there was just so much disdain towards the Inquirer and so much you know, don't trust those people. Maybe other journalists that have been interviewed by the FBI, like in New York, for example, said like, you know, those Inquirer people, they don't, nothing they tell you is going to be reliable. I mean, that's one possibility. But I think that in general, it is pretty clear that the FBI, for some reason, couldn't trust these eyewitness accounts. Or maybe even if they did trust them, thought that the Jennifer Lopez letter wasn't actually what infected Robert Stevens. In the AMI tabloid empire, they were just completely trumpeting like neocon propaganda. I mean, even harder than Fox News in some cases, running three-page-long spreads on how much of a hero Rudy Giuliani was. But why was American Media Inc. actually targeted? What was the real reason why they were targeted? I think we reverse engineer a little bit about what happened in the cleanup efforts. We can maybe potentially provide some other motive of why it was attacked. But it would also imply that people at AMI or possibly at the Inquirer were somehow in on this as well, which is quite a strong claim to make. So I have to say this is speculation. But we do have to remember that the Inquirer had a massive photo archive that was worth tens of millions of dollars potentially of photographs, including the Elvis Coffin photo original, going back about 30 years. They had all this in the AMI building, in their library in the basement. They had a massive archive of every Inquirer issue ever published. They had a massive archive of notes and files and unpublished stories. Maybe that's even where they 
kept some of their catch-and-kill stories that they decided to never publish, but they bought exclusive rights to. That's unclear. But they had to leave all their stuff behind. As David Pecker says in that interview on Larry King, they were told they had to leave the building immediately at a certain point. And they did. They left everything behind, including even live tropical fish that they left to die in the building because it became quarantined. But what happens after this? Why is David Pecker someone who's suspicious or maybe connected to any of this? Well, it's because him and AMI broker a deal to sell this building eventually to a buyer named David Ristine out of Florida who runs a company called Crown Companies or Crown Properties. He runs a few other companies, LLCs, under different variations of the same name, Crown. Maria Peters, who was in charge of the AMI library in the AMI building, describes what happened when they had to close the AMI building and basically abandon it. It says, AMI's archives don't exist anywhere else. No library, not even the Library of Congress, extends itself to collect the tabloids. They are not on microfilm. They are not fed to vendors. And the little part of their archive that is electronic is not yet searchable. The history of tabloid publishing in America, every edition of the National Enquirer, Star, Globe, Sun, Examiner, and the Weekly World News is locked up in the bound volume room of AMI. Some of these volumes date back to the 1950s. AMI also owns an extensive celebrity book collection. Their book room houses over 4,000 volumes of celebrity autobiographies and biographies, including rare and out-of-print books. CEO David Pecker is fond of saying that the text library, the archives, and the photo collection are the heart of its publications. Martha says they want their clip library back because at this time she doesn't know when the building's going to be cleaned up, and she's assuming that everybody's going to get all of their clips and access to this library back. Well, unfortunately for Maria Peters and her research assistants, Larry Boitano, Ann Burke, and Amber Pradings and AMI, they would never get access to this archive again. This extremely valuable archive that was worth millions and millions of dollars, probably tens of millions of dollars. So imagine the building itself, by this time, it was already worth around $5 million was sort of how it was appraised before the anthrax attacks. And in addition to that, it housed the contents of AMI's entire archive, which is probably worth tens of millions of dollars. The Elvis photo alone was worth something like $4 million. And even if they had been able to scan all these photos, at the time, scanners were good. You know, you could get the highest quality scanners available in the year 2000 and get some pretty good archives, scans of all these pictures. But as far as I know, they never really were able to do this to all their stuff, they actually managed to only scan a small percentage of their archives. So you would think, you would imagine that AMI purchasing this extremely valuable archive basically from the Enquirer and basically consolidating it all into one place in this building would want to make sure that when they sold the building, they would get all that stuff out of there. Or as part of the deal of selling the building, it wouldn't include the stuff. But the dilemma, in a way, was that they were not allowed to remove anything from the building unless it was decontaminated. The EPA and CDC and local Florida health departments basically had to authorize anybody going in and out of there. So in essence, they had to find some kind of remediation company or entity to clean this building out and decontaminate it before they could get access to it. So why didn't David Pecker and AMI pay for a company to come and clean up this building for them? just so they could get access to that archive, even if they didn't want to use that building anymore. Let's say they already decided to move on from the building and sell it. 
Well, they could sort of kill two birds with one stone if they did that. They could decontaminate all of their archive and their files, basically take ownership back of all that stuff, have authorization to remove it from the building, put it to another location, reopen their library and their photo archive, and also clean the building in the process and be able to flip it. Maybe lose some money in the process, but at least get their archive back, right? You would think they would at least do that. It was also all the employee files and personal files, literally everything in the building, including petty traveling cash, something like $50,000 in cash just sitting there, all the computers, everything. Well, the strangest thing ever happened. In fact, this buyer, David Rustine, got extremely, extremely lucky. He managed to purchase a building that was appraised at $5 million for $40,000. David Rustine made an offer to AMI of $40,000, and they accepted. But guess what else this deal included? The deal also included access to and possession over the entire AMI library. So what was worth tens of millions of dollars, one-of-a-kind library of archives, was basically given over to this guy who couldn't give two shits about owning any of these Inquirer archives. If they couldn't trust the FBI to come in there and freely look through all of their files and take whatever they wanted to as evidence, why would they trust this buyer, David Rustine, over all their personal employee files? Is it possible that someone in AMI wanted something having to do with their catch-and-kill archives destroyed under their cover of secrecy, and they felt they could trust Rustine more than they could trust the FBI? Because David Rustine was immediately planning on destroying them, all the personal property and the photo archive. And this didn't seem to be an issue for David Pecker or AMI. Does this make any sense? If you just saw a property listing in a newspaper where someone had a building that was appraised for $5 million and an offer comes in at $40,000 and it's accepted, wouldn't you think that that's just suspicious on its face? I mean, I hope you would because it is. It does seem like something sketchy happened there. So you have to question, first of all, is David Rustine some kind of dummy buyer on behalf of AMI? Did they hire some kind of buyer to buy it for them for some reason, and why would they have done that? Did they hire some company to maybe take on the liability of destroying their library on behalf of them? Did someone in AMI actually want that library destroyed for some reason? Why would they have wanted such a valuable library destroyed? What would be the reason for that? Well, we already know about their catch and kill operations that went back long before David Pecker got there. Could it have been something as simple as that? that David Pecker wanted something destroyed in that building and that he couldn't figure out a way to do it himself so that he had someone else purchase the building to take on liability in case someone complained or made a stink about all these valuable photos and archives being destroyed? Well, I actually don't know the answer to any of these questions. I'm speculating here. But we already know that this is a really suspicious thing. And we have to try to figure out why is it that he sold this building for $40,000? is if David Pecker said that he was trying desperately to get Jeb Bush to clean the building and to pay for the cleaning, to get the federal government to pay for the cleaning. I mean, what's going on here? Why did he sort of want to sell this quickly for so little money? What would possibly be the reason? Well, I think we really need to dig into this. We really need to dig into this and figure out what the fuck is going on here. 
if this makes David Pecker and AMI some potential collaborators in the attacks at large. Because this seems to be some kind of weird cover-up. If they're allowing some random real estate purchaser to basically destroy all their archives and buy them for practically nothing. Friends and foes call Rustine a bit of a gambler while pointing out that all investments come with a varying degree of risk. This is from an article, AMI Building Buyer, A Real Mr. Fix-It, from April 19, 2003. It says, The bargain basement price of $40,000, Rustine now owns the 68,000-square-foot building. The building was once valued at nearly $5 million. All Rustine has to do is pay for its cleanup and persuade squeamish potential tenants to move in. There's going to be a lot of people saying, why didn't I think of that, said Mike Arts, president of the Greater Boca Raton Chamber of Commerce. He's a very smart investor, Eisenberg said. David actually has a quality of being a very nice guy, as well as the savvy of being a good real estate investor. In an article in the Sun Sentinel from April 18, 2003, as a quote from Ristine saying, there's no need to build the new building. It's already there. It's a beautiful building in a great location. Rustine said the building's storied past doesn't bother him, nor does he think it will bother potential tenants. He already had hired a pedigreed company to do the anthrax cleanup work, Maryland-based Marcor Remediations, which was involved in the anthrax cleanup at the Hart Senate office building and worked on the cleanup of the World Trade Center site. He's not sure how much it will cost to decontaminate it, but estimates have ranged from $7 million to $20 million. Depending on how much it costs to clean the building, it could be a really good deal, Rustine said. It's going into how expensive it's been to clean up other buildings of anthrax and how Rustine's probably not really a smart investor because he's going to lose money on this. But in fact, he only ended up paying a little bit over a million dollars to have all this done in the end. So he did end up making a huge profit off of this purchase of only $40,000. I think he ended up selling the building for something like $9 million. And they're already saying this in one of the first articles about this building purchase. It says, The company's irreplaceable photo archives with more than 3 million images could not be salvaged. There are ways to clean up the building without damaging those items, but it could drive up the cleanup costs. The building was not sold on the understanding that anything could be recovered, said General McKelvey, an AMI spokesman. Had Rustine not stepped up, others were certainly interested in the state. Shortly after the contamination in 2001, Boca Raton and real estate broker Joe Good said he offered to buy the building for around $1 million. AMI refused, saying the price was far too low. When told Rustine got the building for $40,000, he was surprised. Wow, that's a great deal. He's a player, a plunger who likes to take chances, Good said of Rustine. It's strange that they're not even questioning this, this guy is surprised that Rustine got it for 40000 when he offered a million. It doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't question it any further than this, when it should have obviously been questioned. But here, obviously, one of the important things that I read you is a quote from an AMI spokesperson saying that the building was not sold on the understanding that anything would be recovered, meaning that everything in there was essentially to be destroyed or was now David Rustine's property to do with whatever he wanted. Why? It wasn't worth decontaminating their files? I mean, they sound like really valuable archives. And in August 27th, 2003 issue of the Sun Sentinel, 
It says that David Ristine is making a website to track anthrax cleanup. A website will open today to keep residents updated about the cleanup progress at the former American Media Inc. building, quarantined since October 2001. The site, www.buildingupdates.com, is expected to be online today, said Debbie Abrams, spokesperson for Crown Companies, the building's owner. The site will be updated as cleanup progress on the building continues. You go to this website, buildingupdates.com, and pretty much it just sort of lays out the early timeline for the cleanup process before Marcor remediation was taken off the job. I'm looking at a Wayback Machine capture of his buildingupdates.com website from February 2004. And really, there's barely anything on here, and it wasn't updated beyond this date. But it says on the Mission website, Crown Company's manager of the building has as its project mission to ensure surrounding communities and project workers are fully protected throughout the remediation process. Fully coordinate the project with appropriate federal, state, and local agencies having jurisdiction in the criminal investigation of the attack, providing full support for any and all requests. Convene a renowned team of scientists and remediation experts to assure the safest and most effective techniques are utilized for the remediation. Ensure the remediation process meets the highest scientific standards recognized. Crown companies will create a fully integrated public-private partnership by requesting support from all government agencies with jurisdiction or support capabilities to assist as appropriate. And then, finally, to install Crown Company's corporate offices in the remediated facility and return the building to productive commercial use within the community. In the history section of their website, it says, Crown Companies honors the memory of Bob Stevens and recognizes the special place he had in the lives of his family, his co-workers, and his community. The tragic loss of the lives that resulted from the deadly anthrax attacks, including that of Mr. Stevens, is always close to the hearts of the project's team. The resilient spirit of the attack survivors is best epitomized by Ernesto Blanco, who after recovering from the attack, insisted on quickly returning to his job delivering mail at American Media Inc. And then it links you to a CNN website that's just like an anthrax fear-mongering thing. And who is Marcor Remediation? In an article from January 22, 2006, from the Baltimore Sun, it says Marcor gets calls for big cleanups. It says the company was tearing down walls and removing asbestos in the basement of the Pentagon when terrorists struck with an airliner on September 11, 2001. Days later, its crews were first on the scene at the Fresh Kills landfill in New York, Staten Island, where hundreds of workers labored for 10 months to sift through every scrap of rubble from the World Trade Center. It says... A lot of what we do is kind of glorified janitorial work, says David A. Jungers, president of the firm. Three companies were hired to process the more than 1.8 million tons of debris from the World Trade Center, but Marcor was first to the scene and last to leave. Now, how did David Rustine even know to use Marcor? How did he get linked up with them to hire them in the first place to decontaminate this AMI building that he had just purchased for $40,000. Well, David A. Rustine is actually related via family to the people 
who started the company Mark Horror Remediation. I don't think he's directly related to David A. Jungers, the president, but David Rustin actually had family connections inside the company, and that's why he decided to hire them. So if you believe that there was some shenanigans done at the World Trade Center crime scene and that this company, Marker Remediation, says they were the first to arrive and first to leave at the Fresh Kills landfill, transporting and getting rid of World Trade Center debris, then I think it's safe to assume that this company had some reason to come into the AMI building and cover something up or destroy evidence. So while there may have been some shenanigans taking place on behalf of American Media Inc. and David Pecker to destroy their archives for some reason, maybe to shield liability by having someone purchase them and take on that liability, but also the company hired to clean the building and decontaminate it from anthrax seems to have been involved in covering up the World Trade Center crime scene. And they were actually hired and put into action by Rudy Giuliani right after 9-11 to do this. And if you missed that from earlier, they were actually at the Pentagon on the day that the Pentagon got hit by a plane doing asbestos removal work there in the basement of the Pentagon. Now, when you look up marker remediation, it does seem like a lot of their stuff that they do is environmental type stuff. But what else are they involved in? Well, they've also been involved in some famous controlled demolitions. They were involved in knocking down some famous industrial towers that actually appear in the movie Flight of the Navigator. They were involved in demolishing old rocket launching platforms and hangars at Cape Canaveral in Florida. This is a Florida-based company I forgot to mention, Marcor Remediation. In one of these Sun Sentinel articles about David Rustin, he's described as a cutthroat businessman who's very savvy. Now, if you actually go to the map that I put together that I've been referencing in the last few episodes, the Florida 2001 attack event map, you can actually find a lot of addresses that are related to Marcor Remediation and Crown Companies that I actually found looking at the buildingupdates.com website. You can actually find an archived version of it. I'll link to it on the notes of this podcast, and I'll let you actually look through David Rustin's website. He listed a lot of properties that he had sold back in the day from Crown Companies. So some of those are now on the map. And I should also mention that David Rustin passed away in 2016. He was only, I think, 62 years old. You can look at his obituary online. Between his wife and him, there are a lot of strange proximity hits between his properties and the 9-11 hijackers, oddly. And that's just something that I didn't expect to see at all, but you can see that on the map. I don't really know how to make sense of that. Now, for some reason, towards the end of 2003, David Rustin, the building purchaser, decides to replace Marcoro Remediation, the original company that he had hired to clean the building, this company that really likes to brag about being the first and the last at Fresh Kills Landfill to clean up the World Trade Center debris. For some reason, David Rustin decides to hire instead a company called Bio One, which is a partnership between Sabre Technical Services and Rudy Giuliani Partners. They merged together and founded their own company called Bio One. Yes, you heard that right. You aren't dreaming. David Rustin got rid of Marcor Remediation, the company that Rudy Giuliani chose to be the first and the last at Fresh Kills Landfill and replace them with an actual company of Rudy Giuliani's, a company that seemed like it was formed based around this particular attack. Rudy Giuliani's company, Bio One, broke onto the scene with a really dialed-in press rollout and this big publicity stunt 
where they did a series of press conferences where they claimed they were going to launch the cleaning of the building in real time in front of the cameras. Rudy Giuliani would flaunt this as a patriotic symbol. And he even drapes a big, gigantic American flag across the AMI building when he shows up for one of the big press unveilings. But there's also some other information out there that I've seen that suggests that Rudy Giuliani was already in contact with David Pecker and AMI about cleaning the building before it was sold. David Rustine himself has said that after he purchased the building, he was approached by Bio One, that they approached him. Well, that could be. I mean, all that stuff could be true. Rudy Giuliani and David Pecker obviously have a relationship, as we've seen materialize during all the Russiagate shenanigans, but mostly over the Inquirer catch and kill story about Karen McDougal. But what is Sabre? What is Sabre Technical Services? And what did they do previous to this? And how did Rudy Giuliani even link up with them? Well, the second question I actually don't know the answer to. And it's not very clear based on everything that I've read how that relationship actually took place. But John Mason, the CEO of Sabre Technical Services, was given these no-bid contracts to clean all the other anthrax-contaminated buildings in these attacks. So, for example, the Brentwood Post Office, a Hamilton Post Office in New Jersey. And from USA Today, an article from March 14, 2005, it says, the New Jersey Hamilton Post Office that handled anthrax-laced letters reopened Monday morning nearly three and a half years after the deadly mailings. The center was stripped to its bare walls in a renovation with an estimated cost between $80 million and $100 million. All the furniture and mail sorting equipment was replaced. The building was fumigated early last year with chlorine dioxide gas. And this is obviously talking about Sabre Technical Services and the Hart Senate Office Building. And each one of these jobs individually costs in the neighborhood of something like 50 to $100 million a pop. So why was the Bio One cleanup, even as quoted as Rudy Giuliani so much later, so much cheaper than this, according to the contract that I will explain to you? That's confusing. Why was Sabre able to charge so much money for the cleanup of these other buildings and this gigantic AMI office building, in the end, really only cost a few million dollars to clean? Well, John Mason, the guy in charge of Sabre Technical Services, gets interviewed by a reporter named Louis F. Perez for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. And I think this reporter is actually a little bit sketchy, and I'll tell you about him more later. But it's all about how Sabre Technical Services came to be. And this article came out after Bio One got the job to clean the AMI building. And in this article, it talks about how John Mason was driving to his son's high school football game three years ago in California. Three years ago would have been right after 9-11. This article was written in 2004. When a cryptic caller reached his cell phone, it was a government official who began quizzing Mason about disinfecting large buildings. He called back three or four times and asked more questions. Finally, a second caller got on the phone and asked Mason to take an overnight flight from Sacramento to Washington, D.C., no one talked about anthrax, but the caller told Mason it was his patriotic duty to make the trip. 
The phone call led Mason and his company, best known for disinfecting wineries, food plants, and oil wells, to the front lines of the bioterrorism fight. Now, they're in Palm Beach County, cleaning up the former AMI building. I'm sitting here going, this is crazy, Mason said. I thought, really? I've got to do this and find out what this is about. Mason's instructions were to go to Capitol Hill and give his name to the first police officer he saw. No one explicitly told Mason, 44, why he was in the nation's capital, but by that time he had an idea. He said he was told to approach the first police officer that, I, that he saw outside of Capitol Hill and introduce himself, and when he did, the police officer said, yes, you're here for the meeting, right? And then the article says he was introduced as the person who would help design the cleanup of the Capitol buildings infected with anthrax. So all of a sudden, John Mason, this is not even a no-bid contract that the government is giving Saber Technical Services. They're literally whisking this guy away, almost like Dustin Hoffman in the movie Sphere, you know, with no information, and they're introducing him to an environmental protection agency official at this meeting as the person who would help design the cleanup of the Capitol buildings infected with anthrax without even talking to him about anything first. I mean... Can you imagine this shit? They didn't even like brief him at all about why he was there and he just gets thrown into this meeting and he claims that this is how they introduce him. So Mason says, that's when it went from merely crazy to the most intense three months I've ever had in my life. This is when he had to call someone else at Sabre Technical Services that he hadn't spoken to in months. Someone that he was also good friends with, a man named Daryl Deachant. So Mason asked Deachant to just get on a plane and come to DC right away. And Deachin asks him why, and Mason says, I can't really tell you about that, but I really need you in D.C. tomorrow. Deachin soon realized Mason was talking about ridding the Capitol complex of anthrax. Mason's equipment was in Odessa, Texas, so Mason called Bobby Somerville, 58, who operated the equipment for disinfecting oil wells. I can't tell you a lot, but I need you to load up everything that you could think that you could possibly need and then full load of chemicals on the truck and trailer, Mason recalled telling Somerville. Bobby Somerville then relayed the instructions to Kirk Alexander for Sabre Technical Services, who helps maintain oil wells after the disinfecting process. Kirk Alexander's initial response was, what has Mason been drinking, he said. And it basically says that within a week, John Mason was in charge of the entire cleanup operation, and he had made the decision to fumigate the Hart Senate office building. And then it says, U.S. Air Force personnel redirected a massive C-5 Galaxy transport plane to pick up Somerville, Kirk Alexander, and their equipment, including a 40-foot, 30,000-pound trailer with 80 tons of equipment. And then this is just absolutely fucking ridiculous, talking about a no-bid contract where this company had no experience in remediating anything from anthrax, and they didn't do work with bioterrorism before. They'd never done something like this before. And this is where it just gets absolutely over the top. Mason said that it was an unorthodox demonstration by one of their employees, Somerville, that helped restart the process after there was a bureaucratic delay in fumigating the Hart Senate office building. Standing outside in the parking lot, a Capitol housing officer asked Somerville whether chlorine dioxide was flammable or explosive. Mason recalled the scene. Somerville took an unmarked bottle of chlorine dioxide solution out of a cooler filled with soft drinks. He opened it, and a puff of gas floated out. Nothing happened. He poured some on his cigarette. There was no fire or explosion. Next, he took his hand, coated in the solution, and stuck it in his mouth. He lived. I clean with this stuff, Somerville recalled, saying. 
The company started testing that night, Mason said. I mean, what the fuck is happening here? Whose idea was it to whisk this dude away who had no experience working in this capacity before? I mean, this is, it's just really fascinating. And then the fact that Giuliani gets linked up with him, I mean, how did that happen? Does John Mason and Giuliani's relationship go back beyond this? I couldn't find anything about that, but maybe it does. Maybe Giuliani was the one who helped Saber get this contract in the first place. And Rudy Giuliani would say that after his company Bio One cleaned the building, that they were going to move into the building and lease it from David Rustine and have the headquarters of Bio One be in the building to study the effects of bioterrorism and anthrax attacks in their laboratory that they were going to install inside of the AMI building. So why did Rudy Giuliani decide to get involved in the anthrax cleanup business? What's up with that? I mean, what is his history with bioterrorism or anthrax or cleaning up remediation for contamination? What is his history with that? Is this just something he swooped in and, and decided to cash in on to profit off of the hysterical era of terrorism after 9-11? Well, actually, Rudy Giuliani has a strange history with bioterrorism, or I should say with bio-events. Now, I'm going to go into, in a little bit, the actual details of the contract that David Rustine entered into with Rudy Giuliani's company, BioOne. Steve Osterl was the CEO of BioOne and Sabre Technical Services at the time, and John Mason was the chairman of BioOne, along with Rudy Giuliani, who was basically the founder of this company. But back in the early 2000s, there was a pandemic scare, probably one of the biggest ones to happen in the United States before the Ebola incident here, and then COVID. And this was the West Nile virus outbreak in New York, including parts of New York City, even Queens. An article from the New York Times from March 21st, 2000, says that West Nile virus infected up to 1,900 people just in Queens. Rudy Giuliani was mayor in New York City in 1999 when the West Nile virus epidemic broke out. And according to an article by the 1999 West Nile Outbreak Response Working Group titled The Outbreak of West Nile Virus Infection in the New York City Area in 1999, it says that outbreak surveillance identified 59 patients who were hospitalized with West Nile virus infection. The medium age of these patients was 71 years. Most of the patients, 63%, had clinical signs of encephalitis. Seven patients died, 12%. Muscle weakness was documented in 27% of the patients, and flaccid paralysis in 10%. Now, encephalitis can cause, like, full permanent paralysis for some people. That movie that's called The Awakenings, with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, is about this how they didn't know that a bunch of the people in the hospital had encephalitis and they basically came up with a cure for it and woke them up. They were essentially in a state of permanent paralysis, like muscle paralysis. What's interesting about this incident is Rudy Giuliani actually hooked up the contract himself for something that a lot of people ended up believing was a toxic way to respond to the West Nile virus outbreak by spraying malathion, a cancer-causing insecticide over New York from airplanes onto everywhere. And Malathion was supposed to be this more advanced, cutting-edge thing to eradicate the West Nile virus-carrying mosquitoes that had suddenly 
started infecting all these people in New York City. But in fact, they also used trucks that were just straight up spraying people's homes and the streets all around New York in violation of federal laws, apparently. There was actually a lawsuit filed by a lawyer named Carl S. Copeland from the New York Times from an article from 2000. It says, in a lawsuit over New York City's use of pesticides to control West Nile virus, a lawyer for a coalition of environmental groups argued yesterday that using the chemicals in heavily populated areas violated federal and state environmental laws. After showing a videotape of spray trucks emitting plumes of anvil, a pesticide over sidewalks in Harlem. From a website called safetouse.com, it talks about how residents of New York objected to the spraying. One resident, Michael Gurion, hung a 20 by 30 inch sign in front of his Fieldstone Road home with the words, I object to being poisoned, written in big letters. And a scientist responds, I cannot understand how spraying from the road will help the problem. What happens to the mosquitoes that are breeding and swarming in the swamp areas where there are no roads, he said. Most of the mosquitoes will survive. This will not stop the spread of West Nile virus. And then the article finishes by saying, Citizens complained that spraying was rescheduled without notice, and many were caught having to walk and travel through the pesticide fog. And during some of the spraying, a 70-year-old man died who was not infected with the West Nile virus. He suddenly died, and he had been in the path of the spraying that was being done from these trucks on the streets. And this is an article from the Village Voice from July 17, 2001, from Eric Bard called Mutant Malathion. And it talks about how there's a temperature of storage for Malathion, where all these people that were now buying it, including Rudy Giuliani, who basically helped promote this idea in the first place for the future West Nile virus outbreaks that would continue, Malathion's manufacturer did not make it clear enough. Keminova already knew as early as 1996 that Malathion would actually mutate into a corrosive poison, a toxin that could be very, very toxic to human beings beyond 77 degrees storage. That beyond 77 degrees Fahrenheit, that the actual chemical malathion will start to essentially go through a chemical process and turn into something else more toxic. And the article says, no one knows exactly how toxic the chemical has become at any given site or how much of that malathion had been shipped north for use in New York's attack on the West Nile virus. A Keminova executive hung up the phone when asked for comment. In 1996, two Mississippi children were made severely ill by the pesticide. Mayor Rudy Giuliani assured the public that proper precautions had been taken and the spraying posed little risk. Stay inside, he advised, and close your windows. And whose idea was this? Well, apparently it was concocted together by Rudy Giuliani and someone that he had just appointed to a new job in New York City, the head of the Office of Emergency Management, Jerome Hauer. And Jerome Hauer would also later become involved in a high-up position at SAIC, defense company. Jerome Hauer would also take a position at Kroll Associates that ran security at the World Trade Center. And if you're familiar with John O'Neill, the FBI agent who was infamously tracking down bin Laden, who got fired under some bizarre circumstances where he accidentally leaves a briefcase in a restaurant and loses classified documents and has to essentially resign in embarrassment, 
Jerome Hauer hires John O'Neill to be head of security. And John O'Neill was unfortunate enough to be in the World Trade Center and die in its collapse. But Jerome Hauer was fortunate enough to not be that day. Well, Jerome Hauer was originally the head of Rudy Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management. And him and Rudy Giuliani concocted this idea to respond to the West Nile virus outbreak with chemical spraying. And this was actually really, really controversial in New York, and a lot of people believe that it caused birth defects and cancer, and even mass lobster and fish deaths that affected fishermen's lives for years in New York. But it's also just a little bit suspicious, I think. Based on who these people are, Jerome Hauer and Rudy Giuliani, and what we know they're already connected to, wink, wink, I think we need to maybe look at this as, was this something that might have been deliberately released? Was this sort of a, a government deliberately released, you know, bioterror experiment. I mean, there's countless, countless examples of the U.S. military doing biological experiments on the U.S. public. I mean, there's too many to count. There's the SHAD program, where they basically exposed something like up to a million soldiers and U.S. government employees to unknown quantities of chemical and biological weapons experiments. And a lot of these were first revealed as, yeah, we did a bunch of this, but they were mostly inert and they didn't harm anybody. I mean, at worst, we used Bacillus globigi, I think it's pronounced. And Bacillus globigi, from this Business Insider article called Military Government Secret Experiments Biological Chemical Weapons, it talks about how this was one of the more popular bacteria that they would use to experiment with because... It would spread really quickly and they could easily transport it undetected and do these experiments clandestinely in public places. They did it in New York City subways. This article talks about how they sprayed something like 500,000 people with Bacillus globigi from a giant hose off a U.S. naval ship off the coast of San Francisco into the city in the 1960s. These people running these experiments would go into the New York subways and break light bulbs filled with millions of bacteria. And from this Business Insider article, it talks about a National Academy of Sciences paper that analyzed these experiments after they were revealed in documents. And it notes that Bacillus globigi is now considered a pathogen and is often a cause of food poisoning, but infections are rarely known to be fatal though fatal cases have occurred. I mean, Jesus Christ, can you imagine at a certain point in your life getting terrible, terrible food poisoning and like not even knowing what happened, but actually you got it from being sprayed by some kind of biological weapon that the U.S. government had determined inert enough that it was okay to just blast you and your fucking grandma and your kids with in a public space? I mean, it's absolutely horrifying. I guess my point here is that why... Would we imagine that this type of stuff just stopped? Are we supposed to be a more civilized society now that our government doesn't do these kinds of things? I mean, I would think that they just probably unload the liability from themselves by pushing a lot of the stuff into the private sector now. But it would be quite horrifying to think that the government and people who are sort of eradicating West Nile virus in New York were somehow involved in this. And I'm talking about Rudy Giuliani and Jerome Hauer. Because Eventually, according to AAFP.org, it says from June 10th to December 31st, 2002, 
there were 4,156 cases of West Nile virus infection reported in 39 states and the District of Columbia. It started in New York, but it triggered the largest human abroviral encephalitis epidemic in U.S. history. And I forgot to tell you, this is from an interesting website, and I don't, it's a, it seems like it's a little bit paranoid, but it's actually filled with great information. It's called thirdring.wordpress.com. This website has an interesting quote on it, and I don't know where it comes from, that Jerome Hauer was actually part of a company called Oravax. It says the Oravax company dealings with government orders for a yet-to-be-tested West Nile virus vaccine. This company was developing a West Nile virus vaccine before the 1999 outbreak. Its vice president went to Washington with Jerome Hauer and the head of Rockefeller University in 1998 to pressure President Clinton to stockpile billions of dollars worth of vaccines. So if this is all true, I haven't verified this. I'm assuming it's true. A lot of this stuff on this website's totally checked out. Is that Jerome Hauer was associated with a guy who was looking to profit off a West Nile virus vaccine that was untested, and this was before the West Nile virus outbreak. That Jerome Hauer was part of a lobbying pressure campaign along with a guy who aimed to make profit off of this vaccine. Pretty wild. There was a lot of stuff in the air actually following the West Nile virus outbreaks and deaths in New York saying, was this the work of Saddam Hussein? There was actually an article saying West Nile mystery, I believe in the New Yorker, saying that maybe this was the work of Saddam Hussein. In fact, this idea of Saddam Hussein being responsible for a potential biological attack or even news and tabloid news specifically going out saying that Saddam Hussein was behind biological attacks, it wasn't just the New Yorker, was already quite prevalent in the United States. In fact, before AMI, American media, even bought Globe, the Globe, under the publication of The Sun, while Robert Stevens was working there as art editor, ran a giant headline that says Saddam's flu plot to destroy America, deadly plague smuggled in with Gulf War veterans. You also have to remember that Bill Clinton, you know, all throughout the late 1990s was talking about how Saddam was going to send a Scud missile over here laced with anthrax. And of course, Jerome Hauer was the guy who now says it wasn't his idea to put the emergency command bunker in World Trade Center 7. He blames it on Rudy. They've actually had a falling out since 9-11. But he's the guy that's largely credited with coming up with this idea to put the emergency command center, if any emergency were to happen in New York, that the office to control that emergency and to head that emergency would be in World Trade Center Building 7. They built this multi-million dollar command bunker with fortified bomb-proof walls and such and its own water supply and everything. And it was immediately abandoned on the day of 9-11. Now it became a point of controversy that why did they put it there if the World Trade Center in 93 had been bombed? Why wouldn't they put it somewhere else? So they ended up basically blaming each other later on for the choice of putting it there. Neither one of them wanted to take the blame. And Giuliani's behavior just during 9-11 is also strange. The fact that he abandons the command bunker, the fact that Jerome Hauer and him both left it completely empty that day. I mean, obviously that's strange. The fact that he seemed to know that the World Trade Center tower was about to collapse and basically said so on a TV interview, that he got warning that the tower was about to collapse so he told his men to get out. Well, the firefighters in the other building 
and even in the same building he was in had no idea because their radios were pieces of shit that he refused to upgrade properly. In fact, he actually upgraded into some specific new type of radio based on some weird contract he had with some company that they weren't able to transmit properly. So it wasn't that they were old radios, they just weren't the right kind that the firefighters needed. Many of them could have saved their lives that day if they knew what Rudy seemed to know. How did he know that? And also that sort of 9-11 truther talking point that you may have heard before, that the FEMA had their equipment there the night before 9-11, and they sort of kicked into action when 9-11 happened. They just happened to have a lot of their equipment there and people there. That's actually true. And do you know why that's true? Well, it's because Rudy Giuliani was actually partially in charge of a bioterrorism anthrax attack drill that was supposed to take place on a pier in New York City, Pier 29, on September 12, 2001, the day after 9-11. It was canceled because of 9-11, but FEMA was actually there to participate and help run this drill. And this was actually something that a FEMA spokesperson came out and tried to debunk very early on when 9-11 conspiracy started rolling down the hill like a snowball. This talking point that FEMA already had equipment there and had already staged their stuff and set up where they actually set up their emergency command surrogate center, Pier 29. The FEMA spokesperson came out to debunk this truther talking point. But it wasn't until Rudy Giuliani actually testified at the 9-11 commission hearings where he validated it by letting it slip that it was entirely 100% true. Do you have fever or chills now? There was even a biohazard drill today. It was originally scheduled for September 12th, the day after the world changed. Next day, on September 12th, Pier 92 was going to have a drill. It had hundreds of people here, from FEMA, from the federal government, from the state, from the state emergency management office, and they were getting ready for a drill for biochemical attack. So that was going to be the place they were going to have the drill. The equipment was already there. So I just think there's some strange coincidences here already with Rudy Giuliani. And somehow Rudy Giuliani was given authority to be in charge of the World Trade Center cleanup site. Who gave him the authority to do this? According to news reports, he actually was able to dictate what FEMA was allowed to do or what access they were allowed to have. He basically gave private companies like Marcor Remediation and Tolly Construction and Manafort Brothers Construction more authority than FEMA. How is Rudy able to wield this kind of power? Why wouldn't the Bush administration swoop in and say, you know what, Rudy, you can't tell FEMA what to do. We're telling you what to do. Well, I think that this means that the Bush administration somehow allowed Rudy to have this kind of power. And I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest Rudy Giuliani was able to boss around a lot of federal agencies right after 9-11 and during the anthrax attacks. For example, Gumby for Christ found a quote from a book where one of the top CDC officials at the time is reflecting on how Giuliani was basically badgering him to say that the anthrax letter from NBC News was anthrax. And Rudy was getting very, very upset that the CDC wouldn't say it was anthrax until they finally kind of caved to him. A New York Post paper from October 26, 2001, about a little lot of newspapers from October 2001 to see if I would find any anthrax stuff in them, and I found quite a bit in the lot that I purchased. And in this New York Post article from October 26, 2001, 
anthrax city mail crisis. So it's sort of an anthrax centric issue. But there's an article in it that says Rudy, quote, rift with FBI is nothing to worry about. Mayor Giuliani admitted yesterday he's been very frustrated by the FBI's failure to share information about anthrax and has registered those complaints with the FBI and with others. But the mayor denied that he had a shouting match with Barry Mon, the agent in charge of the New York office. When I shout, you will hear it, Giuliani told reporters in Midtown. I haven't shouted once. I haven't had a battle with them. There have been some disagreements over things, and they have made some changes as a result of the things I asked for. So here we have Rudy Giuliani taking control over and bossing around three federal agencies in the wake of 9-11 and anthrax. FEMA, the FBI, and the CDC. Paul Manafort's family is Manafort Brothers Construction, one of the main companies that helped dispose of the World Trade Center crime scene. Why did they need to take all that stuff to a landfill so quickly? Was it really so they could get the gold and reopen Wall Street immediately? I mean, I think this is a part of the 9-11 story and this overall story that really hasn't been researched nearly enough. I think it could be really valuable to map out exactly which companies, which people, you know, what Kevin Ryan did in another 19 with the disposal, but much, much denser, I think could be really useful moving forward. And this is not a knock on Kevin Ryan, but for some reason, he doesn't include anything in his book about Marcor remediation, even though they also cleaned up the anthrax building. He doesn't include anything about Manafort Brothers Construction. He does talk about Tolly and some of the other companies and Rudy's sketchy connections to them, but he doesn't go into Rudy's connections at all to anthrax. And I think it's really important anytime we find any overlap between potential cover-ups, between potential activity involved in the crime. Any overlap between both crimes, it's very important to point that out. As I already said, Marcor Remediation wasn't just a waste disposal and remediation company. They were an expert demolition company. And they do a lot of demolition projects seemingly for the military in Florida. In fact, they have locations right near large military bases in Florida. David A. Jungers, the president of Marcor Remediation, has a lot of properties located sort of in the central area of the Wallace J. Hillard, Rudy Decker, Huffman Aviation front ops. David A. Jungers up on the Florida 2001 attack event map that I created. And look and see how close he is to some of these other suspicious characters that interacted with and trained the 9-11 hijackers. It's just a little bit bizarre. I tried to find Florida addresses for the founder of the company, who goes by the name Richard Clark, not to be confused with the Richard Clark, the counterterrorism czar for the Bush administration. But when I looked up Richard Clark, his only addresses of note were in Frederick, Maryland, which is also interesting, that Marcor seems to have some of their executives living right near Fort Detrick. Could be just a random coincidence. You can look up marcor.com on the Wayback Machine and find a series of PDFs on their community and press kit section of their website. Their clients include Lockheed Martin, Pfizer, the U.S. Postal Service, the U.S. Department of Interior, the U.S. Naval Academy, the U.S. Air Force, the Washington Post, Texaco, AT&T, Amoco Oil Company, Amtrak, Bell Aerospace, Bethlehem Steel Corporation, Campbell Soup Company, 
Coca-Cola Enterprises, Conestoga Rovers, DuPont, General Electric, and American Airlines, and IBM. From their PDF titled, Press Kit Executives. Since 1980, Marcor Remediation has provided the business and public sectors with a diverse range of environmental services. Chairman and co-founder, Richard A. Clark. Chief Executive Officer, Richard D. Ehrlich. President and Chief Operating Officer, David A. Jungers. Senior Vice President Operations, Timothy J. Miller. And Pamela A. Welsenbach, Secretary and Treasurer. And it looks like the press contact at the time that they made this press package was named Elva Clements. This is a crazy quote from an article from the Baltimore Sun from January 22nd, 2006, talking about their role in the cleanup efforts of the AMI building. And it quotes from a Markor project manager named Mark Klotzbuck. The article starts, The work took a toll on equipment and people. Operators worked 10-hour and 12-hour shifts, interrupted only when equipment broke down or a tire was punctured by jagged chunks of debris, something that happened over 500 times during the course of the project. The running clocks that are standard equipment on Markor excavators often showed more than 23.5 hours of running time at the end of a typical day. Breaks were few. But the hardest moments came in the last several weeks when the families of victims were allowed to visit the landfill, which had become a huge gravesite. You'd see a woman there with a little boy, for example, and they'd both be crying, Klotzbach said. They'd be watching our machines flying around and moving the material from the spreading yards, and you knew their loved ones had to be in the debris that we were handling. But I think we just need to take all this stuff together. The fact that Markor was already at the Pentagon doing asbestos abatement on the day it was hit by a plane, and they cleaned up the World Trade Center crime scene, and they cleaned up the anthrax crime scene. I mean, it's very, very strange. Manafort Brothers Incorporated, or Manafort Brothers Construction, which has relation to Paul Manafort, although he doesn't play a primary role in the company, from the Hartford Current, which is actually a pretty good local paper. It's done a fantastic series on anthrax years and years ago. They actually run a story, well, it's by the Associated Press, but they run a story about Manafort Brothers Construction. It says, Manafort Family Business Defends Name as Cousin Sits in Jail. What do you do if you share a name with one of the most prominent defendants in the special counsel's investigation into Russia? Paul Manafort's daughter decided to change her name. At Manafort Brothers Incorporated, a family-owned New England construction firm, they are defending the Manafort name and legacy while distancing themselves from their cousin, Trump's former campaign chairman. The Manafort name has been a familiar one in New England politics and business for decades. Manafort Brothers is one of New England's best-known construction companies. Its name pops up alongside highways, at hotel construction sites, on heavy equipment used to dig holes or tear down buildings. After 9-11, Manafort Brothers helped remove what was left of the World Trade Center buildings. A recent press touting Manafort Brothers' 100th anniversary boasts that the company is still led by the strong moral and business ethics of the Manafort family, a line that raises eyebrows among some who have followed the family history. The company says 
Paul Manafort's criminal issues have nothing to do with the firm, and that business has not been affected by the prosecution. Paul Manafort has never worked at the company and has no ownership of it, according to President Jim Manafort Jr. I can almost count on one hand how many times somebody has asked me what the relationship is, he said. Manafort was convicted of tax and bank fraud charges in Virginia, where he'll be sentenced Thursday. Paul's grandfather, James, founded the construction business as a demolition firm, New Britain House Wrecking Company, after coming to the U.S. from Italy in the early 1900s. The family says its original name in Italy was Manaforte, which translates to strong hand. Paul Manafort's father, Paul Sr., later took over the company with three of his brothers. Paul Sr. was a Republican mayor of the old mill town of New Britain in the 1960s and 1970s. After his name emerged in the investigation of a job-fixing scheme, he acknowledged that he had a colorful political career. I'm good copy, Paul Sr. told the paper in 1980, the same year his son founded the Washington lobbying firm Black, Manafort, and Stone. Paul Sr. was eventually charged with two counts of perjury, which he denied and which were ultimately dropped. He died in 2013. From Manafort Incorporated's website on the Wayback Machine, they have a PDF pamphlet called A Nation Recovers After 9-11, going back to square one at ground zero. There is newfound respect for those who wear hard hats in New York City, an abiding appreciation for those who have the demolition and cleanup skill to bring a semblance of order out of chaos. It began with the first few attempts, rescuers digging by hand into the gray dust of what was the World Trade Center, pulling at the twisted metal in hopes a cry for help might be heard. But the majestic Twin Towers had been imploded with so much force that the early optimism of finding life among the ruins quickly faded. Rescue efforts were given over to cautious cleanup and heavy machinery. New Yorkers leaned from balconies and lined with the West Side Highway leading into downtown Manhattan. In those first few weeks, waving flags and welcoming the transports of machines going to the site. Among the earliest were six semis, each cradling a section of two 75 metric ton John Deere 750 excavators. The machines had been purchased only a few days earlier by Manafort Brothers Incorporated, Plainview, Connecticut. As subcontractor at Ground Zero, known for their demolition skills and problem solving abilities. This is from the same pamphlet. The most remarkable thing is we never saw a large piece of concrete in the Twin Towers rubble. It was so completely pulverized that it was ground to a fine dust. There was no evidence the towers had been a 10 million square foot office complex. There was no visual evidence of desks, chairs, computers, and office equipment. Nothing. One of the people who was part of the crew at the pile for Manafort says in the same pamphlet named Frank Danino says, Towers 110 stories high were in a pile no taller than 80 or 90 feet. It was so compressed and so hot you couldn't walk on some spots. We were still pulling out cherry red hot beams eight weeks after we started. One beam was put on a truck bed and caught the sleeper on fire. After that, we just set them over to the side and let them cool down. Manafort was given special permission because of the circumstance to use a wrecking ball, something that was outlawed in New York City 15 years ago. They are one of the few companies who still retain this forgotten art. This is also a bizarre statement. It sounds like they used some of the steel beams that they had pulled out of the wreckage 
and use them as wrecking balls to destroy more of the rubble. It says beams were so heavy they were oxy-flamed in four to five foot sections and used by Manafort's crew as six-ton wrecking balls on their cranes. So it's Paul Manafort's grandfather that started this company. His father seems like he was sort of a criminal, corrupt politician of some kind, but took over this company with his two brothers. And then sort of the two brothers are the ones who continued running this company. Evidently, Paul Manafort himself is not that connected to it. But he still decided in his trial, where he got thrown under the bus during the Russiagate investigation, he actually tried to use a good behavior, good family standing plea by having the defense attorney tell the judge that, you know, he has a good family reputation. Manafort Brothers Incorporated, Manafort Construction, they were helping as a patriotic duty, helping the 9-11 cleanup efforts, and this was sort of used in Paul Manafort's trial. Manafort Brothers Incorporated also has expertise in demolition and remediation work. But lucky for these companies, they weren't there having to basically dig through a giant mangled pile of bent-up steel that was something that they would have to spend months trying to disassemble and cut and even having to demolish little pieces of it in order to carry it away. I mean, if any of these specific people were involved in trying to get any of the steel and separate it from the rest of the rubble, then their job was rather easy in terms of what they had to do. And some of these companies were given specific sites, and they were given different quadrants of the actual pile. If you look on the website for what happened at the World Trade Center cleanup, it does say that somehow Rudy Giuliani sort of took authority over the whole situation and was able to boss FEMA around, and no one really understood who was in control of the situation ultimately. And Bernard Carrick specifically was the one who was giving out passes to people, including other federal law enforcement. If you were a FEMA member, apparently, you couldn't just walk into the pile if you're a part of this cleanup effort. You had to actually personally get a pass from Bernard Carrick, someone who I haven't talked about enough in this podcast series, but who is a very sketchy fucking figure who spent time in jail from taking a bribe from a rich Israeli and who served in Iraq as the person in charge of training the Iraqi police and right under Paul Bremer from Kroll Associates, who was the governor of Iraq at the time. Now, one 9-11 truth or talking point that some people back in the day might have found annoying that is unavoidably true is that the steel, the recycled steel from the World Trade Center ended up being the, really the most valuable thing in there besides the gold and the other things that they tried to get out of the rubble. There was a vault underneath the building and so forth. But within the building itself, the only materials that were really recyclable and profitable was the steel, the steel girders, the steel beams. You would think a building that would collapse from a plane crashing into it and collapse sort of the way that the World Trade Centers allegedly did, that the steel beams and the steel girders would be mangled beyond belief. It would be an enormous project to have to sever those beams and essentially disassemble all of them in such a way that they would be easily cartable on trucks and on basically recycling truck beds to take away. Well, you would actually be wrong. In fact, most of the steel girders and steel beams were miraculously cut in such a way that they were very easily loadable on trucks. 
It almost looks like Legos falling apart when you look at the building up close and you you could see the steel beams basically just all shattering like little tiny pieces. They're already perfectly kind of arranged in these tiny, easily carryable little pieces. They're essentially all cut in these convenient shapes to be very easily portable. Now, that's pretty much a miracle because Rudy Giuliani arranged a massive recycled steel deal with the World Trade Center recycled steel. What company did he set up this recycled steel sale to? Well, the company was Bayo Steel, a major Chinese steel company. And I don't know enough about the situation in China to know if this is an accurate statement or not, but apparently this company is mostly controlled by the state or is basically a state-owned company. So to think that Rudy Giuliani, someone who constantly rails against the Chicoms and the CCP now, arranged the sale of the basically the World Trade Center crime scene to a Chinese steel company. Rudy Giuliani was the one to set this up, and he passed it on to Bloomberg. Now later, Bloomberg, when he became mayor, was asked about studying the World Trade Center debris to figure out how buildings collapse. And Michael Bloomberg said that you can do that better in a computer, and there's no point in looking through the debris for any sort of structural clues to try to reverse engineer how this happened. So that's an interesting comment. He's saying, no, 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 you, we got rid of all this stuff. You don't need to look through any of it. It's fine. It's gone. That shit's gone, dude. Don't worry about it. Do it in a computer. Everything's cool. The only prominent individual to make a big deal about the destruction of what was essentially a forensic crime scene so quickly and unnecessarily and doing it while circumventing regular protocol was Anthony Weiner on the House floor, believe it or not. When Anthony Weiner was still this guy who hadn't been known to everybody as being the guy who accidentally posted a picture of his half chub in tidy whities Anthony Weiner was actually known as this firebrand who would do these really impassioned floor speeches. Of course, that came much later in his career. This clip I'm about to play for you is actually from late 2002. And Anthony Weiner actually seems like he's sort of going out there on a limb and he actually seems quite nervous because nobody else was really saying this at the time in public, maybe in private they were. He seems rather nervous, but he is sort of assailing the Bush administration, although without directly naming any names. But he's also going after the sleazy New York City government officials who took control over this and blocked FEMA. At the time, it was Bloomberg who was mayor, but he seemed to be talking about Rudy Giuliani. And hundreds of families were ravaged by the crash of Flight 586. Within literally moments of that plane crash, the National Transportation Safety Board was on the ground, sequestering evidence, interviewing witnesses. One month and a day earlier, when the World Trade Center collapsed, nothing could have been further from the truth. There has been no comprehensive investigation. One expert in fire engineering concluded that there was virtually a non-existent investigation. We haven't examined any aspects of the collapse that might have impacted rescue worker procedures, even in this last month. Second, reports have emerged that crucial evidence has been mishandled. Over 80% of the steel from the World Trade Center site has already been sold for recycling. Much of it, if not all of it, before investigators and scientists can analyze the information. We can learn about future design of buildings, and perhaps as importantly, we might be able to revisit buildings that are currently standing and learn ways to make their occupants and firefighters safer. But let's return to 
four years later, well, actually more like three years later, fast forward to Rudy Giuliani's new partnership with Sabre Technical Services, Bio One, being tasked to clean up the AMI building. This turns into some publicity stunt where Rudy Giuliani, of course, is getting all this press for his heroic efforts in heading this company to clean the anthrax. Here's the only video footage I was able to find of this publicity stunt, essentially, that Rudy did, where he sat in a room that looked like he was doing like regular interval interviews where he had the press come into a room that he was set up in with lighting and a little background and he would do rotating interviews. So he must have had a lot of press covering this, but this is for some reason the only clip I could find. I actually had to go digging for it on the Vanderbilt TV archives. So this has never been uploaded to the internet yet, as far as I know. It's unavailable anywhere. I'm the first person to dig it up as part of what you're paying for as a subscriber to Media Roots Radio. (laughs) Although this clip was uh, surprisingly cheap. If you ever want to find obscure video clips, go search on the Vanderbilt TV archives and you might be surprised. This one was only $35, actually. And I wish you can see the podcast visually because in the clip, Rudy Giuliani looks like he's had a gigantic American flag draped over the front of the building as part of this publicity stunt with two gigantic, look like cheap-looking like trailers. They look almost like trailers that you would see at like a carnival. And these trailers have a Sabre Technical Services logo on one, on one of them. And the other trailer has a Bio One logo. And all the employees of Bio One are wearing these matching blue shirts, blue polo shirts. The first site attacked where one man died, now the last site to be cleaned up. We have chemical flow going to basement. With military precision, a private company pumps chlorine dioxide gas into the American media building. We're killing the anthrax, okay? Uh, We're getting rid of it, uh, destroying its uh, ability to live or reproduce. It's been almost three years since the tabloid newspaper publisher became the first victim of bioterror. Anthrax spores arrived in an envelope, just as they would later be sent to the Senate office building, NBC News, and other media organizations. The building was abandoned in a rush after the deadly spores spread. Inside the AMI building, exclusive video of what looks like a ghost town. Those red X's mark the spots that tested positive for anthrax. Among the contaminated items lost, the National Enquirer's newspaper archives, including the original photo from the famous edition, The Death of Elvis Presley. There were approximately 5 million hardbound photos in the library. So why did it take so long for this cleanup? The federal government refused to do it, saying it was a private matter. And AMI's insurance company said it was an act of war, not covered by its policy. So AMI walked away, selling the contaminated building as is for $40,000. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani helped form the company that sanitized this biohazard site. We're going to move the offices of Bio One into this building when we're finished as a uh, really a symbol that you can deal with these attacks. Five, four, 18 three, hours after the two, operation began. Five, yeah! Scientists gave the all clear. And the real estate speculator who bought the tainted building for $40,000 now figures the clean one is worth $10 million. Kerry Sanders, NBC News, Boca Raton, Florida. 
Well, there's just so many things to unpack there. First of all, now that I've done my research on all of this pretty thoroughly, there's several lies just in that news report. Let's address some of the things I noticed immediately. The very quick narrative they just sort of gloss over trying to justify the $40,000 price tag, saying that the government wouldn't pay and that the insurance wouldn't pay, are both not true. There was, in fact, a bill that hadn't even been put up to a vote yet that was offering to pay and buy the building. And the idea that the insurance wouldn't pay, I've already covered the fact that that's not true. The insurance actually did pay them for some of their lost photos. So where do they get this information from? Who's telling them this? And they're just repeating this on ABC News. Even if both of these things were true, let's say that the government wouldn't pay and that the insurance wouldn't pay, that still doesn't explain why they only sold it for $40,000. Because as I said earlier, someone offered to pay them $1 million for the building. So why on earth would they take $40,000 instead? It does not make sense. And unfortunately, you can't see it in the video, but when they all cheer at that part of the video, they actually throw their hats up into the air, all wearing these matching blue Bio One shirts. In the actual news report, they're showing them doing the cleaning process in real time. But since this seemed to be mostly a publicity stunt, it didn't actually seem to be the time when they finished doing the real cleanup effort, because things would take a very long time after this. The date of this news report was July 12, 2004, and it would take at least three years before David Rustin, the real estate developer, would be able to sell the building. I mean, it's just absolutely flagrant flagrant and disgusting, though, that there's a gigantic American flag draped over here. Here's Giuliani tying this into the war on terrorism, putting some kind of patriotic spin on it, saying it's a symbol against terrorists. And Giuliani is just trying as hard as possible to perpetuate his war on terror 9-11 America image as late as 2004. And one interesting thing that's also mentioned in this news report is that they planned to study biological attacks that Bio One planned to move their headquarters into the AMI building. They were going to lease it from David Rustin and open up a laboratory, a facility inside the AMI building. Well, that's rather interesting because what kind of facility could that possibly have been? Because technically, from what I understand, to actually handle and even test swabs of anthrax, you need to take it to a laboratory that is qualified as BSL Level 3. So was Giuliani actually going to spend the money and invest in a BSL-3 lab inside the AMI building? I mean, that's fucking insane if this is what he was going to do. But why else was he really there? I mean, what was the reason why he was there? Was he there maybe to take away from the fact that this was a really suspicious purchase in the first place by David Rustine? Maybe. I mean, because it almost seems like almost no one questioned it. I mean, but let's think about this. Did Rudy Giuliani take on this job or responsibility of helping destroy not just one crime scene on 9-11, but that somehow his role was to continue to destroy other crime scenes. Somehow, his responsibility was also to pilfer with the first crime scene in the anthrax attacks. I mean, if these attacks were conducted somehow by the same groups or connected, then this would basically imply that Rudy Giuliani is a figure that connects both of these attacks, along with David Rustin, along with figures like Gloria and Mike Irish, because I would say any character from the saga that I'm talking to you about that has connections to both 
the 9-11 quote-unquote cleanup or 9-11 foreknowledge and anthrax cleanup and anthrax foreknowledge or anthrax hype or fear-mongering or anything like that. Any of that stuff crosses over, I think you need to start looking closely. $40,000 building purchase, the fact that Rudy Giuliani was profiting off of the anthrax attacks. I mean, how did any of this shit not get called out? Other than the time it got called out later by former assistant director of the FBI, Frank Figluzzi, on that clip that I played you at the beginning of this episode. I'll play you a tiny bit of it more right now to remind you. This was during the David Pecker, Rudy Giuliani, Trump blow up that he said this. And that is Rudy Giuliani, because you know who David Pecker called to decontaminate his anthrax-filled building? Rudy Giuliani and a company called Bio One. So when you need toxic waste removed, you call Mr. Giuliani. That's way back, years ago, that that relationship existed. And I wonder what Mr. Pecker has to say and knows about Rudy Giuliani. But how is there no controversy about this while it was happening? Well, the only time a controversy erupted at all is when a former photographer sued American Media Inc. to return roughly 1,400 photos shot by a freelance photographer. But he does not sue David Rustine or Crown Companies, even though, as I'm about to prove to you, David Rustine was now given ownership over all this property of AMIs. Now, because this Elvis photo became such a focal point to a lot of the stories that would talk about this, the website called ElvisNews.com actually covers this. They covered the timeline of the David Rustine building purchase and Bio One and Rudy Giuliani pretty accurately, I think. So hats off to them for doing that. But what it says in this lawsuit is that he said many of the photos Rustine inherited when he bought the contaminated building belonged to photographers like his client, Greg Matheson, who shot them for the Inquirer and AMI's other newspapers with the understanding the company would protect them or pay him $1,500 each if they were destroyed. Matheson's $2 million lawsuit against AMI was thrown out by U.S. District Judge Donald Middlebrooks, who found that the freelance photographer couldn't collect damages because his pictures were destroyed by a criminal act. And then Matheson's lawyer pointed out in court papers he filed as part of the failed lawsuit that AMI was paid millions by its insurer for its archive of prints and photographs before Rustine bought the $3.8 million building. And this lawsuit seems to have held everything up. It only held it up, though, for a little bit. The lawsuit was filed around December 2004. But by January, there was already talk about Rudy Giuliani amping up his already existing publicity stunt. There was a weird rumor piece in the Palm Beach Post published January 21st, 2005 that says, Gutsy Giuliani. It's a hush-hush deal right now, but a source close to the former New York Mayor Giuliani tells the Palm Beach Post that he will walk into the anthrax-stricken America Media building in Boca without a hazmat suit sometime in late February. The ceremonial entrance into a building closed since October 2001 is designed to show there's no more danger inside the quarantine site. Giuliani, who founded Bio One, the company that cleaned up the building, will provide star power 
to a two-hour celebration. Those details are still being worked on. What a fucking weird-ass, like, sort of like tabloidy puff piece for Giuliani in here. Well, it actually gets worse. Apparently, Giuliani wanted to walk hand-in-hand with Ernesto Blanco, the anthrax victim from the AMI building who survived. Rudy Giuliani wanted to do this on news cameras live on TV. He wanted to, apparently he wanted to walk up to the building with a partial hazmat suit on, take it off or take off a gas mask of sorts and then walk into the building as sort of a publicity stunt for his own company. He couldn't get enough of being this sort of 9-11 hero. He had to just keep riding this wave. And let's really think about this. If Rudy Giuliani was actually involved in the 9-11 and anthrax cover-up, And these were sort of operations, inside jobs, if you will. Then what does this really mean that he's doing? Taking such pleasure and acting like he's the hero fighting terrorism. I mean, it's kind of like, it's really, really sick. It's it's sick, serial killer-like behavior almost. Sick shit, like almost like a a comic book villain of some kind. I mean, it's, it's really dark. I mean, the fact that he needed to use more terrorism victims as props beyond the 3,000 bodies that he already used to stand on top of the pile of, to hoist himself up. He needed a bioterrorism victim as a prop, but a dead one, Kathy Nguyen, wasn't enough because he had already used her as a prop back in November 2001 during his unnecessary series of anthrax press conferences. See, now he needed to use a living anthrax victim, someone who survived, Ernesto Blanco. So his plan in 2005 seemingly was to leak to newspapers and the news that he was going to do this heroic stunt where he was going to walk into the building, bringing in Ernesto Blanco, a living anthrax victim as a prop. What a fucking psychopath. At this time, Rudy Giuliani's company, Bio One, in this partnership with Sabre, was getting antsy because they knew that their contract was due to be renewed or expire soon, and they weren't sure if David Ristine was going to renew it based on this lawsuit. And everything gets settled completely by February 2005. From the South Florida Sun Sentinel, February 10th, 2005, it says, Parties finally agree on settling cleanup. It says, Karen Kavanaugh, Bio One Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel, declined to provide details, saying they still need to be finalized. But Bio One and Rustine agreed on how to rid the building of boxes filled with files and priceless tabloid pictures. From the Palm Beach Post, March 22, 2005, just about a month after the lawsuit against AMI was thrown out, it says Delray firefighters might aid AMI cleanup. BioOne, the joint venture between former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and Sabre Technical Services, is recruiting off-duty firefighters trained in handling hazardous materials to work at the site. Delray Beach Fire Rescue Battalion Chief Russ Accardi said Monday. Some Delray Beach firefighters have agreed to work with Sabre Technical Services, Accardi said, but he did not know what they would be doing. He guessed they might be moving boxes and did not rule out that firefighters might be employed in fumigating the contaminated materials. 35 to 40 firefighters are hazmat trained, he said. It wasn't enough for Rudy Giuliani to get the heads up on the tower collapsing and got out of there with his life intact. While a bunch of firefighters died who weren't so lucky, it wasn't enough for him to do that. Now he's actually exposing Florida off-duty firefighters, but 
to potential anthrax infection to help with this fucking sketchy as fuck anthrax cleanup operation? I guess so. Now, at this point, it's unclear how the dispute got fully resolved. But what is clear is that BioOne changed their plans, along with David Ristine, to now decontaminate over 160,000 items, even though there was something like originally 4 million items, they would say. Now BioOne was setting up a sophisticated decontamination chamber in the basement of the AMI building to now individually decontaminate every one of these 160,000 items with chlorine dioxide. This is around March 2005. An article in the Sun Sentinel from March 24th, 2005 by Louis F. Perez, who seems to be the guy who actually covered this the most heavily out of any journalist. But strangely, he really never asked any important questions challenging these narratives. But there's a diagram in his article showing how they built this decontamination chamber. It says that workers in safety suits will unpack boxes and stack the contents in slotted racks with boxes stored underneath. Chlorine dioxide gas will flood the room for three hours and then be pumped out. Items are put back into their original wax-coated boxes. The boxes are sealed, then sprayed with liquid chlorine dioxide for final decontamination. And then the contents are reboxed and sealed. It basically shows what appears to be a really sort of makeshift conveyor belt, you know, non-motorized, where they push contents over a series of makeshift like PVC pipe shower that sprays chlorine liquid onto it. So basically like something like a, you know, someone who basically just does like pool work or like spa work could throw together. This is basically as advanced as it gets, I guess, for Rudy Giuliani's company. And why couldn't AMI figure out how to do this if it was something this rudimentary? It's strange. And this is also interesting. Luis Perez claims in his own article, the South Florida Sun Sentinel, the first news organization allowed into the building that was the site of the country's first anthrax attack since it was quarantined, got an exclusive look Wednesday at the decontamination process going on in the basement. About 305,500 pounds of files, photos, employees' personal belongings, and mundane office items packed in about 12,000 boxes will be cleaned with chlorine dioxide gas. Now, I guess what stands out to me here is this might explain partly why Luis F. Perez for the Florida Sun Sentinel has been so sycophantic and unchallenging in his coverage of all this, because they were given apparently exclusive access to this. So this guy must have felt really special. So he was essentially just there, I guess, as the mouthpiece for this, it seems like. On David Rustin's website, buildingupdates.com, he actually recommends news outlets to follow what's going on with the building. And at the very top, he recommends people go check out the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Now, by June 10th, 2005, or by the middle of June, 2005, there must have already been trouble behind the scenes that we were not hearing about because it became evident that David Rustine was going to let BioOne's contract expire, even though they had essentially set up this giant system now to decontaminate all the boxes. It seemed as if David Rustine did not want BioOne to continue on and renew their contract to do as they had planned. For some reason, he decides to just let their contract expire. And BioOne must have known 
that this was going to happen because they were ready and willing to just walk off of the job literally the, like the hour that their contract expired and close up shop. So they must have already had a pretty clear indication that Rustine had no intention of renewing the contract. And this was by June of 2005. Another article in the Florida Sun Sentinel called Expired Contract Impedes Cleanup. It talks about what happened after Sabre and Bio1 started cleaning these boxes in their makeshift decontamination chamber. It says crews unloaded boxes in April and started treating the contents with chlorine dioxide gas. Last month, Bio1 hired a medical waste company to help disinfect boxes that held less sensitive materials. An April 2005 deadline was set one and a half years ago when Bio1 signed a contract to clean up the building with Rustine, Kavanaugh said. The deadline was extended to May 31st. Rustine and company officials have not disclosed the terms of their contract last year. Giuliani said the building's cleanup would cost about $5 million. Well, that may have been the case if they completed the full contract. Karen Kavanaugh, Bio1's chief operating officer, is in this article basically saying that she knows the contract has expired, but it seems as almost like she's hopeful that they're going to renew it. Because at this point, as I was saying before, the entire job up until this point, it seems as if Rustine had paid Bio1 or had already agreed to pay Bio1 something in the neighborhood of $1.5 million. So why it would cost another $3.5 million just to decontaminate the boxes doesn't really make sense to me. According to the documents that we've provided to you, in the lawsuit that Rustine filed against Mason of Bio One, Karen Kavanaugh's hopes were quickly dashed because when this May 31st deadline came is when Bio One apparently literally walks off the site. This is the timeline that I read in another Florida newspaper about this cleanup process. It says, May 31st, 2005, Bio One walks off the property after its contract with Rustine expires and they fail to come to terms on a new one. So when she says we're anxious to get back and finish the job, I mean, seems fairly unrealistic because apparently Rustine was already threatening to hire what Sun Sentinel calls their rival, Marcor Remediation. So we now start getting news stories, but actually not written by the Sun Sentinel in Florida, not written by this Aaron Boy reporter, but written by other reporters and also now revealed via a lawsuit that Gumby uncovered that David Ristine filed against John Mason of Bio One slash Saber. We now know sort of what caused this rift. Apparently, David Ristine thought that Bio One was extorting him. So what happened was David Ristine actually ended up suing Bio One, but he technically actually sued Saber for some reason and not Rudy Giuliani or Bio One. He directly sues Saber and John Mason, the chairman of Saber. And the reason that he sues him is he sues them saying that they were basically trying to extort him by saying that they would lose the infamous multi-million dollar valued Elvis photo unless he extended their contract. And in the lawsuit, David Rustine is claiming that John Mason of Sabre has a photograph of himself holding up the Elvis photo and essentially threatening to lose it if they don't extend the contract. From the same article from elvisnews.com, I'll go back to the lawyer who was representing Greg Matheson, the photographer for AMI, who filed the lawsuit against AMI. Attorney Mark Journey, when told about this lawsuit that David Rustine 
was filing against John Mason and Saber about the photographs, he said, how does he figure he owns them? And the article goes on to say, David Ristine, the Boca Raton developer who inherited millions of celebrity photos when he bought the tabloid's contaminated headquarters for $40,000 in 2003, says he suspects the 1977 photo of Elvis Presley was snatched by a man who teamed with former New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani to clean the building. Saying the photo is worth at least $1 million, Rustine filed the lawsuit, seeking to force John Y. Mason to give it back or pay him for it. Mason is wrongfully detaining the Elvis photo, Rustine says in the lawsuit filed last week. Neither Mason nor Rustine returned phone calls or emails Tuesday for comment. In the lawsuit, Rustine claimed Mason held the photo hostage and tried to use it to extort concessions from him. Rustine claims Mason showed him a copy of the original photo. Then facing a May 31, 2005 deadline to complete the cleanup, Mason told Rustine he would, quote, lose the Elvis photo, unquote, if he didn't get a contract extension, according to the lawsuit. Rustine reported the threat to another BioOne official and was told that Mason would not confirm the location of the photo. While Rustine didn't extend the contract, it was another nine months before the quarantine on the building would be lifted. When Rustine finally moved his real estate company into the renamed Crown Commerce Center in February 2007, the Elvis photo was missing. Now we're giving you access to this full David Rustine versus Saber and John Mason lawsuit in addition to the anthrax cash that Gumby for Christ got access to. Now, what's really funny actually is one of the exhibits that David Rustine filed in his lawsuit is a really grainy black and white photograph of who he claims to be John Mason wearing a hazmat suit inside the AMI building's photo library holding what looks to be the original version of the Elvis coffin photo up into the air. And David Rustine seems to be alleging that this photo in and of itself that was shown to him by John Mason was in and of itself sort of a form of extortion. Like, we know where the photo is, we're not going to give it to you until you extend our contract kind of a thing. And then apparently it was destroyed or lost or stolen. It's not really clear what David Rustine thinks happened to it in his lawsuit. And yeah, the lawyer that I was quoting earlier for AMI employee Greg Matheson, who filed the lawsuit against AMI thinking that's how he was going to get money for his photos, even though Rustine now owns them. The attorney for him, Mark Journey, said, how does he figure he owns them? Talking about David Rustine. It's a very good question. Well, he technically did own them. But here's where it just gets really odd. In this lawsuit, you basically get the full details of exactly what BioOne was paid to do by David Rustine. And you also get documents about the purchase that David Rustine made of the AMI building in the first place. Now, here you have in the contract in David Rustine's lawsuit against John Mason and Saber, what he got in terms of personal property with the AMI purchase. It says, all personal property is being conveyed to the buyer at closing. Prior to the closing, the seller may remove, destroy, or shred any documents described on Exhibit A or any paper products that it wishes, but is under no obligation to remove from the property any such destroyed or shredded 
materials. Any documents described on Exhibit A not removed by seller prior to closing will be subject to destruction during cleanup, and seller waives all interest in same. The buyer acknowledges that there are documents including pictures and personal letters on the premises and will destroy all such remaining documents on the property during the cleanup process. Now, this is fascinating because it implies that in the sale, they wanted him specifically to agree to destroy the rest of the property on the premises. So basically, they were paying for it to be destroyed. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Does that make any sense to you? Now, this is strange. In the actual contract between AMI, which would still own the subsidiary, the Globe, so it says the Globe in this contract, I guess technically the building was still under the Globe, even though it was owned by AMI. It says that contractor agrees to permit Globe Communications Corp for the purposes of destroying or shredding any documents or personal items left in the building in connection therewith the contractor shall provide as its sole cost and expense for Globe's use, five laborers for three days, to the extent that Globe or its agents do not destroy or shred all such documents and or personal items, then the contractor agrees to destroy and remove or remove and destroy all remaining documents and personal items during the cleanup of the building. Contractor reserves the right to determine the applicable methods and manner of appropriate destruction of the documents and personal items in accordance with the applicable federal regulations, including the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. The term documents includes but is not limited to computer hard drives, correspondence, communications, letters, invoices, sales receipts, notes, profiles, writings, diaries, books, reports, magazines, facsimiles, memoranda, credit files, records, data sheets, purchase orders, tabulations, reports, bills of lading, evaluations, work papers, summaries, opinions, journals, charts, ledgers, tabulations, statistical records, sales reports, financial reports, checks, notes, transcriptions, telegrams, teletypes, telex messages, internet messages or information, email files, contracts, leases, agreements, recording of telephone calls and other communication but not limited to notes, notations, memoranda, and other writing of or relating to telephone conversations and conferences, minutes and notes of transcriptions of all meetings and other communication of any type, computer printouts, microfilms, dictabells, tapes, videotapes, tape recordings, digital video discs, or other records, photographs, pictures, drawings, diagrams, maps, plates, logs, and other information which is stored or carried electronically by means of computer equipment or otherwise and which can be retrieved in printed or graphic form. So basically, they want them to destroy everything, including even hard drives. I mean, you would think that that's something that, you know, they could pull the data off inside and do it in a way that they could just like clone it and not contaminate. And I should credit Gumby for Christ here. He's actually the one who pulled out this lawsuit that I'm reading from now. This is Exhibit A in a lawsuit by David Rustine against John Mason, the CEO of Sabre technical services that he reveals all this in. The lawsuit isn't specifically against Bio One or Rudy Giuliani for some reason. From another article from the South Florida Sun Sentinel from July 18, 2003, it says, in buying the building, Crown Companies also acquired everything inside, the tabloids, files, computers, equipment, source lists, and a $3 million photo archive that includes such shots as Elvis Presley in a coffin. AMI spokesman Gerald McClevey said the company wasn't interested in getting anything back. He said AMI had duplicates of virtually all of the files still in the old offices. 
That's a total lie. There is nothing left there that AMI wants out, McKelvey said. We sold the building with the understanding the contents will be destroyed. It goes on to say that all the hard drives of the computers will be destroyed, but will first be dipped in a bleach and water solution. AMI's files, their contents, and any loose documents will be taken to two paper shredders set up in offices inside the building. All the papers run through shredders will be dampened with a bleach and water solution to kill any lingering anthrax spores. One of our listeners suggested that this might have been some kind of insurance thing. It might have been cheaper for them just to get rid of the entire archive for free. You know, if these photos were worth money and they were insured and just getting rid of them was actually cheaper than cleaning them and getting them back. Well, my argument against that is that even if this was an insurance type of thing just for those expensive photos in that archive, what about all the personal files or all the catch-and-kill stuff that might have been locked in a safe there? And how far did some of these Inquirer employees go to get their stories? Did they break the law? Were there illegal things done by employees, now grandfathered in by AMI, that there were just too many things that could compromise their company, that they needed to destroy everything in case there was something there that would be illegal that they could get sued for at the very least? That's one possibility as well. Did Rudy Giuliani specifically need to get something out for someone that he was associated with? We already know at the very least one of his associates, Trump, had catch and kill files stored by AMI. What else was there that Rudy might have wanted to get? What about this chlorine dioxide or bleach solution that was being used? After the FBI got a chance to swab the building again and look for forensic evidence in December 2002, after that point, it seems as though these remediation companies, first Marcor, then BioOne, then Marcor, could have been destroying other forensic evidence. Perhaps even employees for those companies didn't even realize they were when they were wiping down areas with bleach solution to decontaminate it. I mean, wiping an area down with bleach solution would also, I'm assuming, get rid of any DNA evidence of any kind. And is it even possible that the actual letter was destroyed, the anthrax letter, and that that was by intent, that was on purpose? Is it possible that either one of these remediation companies had found the letter and destroyed it? Either the Jennifer Lopez letter that could be a hoax or might be real, or another additional real letter. How could they have trusted Rustine Bio One to be the ones to destroy that? If they were so, so cautious about what the FBI was allowed to even touch and look at when they came back in 2002 to search, why would AMI give over that autonomy and be like, yeah, we actually trust David Rustine and Bio One to destroy this stuff so it won't be compromised? I mean, that's nonsensical. And David Pecker, the guy who checked the coffee machine water to see if it was poisoned in the office once, trusted David Rustine to destroy all these files. You see what I'm getting at here? That a major company like this is just going to trust this guy to destroy all this stuff? There's nothing in the contract that talks about an overseer or anything to make sure that he actually does. And did David Rustine slash BioOne continue to give access to the premises to AMI people? Yes, he did even after the closing. You just heard me read from the lawsuit that part of the deal 
actually says that they have to come in at their own expense with like hazmat suits on or send people or personnel or pay personnel from bio one to grab things for them. That's essentially what that means. So again, the question is, what did they destroy? How much did they destroy? And why did AMI trust a buyer who bought the building for a fucking steal, practically for free, to destroy it? But what happened after this? Well, what happened after this was David Ristine goes back to Marcor Remediation, the company that he originally hired to now finish cleaning up the rest of these items. The company that he had family relation to that was the first and the last company at Fresh Kills Landfill to dispose of World Trade Center debris. He hires them to not just finish fumigating the building, which I guess had never actually been fully done, which is strange, because apparently it was only supposed to take 12 hours to do. But Rudy Giuliani's company, BioN, never managed to fully complete it, even though the newspaper says, yeah, we're about to do it tomorrow. It's about to happen. We blasted the building with the gas and we decontaminated. It's done. It continues to be quarantined. And I guess the official story for this is because all the archives and files were still contaminated with anthrax. The chlorine dioxide that Sabre and BioOne had pumped into the building didn't decontaminate the files and they were still there. And now they couldn't just destroy them because this lawsuit sort of froze it up. So now what they were going to do was actually clean them all up individually. So Marcor Remediation is hired to take on this project. And they now say that they're going to sit there and clean up individually each photo that they have. But what we don't know now is how much of these files did BioOne actually end up destroying when they were still on the job by BioOne and by Rustine's people in between this time. And what did they destroy? And what did they take? What were they able to sneak out? What didn't they want the FBI to see? If AMI explicitly wanted this to happen, how much of that actually did get destroyed? Seems like a lot of it got destroyed, including the Elvis photo, which did disappear, apparently. That multi-million dollar photo itself disappeared. Where did it go? Are the photos in and of themselves, and is this Elvis photo drama mostly a distraction from other things that they were destroying or taking? So yes, I think that it probably was a distraction. David Rustine hires again the company that he had replaced initially with BioOne, Rudy's company. He hires Marcor Remediation to finish cleaning the files to get it closer to the process of being able to actually open for business. I'm not sure how this lawsuit ended between David Rustine and John Mason of Sabre. Rudy claims he was never paid for the work, although that seems like a lie based on what the contract says. Maybe Rudy just means that he wasn't paid for the entire job because he was fired halfway through. But from the Palm Beach Post, Friday, November 11th, 2005. It says anthrax cleanup to begin anew at AMI and Boca. It says because the relations between Bio One and David Rustine soured, the company no longer will be headquartered there, although it does intend to locate elsewhere in Boca Raton. In June, Rustine hired Marcor Remediation to manage the cleanup. He and the two companies have refused to comment on the management change. Whereas BioOne gassed thousands of papers and photographs with chlorine dioxide gas in a custom-made chamber and sent other boxes of contaminated material to be sterilized at a biomedical waste facility, Marcor Remediation will send everything, 8,500 wax-covered boxes, 
and 180 oversized boxes to Steratronics, the biomedical waste facility in Lauderdale Lakes that BioOne used during the April decontamination. In May, two local biomedical waste companies, Stericycle and Five Star Waste, said they refused to work with Rudy Giuliani's BioOne over its autoclaving procedures effectiveness. And then the article goes on to say that Dr. Gene Malecki of the health department is defending BioOne's procedures and said that they were totally fine, but that she's also looking forward to the new company, Marcor, continuing the remediation. The outside of the boxes will be sprayed with a bleach solution before they are shipped to Steratronics. At the facility, the boxes will be placed inside an autoclave where they will be blasted with 255 degrees of superheated steam and pressure. Each decontamination session will kill anthrax spores inside 54 wax-covered boxes or three oversized boxes. In late November 2005, the Sun Sentinel, the South Florida Sun Sentinel, runs an article that says Boca office cleanup starts again. It says in this article that even though Greg Matheson sued AMI for $2 million, Rustine responded in part of the lawsuit saying to Matheson that cleaning the pictures would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and probably wouldn't work anyway. Nonetheless, Rustine moved forward with the plans to decontaminate the 12,000 boxes containing the building's contents. Tim O'Connor, a spokesperson for the Palm Beach County Health Department, said, there's no real test results from BioOne, so they're going to have to do all the boxes all over again. Well, that's odd. And all the way into summer 2006, July 9th, 2006, in the South Florida Sun Sentinel, an article runs saying persistent disputes keep AMI buildings sealed off. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani came to town, the site of the country's first anthrax attack, and his visit buzzed with hundreds of people. And then a big red generator started pumping chlorine dioxide gas into the former American Media Inc. building in Boca Raton. It was intended to be the death nail for the spores that left one man dead. Those at the site looked to the future, free of an anthrax-laden building. That was two years ago. Vines cover part of the chain-link fence surrounding the building, sitting starkly vacant beside a golf course amid a busy office park. I expected it to be open a long time ago, said Dr. Gene Malecki of the Florida Health Department. So this article is essentially saying that literally two years ago was when Rudy Giuliani did that publicity stunt commercial that I played for you earlier in that clip. And that was supposed to be like literally the day that they were going to complete the cleanup. I mean, what in the hell is happening here? It obviously wasn't just because of these lawsuits and disputes over the photographs that this happened. Something else happened here. And it seems at the very least, Rudy's company was just completely incompetent. They didn't even have test results. Well, I guess you could say this results in a happy ending for building owner David Rustine. Almost a year later, in February 2007, David Rustine gets to do a little publicity stunt of his own. And he gets to walk through the threshold of the AMI building because now it is successfully decontaminated and gets approval from the CDC, the EPA, and the Florida Health Department. Five and a half years after the original anthrax attacks. Rebecca Rustine wondered why her husband would even consider paying for an uninhabitable building. 
I couldn't fathom buying something like this without going in, she said. Walking into it for the first time, they were surprised. I was just ecstatic at the condition of the building, David Ristine said. David Ristine brought the press to watch him go into the building for the first time. And do you know who he brought with him? Well, he brought the same anthrax victim that Rudy Giuliani was going to use as a prop for his own PR stunt for Bio One. David Ristine invites anthrax victim and survivor Ernesto Blanco to come to the AMI building with him. The article says, Blanco, who still works for American Media at its new headquarters a few blocks away, said many of his co-workers want to know about personal belongings left behind. Family pictures, mementos, and office files were put in thousands of boxes. However, the Ristines kept hundreds of boxes with the irreplaceable photo archive that once belonged to AMI. The Ristines have just started looking through those, since their focus has been on opening the building, they said. They don't know what they'll do with their entire collection just yet. Before entering the building, a stoic Blanco said his wife worried about him going where he fell ill. But I told her, don't worry about it, he said. He darted to the first floor mailroom, but opened the wrong door at first. Finding the right entrance, he said, this is my place, showing the spot where he sat at a desk. He went to the second floor area where Stevens worked. He was a fun guy, Blanco said, remembering a running joke they had about Friday afternoon cervezas or beer. Now, one big thing stands out to me here, other than the similarity of Rustine just doing his own Ernesto Blanco little PR stunt. The other thing that stands out to me here is that the Ristines have just started looking through the AMI photo collection that they decided to save. Well, I thought I was just reading to you their contractual obligation, supposedly, that AMI made them sign off on in the sale of the building, that it was sold on the understanding that David Ristine was not to keep any of their files, that he was to destroy them. So this is one of the more confusing things ever. And even though we all thought, based on what David Ristine said, that he was planning on moving the headquarters of Crown Companies into his new building, his new clean, clean and fresh building, in the same year that he finishes cleaning the building and can open it up again, instead of leasing it to new tenants, he just decides to flip it and sell it. He sells the building to a guy named Rocco Abbasino. And Gumby for Christ looked into this new buyer, Rocco Abbasino, who I think purchased the building sometime around 2007. Well, who the hell is Rocco Abbasino? Seemingly an unrelated character to all the other people we've talked about so far, right? Well, that's what it seems like. But there's an article in ABC News from June 24, 2008, actually, about a year after Abbasino buys this building from Rustine. It says, free harvesting credit cards keep debt growing. And it's about a junior college student named Selena Alvarez, who tells her story about basically getting entrapped by and intertwined with this scammer credit card company that just tried to milk the shit out of her and charge her all these really, really absurd types of fees that other credit card companies would never charge. As if a regular credit card company with its finance charges and stuff wasn't bad enough. Selena Alvarez accidentally decided to choose a Visa card with a $500 credit limit from a local bank called Applied Bank. It says Alvarez got the card and used it once to charge $350 in tuition. We didn't even use it on books. We just used it to pay for my classes and that was it. 
That one charge turned out to be one too many. That's because Alvarez unknowingly signed up for an account consumer advocates call a fee-harvesting credit card. Fee-harvesting cards are typically sold to people in dire financial straits. These types of cards are for people who are financially drowning and they're looking for that financial life preserver, Robert D. Manning, Ph.D., says. What they don't realize is that there's an anvil at the end of it. Alvarez's first bill came with a $100 orientation fill, billed as a cash advance to her account. The card also charged a $10 monthly maintenance fee. Even though Alvarez made regular payments to Applied Bank, sending the bank nearly $300 over four months, Applied said that she still owed more than $500, despite only spending $350. Even after she closed her account, Applied Bank continued to charge Alvarez $10 monthly maintenance fee to maintain her account. Robert D. Manning says that Applied Bank belongs in the Credit Card Hall of Shame. Applied Bank, which issued Alvarez her card, was founded in 1996 as Cross Country Bank. It has changed names twice since then. It continues to be owned and operated by the man who founded it, Rocco Abyssinio. Abyssinio is a self-made millionaire who has cultivated an image as a benefactor to various charities in Delaware and Florida, where he owns a $3 million home. But Abyssinio's critics, including lawyers, who have chased him for years, say his charity work only masks the money he earns from the low-income borrowers to whom he lends money. Some sources put his personal wealth at over half a billion dollars. While his net worth has not been released publicly, it appears from federal bank filings that he has paid himself at least $500 million, if not more, in dividends drawn from Applied Bank. Abyssinio refused repeated interview requests by ABC News and referred reporters to previous statements he has made to the media about his business practices. In 2004, he told the Wall Street Journal, who also came asking him questions about his sleazy bank, he said he runs a good, clean company. The FDIC, the federal agency, issued a cease and desist order in 2002 against Abyssinio's bank and question his bank's lending practices. The new chairman of the FDIC, Sheila Bear, agreed to do a taped interview with ABC when discussing free-harvesting credit cards, but her staff abruptly canceled the interview when they learned the discussion would focus on Abyssinio. Apparently, instead of agreeing to do an interview with ABC, Abyssinio himself found out that they were talking to Alvarez, the junior college student who was getting scammed by his credit card. So he reached out to her himself and offered to make a deal with her so she would basically shut up in the press. And they resolved things that way. So basically this guy who bought AMI building seems like he's kind of a sketchy dude, doesn't he? To say the very least. Well, only a couple months after that last article I read you where David Rustine visits the AMI building for the first time with Ernesto Blanco, in May 16, 2007, he sells the building to Rocco Abyssinio. Rocco Abyssinio's company, Applied Cards, buys the AMI site. An article written again by Luis Perez for the South Florida Sun Sentinel says that Applied Cards System announced that it paid about $10 million for the Boca Raton building. The company plans to move its call center in August to its new 67,000 square foot home which will undergo major renovations. 
We wanted to stay in the Boca Raton area and own our building, Chairman Rocco Abbasino said in a statement. After spending many millions, Rustine said, he opened the building to much fanfare in February. In an interview Tuesday, Rustine said he hasn't yet tabulated the exact cleanup cost, but he made a profit. It's a great day when you buy a building, Rustine said, and it's a great day when you sell. Rustine says of Applied Card, which is Applied Bank, the scammer credit card lender that I was telling you about earlier. Rustine says of them, I think they're a great company. They got a great price for a great building. The building is very safe. And one of Rocco Abbasino's representatives said, he feels very confident that the building is very safe. Otherwise, he wouldn't have touched it. Of course, Rocco Abbasino and David Pecker are both in the Florida 2001 attacks event map that I created three episodes ago. What are you, crazy? They're definitely in here. And you find them by going to the Amerithrax bioweapons tab. If you scroll all the way down to a property of David Pecker's, let's see, where is it? Scrolling down the list. This is quite a large list now, guys. It's actually exciting that it's this big. It's actually right underneath all the Gloria Irish inputs, which there are quite a bit of now. But if you see the two David Pecker faces, little icons, I want you to go to one that's on Addison Park Lane. Click on that address on the Florida 2001 Attacks event map. And this is something you get access to if you're a Patreon subscriber of Media Roots Radio. So if you'd like to join along with this interactive map part of the podcast, I recommend you become a subscriber. But otherwise, you can take my word for it that at this Addison Park Lane address, in Florida, Boca Raton, Florida, which David Pecker lists one of his homes at, who lives three houses down from him in this sort of golf course, private Florida community? Who lives three houses down from David Pecker, the CEO of AMI, none other than Applied Bank founder, Rocco Abbasino. Rocco Abbasino as you can see on the map, as designated by a Guy Fox biohazard face yellow icon, you can see, once you pull up the Addison Lane address of David Pecker, that Rocco Abbasino, the eventual owner of the AMI building, lives three houses down from David Pecker. How did this happen? Was this all just some kind of ruse? Or is this just people who just happen to know each other because it's a small community? I think it's rather suspicious, personally, that the building ends up being sold to someone who lives three houses down from David Pecker. Almost as if somehow they're keeping this all in the family in a weird way. So like I was saying originally, if David Ristine was chosen as some kind of dummy purchaser, dummy buyer, in order to take on the liability and basically shield them from destroying all the stuff they needed them to destroy, and they lost all this money on purpose to essentially pay for their stuff's destruction, if that's what this was for some reason, Abyssinio guy seems to be a, a second dummy buyer. I mean, what, he just happens to live two houses down from David Pecker? Did no one ever investigate David Pecker over this or no one audited him from the SEC? Nothing. Nobody looked into this. I mean, it's pretty incredible. So I think the point here is that whatever this was, it was a cover-up. We already know Rudy Giuliani has some very strange connections to this. Very strange. 
And no, I'm not just talking about how I found that his wife was put up in a condo in a building next door to one of the main 9-11 hijackers from the Hamburg cell around the time leading up to 9-11. But I do want you to go back to your Florida 2001 attacks event map and follow along interactively with the rest of this episode. And yes, you are going to hear some John Williams selections from the JFK soundtrack as we do this, because why the hell not? So on your Florida 2001 attacks event map that you have access to as a Media Roots Radio Patreon subscriber, I want you to click on that Rocco Abyssinio face. Or you can also just type Rocco in the search box at the top. And you actually get two addresses. You get an address on St. Andrews Boulevard. I want you to click on that address. It starts with a two under Rocco, R-O-C-C-O. Well, if other tabs of yours aren't turned on yet, you might not see anything interesting here. You might be thinking, well, what's here? This is nothing here. What's up with this? Well, what I want you to do is I want you to click on the 9-11 hijackers tab. And I also want you to click on the Giuliani tab of the Florida 2001 attacks event map the Giuliani Business Associates Bio One tab. And I want you to just zoom out slightly so you can see now that there are three inputs now visible underneath Rocco Abyssinio on St. Andrews Boulevard. Now, what are these? Well, within just 2,000 feet, you have Rocco Abyssinio living next to a listed property of Rudy Giuliani Associate Lev Parnas, who lived in this location in 2004. So why is it that Rocco Abyssinio lives so close to Lev Parnas? And why is it that they both live so close to a listed 9-11 suspect that was released on the list of FBI's 9-11 suspects list? Not a hijacker, but someone that was suspected as being involved in 9-11. A little bit strange, I think. What about David Pecker? Does he live anywhere else that has any relationship to anything else strange having to do with anthrax or 9-11 or anything else odd or questionable yes actually he does let's go back up to the anthrax tab scroll all the way almost all the way up to the top well right below gloria irish and i want you to click on the dolphin road address while having the 9-11 hijackers tab open the 9-11 hijackers suspects tab open Click on the David Pecker Dolphin Road address and you might see a green icon that's directly underneath him. Well, that's weird. It looks like he lives right next to another character that we already have on our map. What other character is this? He doesn't live as close as he does to Rocco Abyssinio on that private golf course resort, but he does live a couple of blocks or I would say maybe three blocks down the street from David Pecker does on Dolphin Road to Jordanian Princess Aliyah bint al-Hussein, the half-sister of King Abdullah II, the ruler of Jordan. In July 2008, the princess and her husband, Muhammad Anwar Farid al-Salah, bought the lakefront home. And the only reason that this Jordanian princess is on my map at all 
is because her name and some of her relatives' name came up actually in a newly released FBI document that you can find on the FBI's website that was authorized by the Biden administration to be declassified that includes some members of Turkish royalty as potential 9-11 conspirators. And this only came out very recently within the last couple of months. So I added this address only then when this document came out. But I don't know. I mean, it is a little bit strange that David Pecker lives so close to two different characters on this map. One of them is a character in our story. One of them I haven't really talked about yet. What about David Rustin himself? Does he live anywhere interesting? Or does he have any listed properties anywhere interesting? Or does his wife, Rebecca Rustin, have any properties in any areas that are interesting? Well, you can see for yourself on the anthrax tab of the Florida 2001 attacks map, if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, well, actually, let me let you check out David A. Jungers for a second while we're here, because it's about halfway down the list. David A. Jungers is the CEO of Marcor Remediation, the president. And you can find, if you zoom out, on a couple of his addresses here. You can find some of his that are in the Sarasota area, but you can also find some of his that are sort of in the Estero area of Florida. Well, who else has properties near Estero? Well, Rudy Decker and Wallace J. Hillard have properties near Estero. David A. Jungers also has properties near Pelican Properties LLC Holdings owner, who seems to be linked to Gloria Irish's company Pelican Properties, Richard D. Galvano. David A. Jungers also lives near Richard D. Galvano. That's a potential Gloria Irish, David A. Jungers, Wallace J. Hillard, Huffman Aviation proximity hit right there. That one's a little bit more speculative because the proximity is not too close. But I was originally going to show you David Rustin, right? What are the most suspicious David Rustin properties? What are the ones that really raise the most eyebrows for me? Well, I want you to also turn on a tab called CIA Black Ops Spook Activity that's all the way down at the bottom of the tabs section. Click on that tab. I want you to find a Rustine, a David Rustine. Actually, it's listed under his wife. It's listed under Rebecca Rustine. But under the Anthrax tab, I want you to find a tab for Rustine Property Brickle Avenue. I want you to click on that. Now, what happens when you already have the anthrax tab, the CIA tab, on. Well, it seems like David Racine is in very close proximity to someone that we're already familiar with, Richard Pearl. Richard Pearl, who predicted that the next attack could be a biological attack on September 18th, 2001, which is actually the same day of the first known anthrax letter mailings. Richard Pearl lists a property on Brickle Bay Drive, which is within about 500 feet from a listed David Rustin's wife property. But who is this behind David Rustin? Well, that happens to be Michael D. Farkas of Skyway Aircraft, the guy who owns a company linked to Huffman Aviation, who actually donates money to settlement activists in Israel. One of his planes got caught with a bunch of cocaine in it. People used to suspect him of having some of his planes involved in CIA rendition. So that's odd that one of David Rustin's wife's properties is right next to both Michael D. Farkas and Richard Pearl. But what else with Rustin? Is there anything else suspicious with Rustin in terms of his properties? There's quite a lot of properties on here. Well, here's one that's a little strange. A deceased 
Manafort brother, Frank Manafort, who was high up in the Manafort Brothers Incorporated Company, lists a property that's about four blocks down from another property listed by David Ristine. Could it be a coincidence, or could the Ristines have some kind of connection to the Manafort family? If they already have connections to Marcor remediation via family, maybe, you know, maybe this is just their social circle. Different people who are involved with cleaning up World Trade Center debris and body parts or just, you know, people they have backyard barbecues with. Just the type of people they like to hang out with and chill out with. Now, do you remember what I was saying a couple episodes ago about the really continuing confirmatory evidence that hijackers had more and more closeness with Gloria and Mike Irish than previously reported? based on just the new inputs I put in this map. Well, if you look at two new addresses that I put in this map, one of them, 2500 North Federal Highway, which was a Mike Irish listed address. If you go to that on the Anthrax tab, 2500 North Federal Highway, Boca Raton, Florida, and you zoom in on that, what do you see surrounding it? Well, you see three 9-11 hijacker inputs, which of course is suspicious. What else do you see? We also see very close two David Rustine, Rebecca Rustine listed properties, very, very close to where Mike Irish and 9-11 hijackers seemingly interacted. Well, what else is here? Well, also Manafort Brothers, David J. Manafort has an address listed right across the street from David Rustine's wife. And Lev Parnas has another address listed here, right near Mike Irish. And David J. Manafort has another address listed right near Lev Parnas all within this central area. I mean, this is a really interesting hit on the map, I think, because it does suggest that there was sort of an overlap with all this stuff in other ways than the story that I've already laid out to you on this podcast. There's some kind of proximity overlap. David J. Manafort lists a public address at 2014 Alta Meadows Lane in Delray Beach, Florida. Well, that's just a few blocks down from 2930 Dunlin Road, where Gloria Irish listed one of her addresses from 2004 to 2007. And also, why is this near so many places where 9-11 hijackers were known to have listed their own addresses? Salam Al-Hazmi listed his address at 702 Lindell Boulevard, Delray, Delray Beach, which is literally just across the street from Paul J. Manafort's listed address. Mohand Al-Shari, 9-11 hijacker, listed his address at 755 Dotterill Road, Delray Beach, Florida. And that's, again, right next to Paul J. Manafort. I mean, how do you even make sense of this? What does this even really mean? And of course, the Delray Racket Club, which is where Gloria Irish showed one of the 9-11 hijackers, a different one, Hazma Al-Amganti, his apartment and where he lived, is also right near Paul J. Manafort's listed address. And of course, I should also remind people of the very strange coincidence of Paul Manafort himself, you know, the Paul Manafort, the guy who spent time in jail, who I talked about earlier on this podcast. Him and his wife actually own property in very close proximity to addresses related to Dominic Souter, the man behind Urban Moving Systems, the company that owned the van in which the Israeli men belonged to there were cheering and filming the towers collapsing on 9-11 that actually got the police called on them in New Jersey because they were acting so suspicious. The so-called dancing Israelis that are so infamously, 
you know, rinsed to death in the 9-11 conspiracy movement. There's addresses related to the guy who owns that company, Urban Moving Systems, within a half a mile from several Paul Manafort properties in Florida, which you can also find on this map by looking at the Giuliani tab and clicking on the Israeli Art Students tab. I changed the Israeli Art Students tab name to DEA Memo colon Israeli Art Students and Van Companies. It also seems like Michael Farkas himself has proximity to not just 9-11 hijackers, but also Israeli art students. And why is it that Jeb Bush actually, and oh, by the way, I added about 20 different publicly listed address from public records of Jeb Bush in Florida on the map. But when you go to one of his publicly listed addresses, 825 Ponce de Leon, Coral Gables, Florida, This is a Jeb Bush publicly listed address. Why is he so goddamn close to Kamel Deodi, a suspect listed by the FBI in 9-11, who resides at 155 Zamora Avenue, Coral Gables, Florida? Why is this happening? Why is there a 9-11 suspect that only lives just a couple of blocks down from a publicly listed address of Jeb Bush? Make sense of that one. I can't. But that pretty much concludes this episode of the 20th anniversary of the Amerithrax attacks. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Media Roots Radio. But I wanted to leave you with two very strange things. Well, I was just following up on this idea of, well, I was just following up on other things that I may have missed having to do with the Amerithrax investigation. You know, I missed the St. Petersburg letters. I didn't know about that until just a couple of months ago. So I recently found something else that I had missed. And this had to do with the death of Ottilie Lundgren. I thought the investigation more or less ended with this idea that they eventually found a mail hub somewhere in Connecticut that had remote or minute traces of anthrax spores inside. So they figured that this is cross-contamination evidence of how Ottilie Lundgren, the last victim of the 2001 anthrax murderers died. She was a 94-year-old woman who lived alone in Connecticut, and there were no spores or traces of any spores ever found on her clothing, on her, in her home, or anywhere, in her mailbox, anything like that. Cross-contamination was theorized. Well, what happened was the FBI ended up tracing a letter that they found that had anthrax spores on it, And they traced it to the home of someone named Jack Farkas. Who's Jack Farkas? Well, according to the website thirdring.wordpress.com, and again, I'm not sure how much of this stuff is fully confirmed. According to this website, Jack Farkas is actually a relative of Michael Farkas. That would be quite bizarre if the FBI traced an anthrax lace letter back to a Jack Farkas, who was related to Michael Farkas, I mean, it could be a coincidence. Their names could just be the same. They could be not related to each other. But it's still odd to find this out so much later that there was somebody that the FBI actually looked into and questioned based on the fact that there was anthrax minute traces found on a letter that was addressed 
to him, to Jack Farkas. Who the hell is Jack Farkas? Well, this is from the Washington Post, December 1st, 2001. Connecticut letter has spores of anthrax. Investigators have found a trace of anthrax bacteria on the outside of a letter sent to a residence in Seymour, Connecticut, about one and a half miles from the home of an elderly widow who mysteriously died of the disease last week. The newly discovered Seymour letter, a business letter sent to an estate liquidator who works from home, was postmarked in Trenton, New Jersey, and dated October 9th, the same day that letters containing billions of deadly spores were mailed to to Senators Patrick, Leahy, and Tom Daschle. Although the new findings indicate that spores reach Lundgren's general area via the mail, investigators have yet to explain exactly how anthrax spores got into her lungs. How Mrs. Lundgren got infected, we still can't find that exact piece, said Roland. Investigators were led to see more by markings routinely put on letters. The first five digits reveal which post office, the next four which block on which street, the final two which house. Businesses, such as credit card companies, print the barcodes on the envelopes to win a discount. Other letters, even those with handwritten addresses, are scanned by an optical character reader, which prints a barcode on the piece. On the reverse side of most mail, a machine prints a faint orange bar that reveals the date, time, location, and machine that sorted that piece of mail. Then an automated sorter scans the destination information for each piece into a computer. It is that computer file that led investigators to 88 Great Hill Road in Seymour, home of John S. Farkas, 53. When Farkas's address came up recently on the Hamilton Township scanner computer file, state health officials went to his house and retrieved the letter for testing. Farkas runs a small estate liquidating business in Seymour, where he and his family live on a small farm. He works at home and opened the contaminated letter, which was addressed to his home business, McCarran said. It did not bear similar lettering to the Leahy and Dashiell letters, she said. She said inspectors have not seen the letter because the CDC has it. Farkas has three daughters. His home has been extensively tested, postal officials said. He is not taking antibiotics, they said. Farkas and Lundgren live on different postal routes with different zip codes. However, their mail is sorted in the Wallingford Distribution Center and sent to the Seymour Post Office for delivery. Now, I tried to find out if John Farkas, the guy who claims to have received this anthrax letter, the FBI went to his house. They claim they found it based on this barcode printout. I tried to find out if John Farkas was related to Michael Farkas. I could never fully confirm that. Although I do trust the research of this person who put together this website, most of it seems to have checked out from what I've seen. There's a couple leaps that the person is trying to make, and this is one of them that I'd like to confirm or not for sure, but I'm not sure. If they are related, if Michael Farkas and Jack Farkas are related, that would be absolutely ridiculous and would obviously be suspicious as fuck. But in my little search for who Jack Farkas was, I did find a Jack Farkas in Seymour, Connecticut, who does have an eBay store, actually. Jack Farkas's, well, I shouldn't say this is 100% for sure. It could be someone who also lives in Seymour, Connecticut, who happens to be selling Jack 
Farkas paintings, a series of Jack Farkas paintings, who is basically hyping up Jack Farkas in the description and saying that, that he is represented by New Century Artist Gallery and in many public and private collections in the world. I mean, if you type Jack Farkas paintings, you literally can only find this one seller on eBay selling them. His seller name is SS9496. He lives in Seymour, Connecticut. He offers free local pickup, and he's selling about 12 different Jack Farkas paintings. I've never heard of Jack Farkas. I don't think Jack Farkas is included in many public and private collections in the world, but yet this seller describes him that way, which makes me think that this seller is Jack Farkas himself, or someone who knows Jack Farkas personally and who lives with Jack Farkas or maybe next to Jack Farkas in the same neighborhood, maybe a friend. But let's assume this is Jack Farkas. What kind of art does Jack Farkas do? Well, he does a lot of like impressionistic, really basic, kind of almost primary color paintings of flowers, of orchids. You may be thinking to yourself, well, is there sort of a Georgia O'Keeffe flavor to some of it? Is he doing a, a series of flowers? What kind of flowers? I mean, well, like I said, they're kind of more impressionistic, a little more simplistic, cartoonish. So they don't take on the sort of more quasi-realism that Georgia O'Keeffe's painting style does. But there is sort of a thematic similarity to Jack Farkas's orchid and flower paintings to Georgia O'Keeffe's orchid and flower paintings. And that is a genital thematic similarity. Whereas Georgia O'Keeffe likes to make her flowers look like vulvas and vaginas and different aspects of female genitalia. Jack Farkas looks like he likes to make his paintings look like different aspects of male genitalia. Whereas, instead of the little tendrils in an orchid that are sprouting pollen, Jack Farkas likes to draw it looking like a tiny dickhead sprouting yellow cum coming out of a flower. In another image, Jack Farkas draws what looks like a flower that has already busted its nut and it's kind of sitting flaccid dripping with white liquid resembling almost kind of a flaccid penis so this seems to be jack farkas's style of art but what else can we learn about a jack farkas who was visited by the fbi for having a cross-contaminated letter that apparently may have killed his neighbor down the street Ottilie lundgren a 94 year old lady well if you click on jack Farkas's, well, again, I'm not 100% sure this is his profile, but if you click on a eBay store profile of an SS9496, we also learn that he appears to be a Freemason because his icon, profile icon says Freemason always with a square and compass and a sort of spiraling checkerboard background behind it. So that's your trip down Jack Farkas Lane to cap off the end of this podcast. But I do have one more surprise for you. I did want to end with something else bizarre. Evidence of a series of hoax fake anthrax letters sent to various media personalities and city and government officials before 9-11, where people who remember seeing these hoax letters come in before 9-11-01 believe that they were actually sent by the same person who later sent the anthrax letters. Remember what I was saying earlier that I believed whoever sent these anthrax letters, had foreknowledge of 9-11. What I'm about to tell you now is sort of the reason why I think that. 
This is also from the website thirdring.wordpress.com. Murray Weiss of the New York Post reported that threatening letters to media personalities were mailed before 9-11 from Indianapolis and other locations. These letters did not contain anthrax, but the writing, the handwriting, was allegedly very similar to the one on the anthrax letters. Apparently, anthrax was found on a mailbox in Indianapolis near where these 15 or so Indianapolis threat letters were sent from. Now, is this a coincidence? Among one of these people the letters were sent to was Sean Hannity of Fox News. Sean Hannity told Newsmax that he had begun getting the threatening letters in the winter of 2000 and again in August of 2001. In my gut, I know it's the same person, Hannity told his audience. It was the exact same handwriting that I had recognized. When I saw it, I said, oh my God, that's the same guy. Because the letters were part of an ongoing investigation, he could not go into any more detail about them. The letters that were sent to Hannity were mailed from Indianapolis and from Trenton, New Jersey, an anthrax hotspot. In February 1999, four hoax anthrax letters were sent to various government buildings and media buildings in February 1999. And it goes on to say, the authorities seem equally oblivious to another round of intriguing anthrax hoaxes in February 1999. As with last fall's anthrax letters, a handful of envelopes with almost identical messages were sent to a combination of media and government targets, including the Washington Post, NBC, a post office in Columbus, and the old executive building in Washington. I found a local policeman in Columbus willing to dig out his file on that 1999 anthrax hoax. There are several similarities with last fall's mailings. For example, one page of the 1999 letter says, in big, bold capital letters, warning, this building and everything in it has been exposed to anthrax. Call 911 now and secure the building. Otherwise, the germ will spread. And then it actually specifies here that each of those letters that was sent in February 1999 had a teaspoon of fake anthrax powder in them, which is roughly the same amount that was found in all of the real anthrax letters later in October 2001. Who are some of these other people that received these Indianapolis threat letters where Sean Hannity said that the handwriting was the same as the real anthrax killers. I'm not saying Hannity is a trustworthy source, so can we bolster this with other sources? Unfortunately, most of them are right-wing media sources, but it does seem like an odd thing to lie about. And it kind of slipped through the cracks too. They didn't really talk about it. I think that this kind of more came out in dribs and drabs. They never really fully did a segment of their show on it or anything like that. But Bill O'Reilly also claimed to have received some of these Indianapolis threat letters that had similar handwriting to the later anthrax murders. And Newsmax.com, the neoconservative, independent news outlet, they also claimed to have received anthrax threat letters in early 2000. So again, this was either an extremely bizarre coincidence or it's linked to the actual anthrax murders themselves. But I hope you've enjoyed this episode and all the clips that I found. And following this episode, I will also be uploading a new addition to the Anthrax Cache series of documents that Gumby for Christ and I have been collecting. We're going to provide for you 
the entire zip file for the Elvis photo lawsuit by David Ristine. There's about 15 documents in there that are, I think are very useful. I'm also going to be providing to you a bunch of scanned copies of Inquirer and other American Media Inc. publications from around this time. And I also have about four dozen screen captures and full high-resolution newspaper scans having to do with different subjects about the anthrax attacks that aren't in the previous anthrax cache. And those subjects are newspaper articles that covered the Howard Troxler hoax letter from St. Petersburg, actual real estate listings, and other mentions of Gloria Irish after 9-11 and even before 9-11 from local Florida newspapers. In this archive, there's about 20 articles in that, establishing a very specific and detailed timeline of the entire cleanup operation of the AMI building, all the way from the purchase of the building by David Ristine. So this is going to be a massive document dump, and I'm going to try to link to all these as best as I possibly can. So you can look at these yourself as you're listening along. But also, I am planning on writing an article along with Gumby for Christ and possibly with some other people for the website Covert Action. And we're going to try to unpack a lot of the same stuff that I've covered on these last few podcasts in article form. And I'm open to any ideas you have of any leads you want me to explore or different ways you want me to explore this investigation. You know, I may think that I have the best idea of how to look at some of these things but maybe I don't. So feel free to reach out to me and, you know, maybe even push back on some of the stuff I'm saying or give me some give me suggestions on where you think I should look next. But thank you to our Patreon subscribers. You've actually helped Media Roots Radio be able to purchase some much needed equipment that I think is going to help us further down the line do this more easily. When I say do this, I mean my new obsession with actually providing a lot of raw documents along with these types of podcasts. So right after this podcast is released, I'm actually getting an 11 by 17 flatbed scanner delivered. So right after I get that, I'm going to be able to get about 40 different full newspaper scans going as part of this anthrax cache. So by the time this comes out, those might not be available yet, but look out for that link. You might see it as an update on the description for the podcast or on Twitter or on our various social media channels. And please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio. We put a lot of work into this podcast and your help is greatly appreciated. Most of it just goes directly back into the podcast research itself. And if you become a subscriber of Media Roots Radio at the $5 and above tier, you get access to one bonus episode per month. This is an exclusive episode only for our subscribers. You also get access to the Florida 2001 Attacks event map. That's a very dense research resource for people interested in 9-11 and anthrax. And at the $10 and above tier, you get access to our private Discord channel where you can chat with other Media Roots Radio listeners. And if you're not already aware of it, for the past year and a half, I've been working on a massively long Freemasonic History of the United States podcast series. And to access that as part of our bonus episodes, and we've already gone up to episode eight. And collectively, the entire Freemasonic History of the United States series 
is about 45 hours long. So definitely check that out. You can become a subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Radio. Thank you so much for listening. And take care. The FBI is taking over the search for the anthrax source that infiltrated the office building of American Media, the parent company for several tabloid magazines. After testing hundreds of people, investigators discovered a new anthrax case and pronounced this a criminal investigation. So far, of the 700 that we have reviewed, we have found one positive anthrax culture. Anthrax spores were found in the nasal passages of a 35-year-old woman who has not been identified publicly. She is the third employee exposed in the Boca Raton building. One worker, Robert Stevens, died last week. The other two are being treated at Miami area hospitals. We understand that this is a problem and we will bring every resource that we have to bear on this problem and I assure you, we will resolve it. Preliminary tests indicate all the cases come from the same anthrax strain. Sources tell CNN the anthrax is believed to be the AIM strain. Researchers discovered it in Iowa during the 1950s. It's one of the most common anthrax strains and has been widely distributed among researchers for years. For investigators, it's clear the anthrax was deliberately placed inside the building. The questions are who, how, and why. But officials are quick to try to ease the most pressing fear. I have no evidence at this point indicating that this is related to the September 11th events. Last night, with a platoon of firefighters and police, Giuliani opened Saturday Night Live, praising the city and its rescue workers, then telling producer Lauren Michaels it was essential to get back to normal. That's why it's important for you to do your show tonight. Can we be funny? <laughs> why start now? But Rudy Giuliani may have more ambitious plans than comedy or running a recovery effort. Saying the city's crisis required experienced leadership, he approached state officials about possibly changing the term limits law to stay in office, then proposed adding three more months to his term. Can you imagine that Tony Blinken or Miley? How did, how's that guy a general? Jesus. The other day, he said that the Bagram Air Force Base it's not strategically important. I wanted to grab his, what do you have, five stars, ten stars, twelve stars? He has so many stars that come up into his ears. I wanted to grab his stars, shove it down his throat and say, It's 400 miles from China, asshole! China is going to be our enemy for the next 40 years. You have an air base 400 miles from them and you're giving it up, idiot! What the hell is wrong with you? Who pays you? Christ! That is crazy! Christ! I don't know. Are you afraid, Mr. Mayor, that you could be indicted? Oh, wow. How, awful, how long have you known me yet? I've known you several years. Uh, you think I'm afraid? I, I don't you know. You think I get afraid?